Their heavily accented, broken English speaking skills didn't improve their prospects either. From that severely handicapped beginning, with all the odds stacked against them, the Patels triumphed. Patels as a group today own over $40 billion in motel assets in the United States, pay over $725 million a year in taxes, and employ nearly a million people. How did this small, impoverished ethnic group come out of nowhere and end up controlling such vast resources? There is a one-word explanation. Dando. Dando is a Gujarati word. Dan comes from the Sanskrit root word dana, meaning wealth. Dando, literally translated, means endeavors that create wealth. The street translation of dando is simply business. What is business if not an endeavor to create wealth? However, if we examine the low-risk, high-return approach to business taken by the Patels, Dando takes on a much narrower meaning. We have all been taught that earning high rates of return requires taking on greater risks. Dando flips this concept around. Dando is all about the minimization of risk while maximizing the reward. The stereotypical Patel naturally approaches all business endeavors with this deeply ingrained, riskless dando framework. For him, it's like breathing. Dando is thus best described as endeavors that create wealth while taking virtually no risk. Not only should every entrepreneur seek to learn from the Patel dando framework, but also the primary audience for this tome, investors and allocators of capital. Dundo is capital allocation at its very finest. If an investor can make virtually risk-free bets with outsized rewards and keep making the bets over and over, the results are stunning. Dundo is how the Patels have exponentially compounded their net worths over the past 30-odd years. I'm getting ahead of myself. Sit back, relax, grab a cool one, and mellow out. You're about to begin a remarkable journey one that I hope is as rewarding and profitable for you as it has been for me and generations of Patel businessmen. Gujarat lies along the Arabian Sea with a large, desirable coastline and several natural harbors. The Tropic of Cancer cuts right through the state. Over the centuries, it has always been an ideal location for trade with neighboring Asian and African countries. It has served as a melting pot of many different cultures over its rich history. The Parsis, fleeing religious persecution in Iran, landed in Gujarat as refugees in the 12th century and were warmly received. Similarly, the Ismailis arrived in the first half of the 19th century from Iran. For several centuries, Gujaratis were very used to traveling to and trading with their Asian and African neighbors. Patels originally were known as Patidars, loosely translated as landlords. Most villages in Gujarat had a patidar appointed by the ruler, who was responsible for collecting land taxes, providing security, and running a streamlined farming operation. In medieval times, these patidars were chosen on the basis of their savvy management and farming skills. Patels usually had large families, and as the land was subdivided into smaller and smaller fragments for each son, farming became a tough way to make a buck. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Ismailis and Patels from Gujarat migrated in significant numbers to countries like Uganda in East Africa. They went as traders or as indentured laborers to help build the railroads. 
The Patels and the Ismailis have been a very entrepreneurial community for centuries, and, over the ensuing decades, with their soon-to-be-revealed dundo techniques, they came to control a large proportion of the businesses in Uganda. General Idi Amin came to power in Uganda as a dictator in 1972. He declared that Africa was for Africans, and that non-Africans had to leave. Amin wasn't a big fan of the Patels who controlled most of his economy. The fact that most of these non-Africans, like the Patels and the Ismailis, were born in Uganda, had been there for generations, had no other home, and had all their businesses and property in Uganda, meant nothing to Amin. For him, it was simple. Africa was for Africans. Amin revoked the residency permits of all Asians, regardless of whether they had any natural homeland to return to. The Ugandan state seized all their businesses and nationalized them, with no compensation to the owners. A total of 70,000 Gujaratis were thus stripped of virtually all their assets and thrown out of the country toward the end of 1972. The world had several hot spots in 1972 and 1973 that had a significant impact on the future destiny of these orphaned Patels. With the recent formation of Bangladesh in 1971 and the war with Pakistan over its independence, India was already reeling from a very severe refugee crisis. Millions of impoverished Bangladeshi refugees had poured into India. As a result, the Indian government refused to recognize the Indian origin population being expelled from Uganda as having any right to enter India. Amin's Patel expulsion also coincided with the tail end of the Vietnam War, and the United States was dealing with a large influx of Vietnamese refugees at the time. President Nixon and Secretary of State Kissinger were well briefed on the Ugandan situation and were sympathetic to the plight of the Patels but were limited in the number of Indian-origin refugees they could accept. Being members of the Commonwealth, the vast majority of the Patels and Ismailis were allowed to settle in England and Canada. A few thousand families were also accepted by the United States as refugees. The first few Patels who arrived in the United States went into the motel business. The thousands that arrived later followed the lead of the pioneers and also became motel operators. Why motels? And why did virtually all of them go into the same industry? If we examine the history of ethnic groups migrating to alien lands, we notice a pattern. In Chicago, many of the early Irish immigrants became police officers, while most housemaids were Polish. In New York City, Koreans dominated the deli and grocery business, Chinese run many of the city's laundries, and Sikhs and Pakistanis drive most of the cabs. It's a bizarre sight, but most of the rental car staff at California's San Jose International Airport consists of older Sikhs, turbans and all. There is a large population of Eastern European cab drivers in Vegas, and most of the prostitutes in Dubai are of Eastern European or Russian origin. The reason we end up with concentrations of ethnic groups in certain professions is because role models play a huge role in how humans pick their vocations. If someone looks like me, has had a similar upbringing, belongs to the same religious order, has attended a similar school, and is making a good living, it naturally has a huge impact when I'm trying to decide my calling in life. Tall inner-city African-American kids routinely see tall African-American males playing for the NBA 
and leading very enviable lives. They are also aware that the childhood of these NBA stars, in many cases, is pretty similar to their own present circumstance. It serves as a huge motivator to sharpen their basketball-playing skills. That still begs the question, why did the first wave of Patels who entered the United States go into the motel business? Why not delis, laundromats, or drugstores? Why motels? And why not just find a job? Part of the answer lies in another demographic shift that was underway in the early 1970s in the United States. After World War II, there was a huge build-out of suburbia and the interstate highway system. The automobile had become a middle-class staple, and American family-owned motels popped up all along the newly built interstates. The 1973 Arab oil embargo and misguided American economic policies, price and wage controls, led to a deep recession across the country. Motels are heavily dependent on discretionary spending. The recession, coupled with rationed and sky-high gas prices, led to huge drops in occupancy. Many small, nondescript motels were foreclosed by banks or went on sale at distressed prices. At the same time, the kids of these old motel owner families were coming of age and saw plenty of opportunity outside of the motel business and left in droves to seek their fortune elsewhere. Papa Patel It is 1973. Papa Patel has been kicked out of Kampala, Uganda, and has landed as a refugee in Anywhere Town, USA, with his wife and three teenage kids. He has had about two months to plan his exit, and has converted as much of his assets as he could into gold and other currencies, and has smuggled it out of the country. It isn't much, a few thousand dollars. With a family to feed, he's quickly trying to become oriented to his alien surroundings. He figures out that the best he can do with his strange accent and broken English-speaking skills will be a job bagging groceries at minimum wage. Papa Patel sees this small 20-room motel on sale at what appears to be a very cheap price and starts thinking. If he buys it, the motivated seller or a bank will likely finance 80% to 90% of the purchase price. His family can live there as well, and their rent will go to zero. His cash requirement to buy the place is a few thousand dollars. Between himself and his close relatives, he raises about $5,000 in cash, and buys the motel. A neighborhood bank and the seller agree to carry notes, with the collateral being a lien on the motel. As one of the first Patels in the United States, Dayabai Patel succinctly put it, It required only a small investment, and it solved my accommodation problem because my family and I could live and work there. Papa Patel figures the family can live in a couple of rooms, so they have no rent or mortgage to pay, and minimal need for a car. Even the smallest motel needs a 24-hour front desk and someone to clean the rooms and do the laundry, at least four people working eight hours each. Papa Patel lets all the hired help go. Mama and Papa Patel work long hours on the various motel chores, and the kids help out during the evenings, weekends, and holidays. Dayabai Patel, reflecting on the modus operandi during the early days, said, I was my own front desk clerk, my own carpenter my own plumber, maid, electrician, washerman, and what not. With no hired help and a very tight rein on expenses, Papa Patel's motel 
has the lowest operating cost of any motel in the vicinity. He can offer the lowest nightly rate and still maintain the same or higher profitability per room than his predecessor and competitors. As a result, he has higher occupancy and is making supernormal profits. His competitors start seeing occupancy drop off and experience severe pressure on rates. Their cost structures prohibit them from matching the rates offered by the Patel Motel, leading to a spiraling reduction in occupancy and profits. The stereotypical Patel is a vegetarian and leads a very simple life. Most restaurants in the United States in the 1970s don't serve vegetarian meals, so eating at home is all the more attractive and much cheaper for Patel families. They are busy with the motel day and night, so they have little time for recreational activities. As a result, the total living expenses for this family are abysmally low. With a single-beater car, no home mortgage, rent, or utilities, and zero commute, eating out, or spending on vacations or entertainment of any type, Papa Patel's family lives quite comfortably on well under $5,000 per year. Prices are far lower in the 1970s. The minimum wage is just $1.60. The best Papa and Mama Patel could hope for is total annual earnings of about $6,000 per year if they both take up jobs and work full-time. If they buy a 20-room motel at a distressed price of $50,000 with about $5,000 in cash and the rest financed, even at rates of $12 to $13 per day and 50% to 60% average occupancy, the motel will generate about $50,000 in annual revenue. In the early 1970s, with treasuries yielding about 5%, an owner or most banks will be delighted to finance the motel purchase at a 10% to 12% interest rate with a lien on the property. Mr. Patel has annual interest expenses of about $5,000, principal payments of $5,000, and another $5,000 to $10,000 in out-of-pocket expenses for motel supplies, maintenance, and utilities. Total expenses are thus under $20,000. Even if the family spends another $5,000 a year for living expenses, a grand sum in 1970, Papa Patel nets over $15,000 a year after all taxes and all living expenses. If he had borrowed the $5,000 from a fellow Patel, he has it fully repaid in four months. He could even elect to pay off the mortgage on the motel in just three years. The annual return on that $5,000 of invested capital is a stunning 400%. $20,000 in annual returns from the investment, $15,000 in cash flow, and $5,000 in principal repayment. If he borrows the $5,000 from a fellow Patel, the return on invested capital is infinite. $0 in and $20,000 a year out. That's all fine and dandy, you might say, but what if the business does not work out? What if it fails? For this first motel purchase, Papa Patel not only has to give a lien on the property, but most likely also a personal guarantee to the lender as well. However, Papa Patel has only $5,000 or less to his name, so the personal guarantee is meaningless. If he is unable to make the payments, the bank can take over the property, but he has virtually no assets outside of the motel. The bank has no interest in taking over the motel and running it. It has no such competency. 
It will be very hard for the bank to sell a money-losing motel and cover their note. It is very simple. If a Patel cannot make the motel run profitably, no one can. The bank's best option is to work with Papa Patel to make the motel profitable, so the bank is likely to renegotiate terms and try to help Papa Patel get back on track. They might defer principal and interest payments for a few months until conditions improve, and they might raise the interest rate to offset the pain they are enduring. It is net-net. Papa Patel still runs the motel, the family still lives there, and he works as hard and as smart as he can to make it. He has no choice. It's make it work or go bust and homeless. Remember, this is an existing business with a very stable business model and a long history of cash flow and profitability. It is not rocket science. It is a simple business where the low-cost provider has an unassailable competitive advantage, and no one can run it any cheaper than Papa Patel. The motel business ebbs and flow with the economy. Eventually, conditions are likely to become better, the bank is made current on payments, and everyone is happy. Most of all, Papa Patel. Let's look at this investment as a bet. There are three possible outcomes. First, the $5,000 investment yields an annualized rate of return of 400%. Let's assume this continues for just 10 years and the business is sold for the same price as it was bought, $50,000. This is like a bond that pays 300% interest a year with a final interest payment in year 10 of 900%. This equates to a 21-bagger, an annualized return of well over 50% for 10 years. Second, the economy goes into a severe recession and business plummets for several years. The bank works with Mr. Patel and renegotiates loan terms as described earlier. Mr. Patel has a zero return on his investment for five years and then starts making $10,000 a year in excess-free cash flow when the economy recovers and booms. 200% return every year after five years. The motel is sold in year 10 for the purchase price. Now we have a bond that pays zero interest for five years, then 200% for five years, and a final interest payment of 900%. This equates to a seven-bagger, an annualized return of over 40% for 10 years. Third, the economy goes into a severe recession and business plummets. Mr. Patel cannot make the payments, and the bank forecloses, and Mr. Patel loses his investment. The annualized return is negative 100%. These three outcomes cover virtually the entire range of possibilities. Assume the likelihood of the first option is 80%, the second is 10%, and the third is 10%. These are very conservative probabilities as we are assuming a 1 in 5 chance of the motel performing far worse than projected. Even though it was bought on the cheap, at a distressed sale price, and run by a best-of-breed, savvy, low-cost operator. We have unrealistically assumed there is no rise in the motel's value or in nightly rates over ten years. Even then, the probability-weighted annualized return is still well over 40%. The expected present value of this investment, assuming a 10% discount rate, is about $93,400. 0 0.8 times 111,445 plus 0 0.1 times 42,812. From Papa Patel's perspective, there is a 10% chance of losing his $5,000 
and a 90% chance of ending up with over $100,000, with an 80% chance of ending up with $200,000 over 10 years. This sounds like a no-brainer bet to me. If you went to a horse race track and you were offered 90% odds of a 20 times return and a 10% chance of losing your money, would you take that bet? Heck yes! You'd make that bet all day long, and it would make sense to bet a very large portion of your net worth with those spectacular odds. This is not a risk-free bet, but it is a very low-risk, high-return bet. Heads, I win. Tails, I don't lose much. The skeptic in you remains unconvinced that the risk here is low. You might say that there is still the very real possibility of going broke if you bet all you have, like Papa Patel has done. Papa Patel does bet it all on one bet, but he has an ace in the hole. If the lender forecloses and he loses the motel, he and his wife can take up jobs bagging groceries, work 60 hours a week instead of 40, and maximize their savings. At the 1973 minimum wage of $1.60, they earn $9,600 a year. After taxes, they can easily sock away $2,000 to $4,000 a year. After two years, Papa Patel could step up to the plate and buy another motel and make another bet. The odds of losing this bet twice in a row are 1 in 100, and the odds that it pays off at least once are roughly 99%. When it does pay off, it's over a 20-fold return. That's an ultra-low-risk bet with ultra-high returns, one very much worth making. Heads I win, tails I don't lose much. With such high cash flow coming in, Papa Patel is soon flush with cash. He still has a very modest lifestyle. His eldest son comes of age in a few years and he hands over the motel to him. The family buys a modest house and goes hunting for the next motel to buy. This time, they buy a larger motel with 50 rooms. The family no longer lives at the motel, but still does most of the work with little in the way of hired help. The formula is simple. Fixate on keeping costs as low as possible, charge lower rates than all competitors, drive up the occupancy, and maximize the free cash flow. Finally, Keep handing over motels to up-and-coming Patel relatives to run while adding more and more properties. There is a snowball effect here, and over time, we end up with these amazing statistics. Half of all motels in the United States are under Patel ownership. Having fully cornered the motel market, the Patels have begun buying higher-end hotels and have delved into a number of businesses where they can apply their lowest-cost operator model for unassailable competitive advantage gas stations, Dunkin' Donuts franchises, convenience stores, 7-Elevens, and the like. Some have even branched out into developing high-end timeshare condominiums. The snowball continues to roll down this very long hill, becoming bigger over time. Chapter 2 Manilal Dando The Patel Motel Dando story is interesting, but it appears that this was a huge one-time opportunity in the early 1970s. It does not look like the same could be replicated today. Well, let's refute that perspective by examining the journey Manilal Chaudhary has embarked on. Manilal is not a Patel, but he is their first cousin. Like the Patels, he hails from Gujarat and has virtually identical cultural and religious beliefs. Like the stereotypical Patel, 
the entrepreneurial Dundo genes are deeply entrenched. It was a very pretty, sunny Southern California Valentine's Day in 2006 when I left my office in Irvine to visit Manilal at his best western motel in Moreno Valley, California, about fifty miles inland in the desert. A mutual friend had briefly described Manilal's interesting entrepreneurial story to me. I was intrigued and contacted him to arrange an interview. Manilal is an unassuming, pleasant, fifty-four-year-old guy who comes across as a very honest, hard-working, and likable fellow. He was born and raised in Gujarat in a family with four brothers and two sisters. One of his brothers had migrated to the United States in the 1970s and had settled in the San Francisco Bay Area. Manilal had trained and worked as an accountant in India. In 1991, his brother sponsored him and he was able to get his U.S. green card and migrate to the United States with his wife and kids. He arrived in San Francisco with virtually no cash or assets. His brother hosted them, and Manilal began to look for a job so he could support his family. Manilal spoke English before he came to the United States, and had already been in the United States for 15 years when we met. Even so, I found it hard to understand Manilal's broken and heavily accented English, especially in our phone conversations. It was easier in person, but it would have been a huge liability for him 15 years ago in the job market. With no prior U.S. job experience or references and his English language handicap, he had difficulty finding a white-collar accounting job and eventually abandoned that futile effort. Manilal was under pressure to earn money to support his family. He was now pretty much ready to take any job at minimum wage. In the early 1990s, the United States was in a deep recession, and that made it all the more difficult. Manilal's first job was at a gas station at minimum wage. His work hours were 3 p.m. to 7 a.m., 16 hours a day, 7 days a week. He was working 112 hours a week. Through the grapevine, he heard that there was a computer power supply manufacturing company in Southern California, Cherokee International, owned by a fellow Patel, that was growing and adding staff. Manilal interviewed with Cherokee and got a job there. He moved his family to Southern California, and his brother lent some financial support as they got settled. After starting at Cherokee, he worked full-time and put in all the overtime the company would allow. Cherokee recognized some of his accounting skills and put him in the stockroom helping out with inventory management. The pay was a little over minimum wage. His remaining two brothers and one sister, and all their families, joined him in a few months. They all lived together in a small apartment, and in short order, nearly all the adults had assembly line-type jobs at Cherokee. One brother was single. With seven adults, the paychecks began to flow in, and Manilal and his siblings started saving in earnest. Their first objective was to get a larger place, and they decided to buy a house. In 1994, they pooled their savings, about $60,000, and bought a house in the pleasant town of Foothill Ranch, California, for $203,000. Also, in 1994, Manilal took a second job at a Texaco gas station. He now worked from 8 a.m. until 5 p.m. at Cherokee, and then from 5.30 p.m. until 11 p.m. at the gas station. The Persian gas station owner recognized Manilal's integrity and hard work ethos, and he made him the de facto manager of the gas station. Besides his wages, 
He gave Manilal 10% of the gas station's net profit. Manilal managed the place like an owner. He hired and fired staff as required and made sure the gas station ran without a hitch. Manilal became intimately familiar with the gas station business, the margins on various items, the overheads, how much money the business made, and so on. By 1998, the Chaudhrys had bought a condo for his sister's family and another home in Foothill Ranch for $169,000. They continued to live very simply. From the beginning, the four sibling families had agreed to put $500 a month per family into a common savings account. This pool funded the initial down payment for their first home. For subsequent purchases, they also drew down on this pool. They all lived very simple lives and worked around the clock. As a result, there wasn't much free time to spend on entertainment. Manilal told me that they traveled a fair amount during the first two years, hitting the usual tourist spots. After that, they didn't have much interest in traveling, and all of them worked long hours with a great deal of overtime. Even with very low wages, they were each socking away several thousand dollars a year. In 1998, Manilal decided that he wanted to buy a small business with his extended family. He considered gas stations, liquor stores, laundromats, and such. His Texaco gas station employer supported his goals, but told him not to look at liquor stores due to the high crime and headaches. Some Patels suggested motels, but in Southern California, these now cost millions. He kept looking for a business to buy, but was unable to find one that felt right. He was patient. In 2001, after 9-11... The travel industry went into a major slump, and motel occupancy and prices declined significantly. Cherokee had many Patel employees. One of them, Ashok Patel, was a vice president at the firm. He liked Manilal and told him he'd love to invest some money with him in a business that Manilal might run. After 9-11, Manilal came across a Best Western motel for sale in Moreno Valley for $4.5 million. It was a spectacular property on nearly three acres right off the highway. They needed to put about $1.4 million down to buy the property. Manilal and his siblings had all of $225,000 in savings. They also had the ability to get about $125,000 through home equity loans on their now appreciated homes. The deal they struck was that the Chaudhrys would own 25% of the motel and put up $350,000 in cash. Ashok Patel invested about $252,000 and got an 18% interest. Three other friends of Manilal each invested $266,000 and each received a 19% interest. Here's the ownership breakdown for the Moreno Valley Best Western. Manilal and siblings, 25%. Mr. Ashok Patel, 18%. Mr. Mahendra Patel, 19%. Mr. Ravi Patel, 19%, Mr. Kanuparek, 19%, total 100%. Manilal told me that he was deeply skeptical about handing his money to anyone in any type of business endeavor. However, this was a deal where he was going to manage the motel, and in effect, his investors had handed him the money. I told him Pabrai funds work the same way. I don't need to do too much due diligence on my investors because I'm getting their money and not vice versa. Manilal quit his Cherokee job and began running the motel full-time. He received a salary, 
and the profits were split among the partners in the proportion of their ownership. Let's fast forward four years. The motel's market value is now over $9 million, a 100% increase. But wait. Over the past four years, some of the $3.1 million note has been paid down. Let's assume about $200,000 was paid down every year, so now the note due is $2.3 million. Their $1.4 million is now worth $6.7 million. That's an annualized return of a stunning 48% a year. Hold on, there's more. We haven't calculated the dividends this investment has yielded over the past four years. When Manilal took over the motel in 2001, average occupancy was under 60% and the average nightly rate was $55, yielding gross revenues of under $1.6 million. The average occupancy now is north of 65% and the average rate is about $70, yielding gross revenues of about $2.1 million. Revenues have increased about $500,000 over the past four years. I'd guess that underlying costs have increased by perhaps only $150,000. The motel is likely generating $800,000 plus in free cash flow annually, after paying Manilal a handsome salary. Let's examine the economics here from Manilal's vantage point. His salary is at least $50,000 a year a big step up from his Cherokee and gas station days. His family's $350,000 investment in this motel bond yielded an initial annual coupon of about $125,000 a year. It has increased by about $25,000 a year and today is about $200,000. Initially, this bond paid a 36% coupon and currently the coupon is 57%. In addition, if they decided to sell this bond today, they wouldn't just get back the $350,000, but nearly $1.7 million, about five times the initial investment in four years. Manilal is busy these days with the construction of a new Holiday Inn Express in Chino Hills, California. He bought the land for $1.3 million and expects it to cost about $8 million in aggregate. Revenues are expected to be around $2.3 million a year. He was, understandably, reticent to give me all his financial details. But I suspect the Best Western has been refinanced and the investors have gotten their money out and then some. The refinancing, along with the robust cash flows from the Best Western, is funding Chino Hills and other projects. The family has started to set up independently owned properties by the siblings. One brother and the sister each own and run small motels in Utah. Both properties have about 40 to 50 rooms, and they were purchased with about $250,000 down. Each sibling and spouse quit Cherokee as they started running motels. One brother still works at Cherokee. Manilal still lives modestly in the same foothill ranch house he bought in 1994. The kids have all done exceptionally well. They are mostly professionals, doctors, dentists, and so on. His daughter is now 32. She is married with two kids and recently bought a small motel in Utah as well, which she manages with her husband. Now that's what I'd call Manilal Dundo. He worked hard, saved all he could, and then bet it all on a single no-brainer bet. Reeling from the severe impact of 9-11 on travel, the motel industry was on its knees. 
as prices and occupancy collapsed, Manilal stepped in and made his play. He was on the hunt for three years. He patiently waited for the right deal to materialize. Classically, his story is all about few bets, big bets, infrequent bets. And it's all about only participating in coin tosses where heads, I win, tails, I don't lose much. Chapter 3 Virgin Dundo By now you're likely thinking, Look, these Patels and Manilal have done very well. My hat's off to them. It's an entertaining story, but one that clearly cannot be replicated by the rest of us. I wouldn't ever move in with my adult siblings and their families for several years to maximize our saving with the objective of building a motel empire. I'm not into working 100 hours a week or living with my family in a motel for years on end. You're probably also convinced that there is something about their family environment or gene pool that predisposes them to take this bizarre approach to life and business. The rest of us cannot embark on dundo journeys like them because of this difference. To dispel that notion, let's take a look at another great dundo entrepreneur who is not a Patel and does not hail from Gujarat or India. He is from Surrey in England and is as flamboyant as they come. He's all about living life to the fullest and maximizing the fun. While Papa Patel and Richard Branson seemingly have nothing in common, they are inextricably linked in how they approach their business endeavors. Both are hardcore practitioners of dundo. Let's delve into the birth of Virgin Atlantic and learn how to start pretty much any business with minimal capital and virtually no risk. This is dundo on steroids. The year was 1984 and Richard Branson knew nothing about the airline business. He started his entrepreneurial journey at 15 and was very successful in building an amazing music recording and distribution business. Somebody sent Branson a business plan about starting an all-business-class airline flying between London and New York. Branson noted that when an executive in the music business received a business plan to start an airline involving a 747 jumbo jet, he knew that the business plan had been turned down in at least 3,000 other places before landing on his desk. He was also aware that the other businessmen with strong domain knowledge had turned it down. The business plan claimed that the sector was underserved by the existing players. All weekend long, he tried calling the other major discount airlines flying that route, but could never get through. His conclusion was that they either were lousy businessmen or were overwhelmed by demand which meant that there was an opportunity to start competing against them. He also changed the original business plan significantly, opting for a unique dual-class service. He thought about it carefully all weekend long. On Monday, he went to his partners and senior executives at the music business and told them of his interest in starting the airline. They told him, Richard, you've got to be off your rocker. They told him he'd need a 747 jumbo jet the most expensive plane around. And they asked, Do you know what that costs? They told him they had no interest and did not support this wild idea. Branson persisted. He called directory assistance in Seattle to get the main number for Boeing. When the receptionist answered, he said that he'd like to talk to someone about leasing a 747 jumbo jet. After he was transferred several times, he got to what seemed like the right person, and asked if Boeing had an old jumbo lying around. The guy said they did, 
and Branson asked if they would consider doing a one-year lease. The Boeing employee, likely amused by the British accent, said that they have a small list of customers, but they might consider doing such a lease with one of their regular customers. Branson persisted and asked for some numbers. Boeing gave him some ballpark numbers, and Branson figured out that his total outlay and maximum liability for starting Virgin Atlantic Airlines, if it failed, was just $2 million. His record company was on track to earn $12 million that year and $20 million the next year. Branson noted that in the airline business with a single plane, he would pay for the fuel 30 days after the airplane landed and for staff wages 15 to 20 days after the airplane landed, but he would get paid for all the tickets about 20 days before the plane took off. Working capital needs in this scenario were pretty low and, with a very favorable short-term lease from Boeing, there was no need to buy an airplane. Branson figured he could hire a small ground staff, place a few ads in the paper, and start taking reservations. Boy George's records were produced by Virgin, and Branson and he were good friends. To boost the morale of the early Virgin Atlantic employees and get them all excited, he took Boy George over to the cargo hangar at Gatwick Airport, which served as the headquarters for Virgin Atlantic, to meet the staff. The employees loved it, but Boy George was quite stunned at the apparent chaos at the facility. He later told Branson, I'm glad my feet are firmly on the ground. It was a very messy start-up. Now, if someone came up with this idea in Silicon Valley, there would be a fancy business plan put together along with the mandatory elevator pitch. It would be based on at least $60 million in startup capital to build out the basic infrastructure and so on. Branson did not go down this path. The business plan was done in a weekend and resided in Branson's head. There was no business plan ever written. There was no board of directors or advisors at startup, no venture capitalists, VCs, or angels. It was done by a person with no prior experience or expertise in the airline industry. My take on Virgin Atlantic is simply this. If you can start a business that requires a $200 million 747 jumbo jet and a boatload of employees in a tightly regulated industry for virtually no capital, then virtually any business that you want to start can be gotten off the ground with minimal capital. All you need to do is replace capital with creative thinking and solutions. Branson found a service gap and went after it. By the time that gap narrowed and British Airways and his other competitors woke up, he had already built a strong brand. Even today, Virgin Atlantic offers a very unique product in a very tough industry. The Virgin Atlantic business model is pure dundo. Heads, I win. Tails, I don't lose much. The Virgin Group today is a privately held group of 200-plus businesses with about $7 billion in annual revenue. It generates about 600 to $700 million a year in free cash flow. The common ingredient in virtually all 200-plus businesses is that there was very little money invested in any of them at startup. Heads, I win. Tails, I don't lose much. In 2005, they put a line of electronic products called Virgin Pulse into Target stores. Target asked them to develop an exclusive line of designer personal electronics only for Target. Target guaranteed them prime floor space, so Virgin had zero distribution cost or risk. It had Echo, a chic design shop, create the line, and they found a Chinese company to manufacture it. 
retaining good margins for Virgin. Its downside was very limited, and upside was huge. The parties who took much of the risk were the manufacturers, who had to commit capacity beyond confirmed orders, and Target, which had to set aside valuable shelf space in every store. To launch it, the Virgin Group leveraged Branson at a New York party dancing with some hot models wearing the Virgin Pulse line on their person. It put very little money into it. Classic dundo at work. Heads I win, tails I don't lose much. Another example of classic dundo is Virgin Mobile, Virgin's cell phone service in the United States. Virgin Mobile does not own or operate a cell phone network. Sprint provides the entire back end and delivers the service under the Virgin Mobile brand. Virgin targeted teens with this service and focused the offering to be very attractive to teens, cool phones and phone skins, prepaid phone cards, and the teen-centric Virgin brand. Virgin's investment was very low. If it failed, it had virtually no downside. Sprint provided all the technology, billing, and customer service infrastructure. Virgin provided the branding and product positioning, and it took a large chunk of the profits. If it worked, there was huge upside for Virgin and a negligible downside if it failed. Virgin Mobile scaled very rapidly. It set a record for the fastest business to move from startup to over $1 billion in revenues, less than three years. Again, it's heads I win, tails I don't lose much. In 1997, the Virgin team, along with the Royal Bank of Scotland, offered an innovative mortgage product under the Virgin Mortgage brand called the Virgin One Account. This revolutionary mortgage product looked at any cash the borrower had in his or her checking account and netted it against the loan balance and only charged interest on the net loan balance. Again, Virgin had virtually no investment. The entire back end was handled by the bank. All Virgin provided was the brand and helped with the marketing. Very little cash invested. In return, it got a good chunk of the profits. Heads I win, tails I don't lose much. Branson owns his own private island in the British Virgin Islands called Necker Island. It is a spectacular property and was featured in the last episode of The Rebel Billionaire on Fox. The island was on sale for three million pounds a few years ago. Branson's starting offer? 150,000 pounds, 95% off the list price. His offer was laughed at. But a few weeks later, he bought the island for just 180,000 pounds. Needless to say, Sir Richard has had a very spectacular dundo return on his vacation home investment over the years. Now you and 13 other friends can spend time on Necker Island for just $30,000 per night. With minimal downsides, failure rates don't matter to Sir Richard Branson. Even if half these ventures fail or never scale up, it doesn't matter. There's virtually no money put into them to begin with. Venture capitalists ought to look at the Virgin model, because the Virgin model is the VC model of the future. Branson is an ultra-low-risk, ultra-high-return VC. People keep feeding him ideas, and he acts on a select few. He gets large equity stakes, sometimes 50-50 equity stakes in these businesses, without putting any money in them. In some cases, like Virgin Atlantic, it is a 100% stake, with very little invested. There are two words that encapsulate Branson's journey. Virgin Dundo. Like his twin brothers, Manilal and Papa Patel, Branson is all about 
Heads, I win. Tails, I don't lose much. Chapter 4 Mittal Dando Bordering Pakistan is Rajasthan, the most colorful state of India, and Marwar is a small district within the state. The Marwaris are regarded by many as being the very best practitioners of the art of Dando. Their amazing Dando endeavors, in many cases, leave the Patels in the dust. In the 2005 Forbes ranking of the wealthiest humans on the planet, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett took their usual top two spots. But nipping at their heels at number three is a Marwari entrepreneur, Lakshmi Mittal. Mittal, from a standing start with virtually nothing 30 years ago, has a net worth of over $20 billion today. He began his Dundo journey at about the same time as Bill Gates. As we know, Bill invested his energies in an industry that offers among the highest returns on invested capital. He got a few engineers together, created MS-DOS and Microsoft Word, and then sold hundreds of millions of copies. Let's investigate the amazing economics at work. A single copy of Microsoft Office is sent to Dell to load onto Dell PCs. Each time Dell loads Office on any machine, it sends Redmond, Washington a few hundred dollars. There are hundreds of millions of copies made all over the planet, yielding billions upon billions every year for Microsoft. The return on invested capital is out of sight, and the gross margin approaches 100%. What is amazing about Lakshmi Mittal's Dundo journey is that he invested all his energies and tiny capital base in an industry with terrible economics. Steel mills. Unlike Microsoft, in a steel mill, you have no control over the selling price of the finished product, and you have no control over the cost of raw materials. Steel mills are very capital-intensive creatures. If that wasn't a toxic enough cocktail already, the workforce is usually unionized. The steel industry has been one of the worst places to invest capital in the past 30 years. It is no wonder that all over the globe the players in the space have encountered tremendous pain and large numbers have ended up bankrupt. Mittal started in 1976 with a single, small, nondescript steel mill in Indonesia. Despite having all the odds stacked against him, he ended up creating one of the largest and most profitable steel businesses on the planet. More important, for him, he ended up with a net worth of over $20 billion and growing. How did he do it? There is a simple one-word explanation. Dundo. Take the example of the deal he created to take over the gigantic Karmet Steelworks in Kazakhstan. The company had stopped paying its workforce because it was bleeding red ink and had no cash. The plant was on the verge of closure with its Soviet-era managers forced to barter steel for food for its workers. The Kazakh government was glad to hand Mr. Mittal the keys to the plant for nothing. Not only did Mr. Mittal retain the entire workforce and run the plant, he paid all the outstanding wages and within five years had turned it into a thriving business that was gushing cash. The workers and townsfolk literally worshipped Mittal as the person who saved their town from collapse. The same story was repeated with the Sedex steel plant in Romania and the Mexican government handed him the keys to the Sibalsa mill for $220 million in 1992. It had cost the Mexicans over $2 billion to build the plant. 
Getting dollar bills at ten cents or less is dundo on steroids. Mittel's approach has always been to get a dollar's worth of assets for far less than a dollar. And then he has applied his secret sauce of getting these monolith mills to run extremely efficiently. The people who founded Google, Oracle, Cisco, and Intel were all very talented, but they also had huge tailwinds propelling their net worths into the stratosphere. They all focused on businesses with amazing economics and very high returns on invested capital. Amazingly, it is Mittel, facing massive headwinds, who has a higher net worth than all of them. The Dundo framework helped him triumph over all but two members of the Forbes 400. And, as we learn before we're done, both guys ahead of him are true connoisseurs and practitioners of the fine art of Dundo. Whether you hail from Seattle, Omaha, or Marwar, the Dundo framework to business pretty much trounces all others. A final note on the Marwaris and their ingrained Dundo ways. Recently I had dinner with a good Marwari friend of mine, and I asked him how the stereotypical Marwari approaches investing capital in a venture. He said, quite nonchalantly, that Marwari business people, even with only a fifth-grade education, simply expect all their invested capital to be returned in the form of dividends in no more than three years. They expect that, after having gotten their money back, their principal investment continues to be worth at least what they invested in it. They expect these to be ultra-low-risk bets. Now, folks, this is really good stuff. They don't teach this at the Harvard Business School. If you simply use this Marwari formula before making any investments, let me assure you of two things. One, you take a quick pass on most investments offered to you, and two, starting with very little capital, after a few decades, you'll be very wealthy. Enough said. Trans-Tech Dundo To add to the flavors of Dundo, let's examine my own Dundo experience. When I founded my first business, Trans-Tech Inc., I had virtually no money. There was about $30,000 in my 401k retirement account at Tell Labs and $70,000 available in credit card limits on a number of credit cards that I signed up for in anticipation of starting my business. I researched U.S. bankruptcy laws and found that they were not too onerous. If the business went south and I was unable to cover my debts, I could declare personal bankruptcy and start over. It was a very similar situation to Papa Patel. There wasn't much downside because there wasn't much to lose. Also, when I resigned, my boss told me that they'd love to have me back any time, and they were likely to give me a decent raise as well. All I had to lose was the $30,000 in my 401k retirement account. I was all of 25 years old. The last thing I was concerned about was depleting my retirement assets. I incorporated Transtech in February 1990 while continuing to work at Tell Labs. I took half days off as vacation time whenever I had client sales calls. I used to work on the business at home in the morning from 6.30 a.m. to 8.30 a.m., be at work during the day, and again work on the business in the evening from 6 p.m. to midnight. I had a paycheck coming in and very little in the way of business expenses. When I had the first client and revenues over $200,000 a year in the bag, I resigned. If you look at the approach taken, it was a zero-risk approach. The only downside I had was the possible loss of my paltry $30,000 in 401k assets. The upside was enormous, easily several million dollars. 
Visa and MasterCard were my venture capitalists funding the rest of it. I was single at the time. There was no family to worry about. Many lunches and dinners back then were comprised of a simple Subway sandwich. My expenses were pretty low. I considered staying at Tell Labs to be a risky proposition. I thought that if I just stayed at the company, it was likely to be a boring and slow corporate path. If I woke up when I was 35 or 45 and decided to go off on my own, it would be much more complicated. I would likely have a wife and kids by then, which would make it harder to break loose and make a risk-free bet. Being 25 and single, I had available at least one risk-free bet. My game plan was very simple. I had an arbitrage-based business model. The value proposition was leveraging India's deep expertise and available talent in client-server computing to satisfy the deep shortage of talent in the Midwestern United States. I had $100,000 of capital available to me, and the business was already producing revenue and some profit when I resigned from Tell Labs. I knew that with the first two customers on board, generating real revenue and profits, the downside was very limited. It was classic, heads I win, tails I don't lose much. Transtech scaled nicely. In 1996, we were recognized as an Inc. 500 company, one of the 500 fastest-growing businesses in the United States. As revenues went from nothing to over $20 million annually in 10 years, the business never took a dime of outside capital. Cash flows provided all the growth capital and then some. Cash was always very tight as we were growing very rapidly and reinvesting all available capital to scale. In late 1991, I found a terrific banker, Tom Harazim, who liked our story. He paid off all my credit cards, got us off the very expensive factoring of receivables I was doing to bring in cash as quickly as possible, and got Transtech set up with a hugely cheaper line of credit based on our pristine receivables. We did a sale of some assets for about $2 million in 1994, which made me feel rich for the first time, and then the entire business was sold in 2000 for several million dollars. A $30,000 investment got me more than 150 times return over 10 years, an annualized return of well over 65%. I went from a salary of $45,000 a year, when I quit my job, to consistently having a salary of over $300,000 a year in a few years. The magic word is dundo, baby. Huge upside with virtually no downside. It was a classic, heads I win, tails I don't lose much kind of bet. Chapter 5. The Dundo Framework On the surface, the journeys undertaken by Papa Patel, Manilal, Branson, Mittal, and yours truly are all pretty diverse. The roads we all took, however diverse, all led to similar destinations. Our journeys share a number of core principles. It is these nine principles that constitute the Dundo Framework. 1. Focus on buying an existing business. When Papa Patel decided to become an entrepreneur, he did not go out and start a brand new business. He bought an existing business with a well-defined business model and one with a long history of operations that he could analyze. This is way less risky than doing a startup. Manilal and Mittal did the same. 2. Buy simple businesses and industries with an ultra-slow rate of change. It is unlikely Papa Patel had ever heard of Warren Buffett in the early 1970s. 
While being raised in environments that could not be more different, each reached the same conclusion. Buy simple businesses with ultra-slow long-term change. We see change as the enemy of investments, so we look for the absence of change. We don't like to lose money. Capitalism is pretty brutal. We look for mundane products that everyone needs. Warren Buffett As long as humans travel long distances and have a need to sleep and refresh themselves, there will always be a need for motels and hotels. My previous business, TransTech, appears to be in a rapidly changing industry, but it too is a simple, low-tech business. At its core, it is simply a service business. While information technology, IT, has changed dramatically over the years, the underlying nature and economics of the services delivered are virtually the same. IBM's technology-centric business changes very quickly, but IBM Global Services, or Accenture's business, stays in a pretty steady state. 3. Buy distressed businesses and distressed industries Never count on making a good sale. Have the purchase price be so attractive that even a mediocre sale gives good results. Warren Buffett The entrance strategy is actually more important than the exit strategy. Eddie Lampert As discussed in Chapter 1, in the early 1970s with the oil embargo, deep recession, and reduction in the consumer's discretionary spending, highway motels were suffering. They were being sold at very cheap prices, all based on their pathetic near-term prospects. Papa Patel knew he was buying during distressed conditions and getting a great price. Manilal, too, made his move in the depressed travel industry right after 9-11. Mithal loaded up on assets in severely distressed businesses, in a severely distressed industry, in severely distressed countries and geographies. That's distress to the power of three. No wonder he's near the top of the Forbes 400. While lecturing a group of students at Columbia University at age 21, Buffett stated, I will tell you how to become rich. Close the doors. Be fearful when others are greedy. Be greedy when others are fearful. Warren Buffett while Papa Patel, Manilal, and Mithal were not in that closed room in 1952, they intrinsically understand that the very best time to buy a business is when its near-term future prospects are murky, and the business is hated and unloved. In such circumstances, the odds are high that an investor can pick up assets at steep discounts to their underlying value. No one knows that better than Lakshmi Mithal. 4. Buy businesses with a durable competitive advantage. The Moat The key to investing is not assessing how much an industry is going to affect society or how much it will grow, but rather determining the competitive advantage of any given company and, above all, the durability of that advantage. The products and services that have wide, sustainable moats around them are the ones that deliver rewards to investors. Warren Buffett with the fixation on running a low-cost operation, Papa Patel is able to charge much less than his competitors and still maintain healthy margins. This leads to higher occupancy on a very perishable commodity that he is peddling, a motel room for tonight. This advantage has an enduring quality to it, one that has lasted several decades. Only when a Patel competes head-to-head -head with another Patel is the advantage in jeopardy. But with a large country and a small niche population, Patels are careful not to make their own lives difficult by competing directly with another Patel. 
Papa Patel's, Manilal's, and Mithal's moats were created by being the low-cost producer. Branson only ventures into a business after he's convinced it has a wide and deep moat. Part of the moat comes from extending his brand, part of it from creating a truly innovative offering, and the rest from brilliant execution. The IT services business is a recurring revenue business. The relationship with clients and the knowledge of their business and systems is the deep hidden moat in IT services. As a company gets more familiar with the client's business and technology infrastructure, the harder it is to be replaced by a competitor, and those recurring revenues keep pouring in. When speaking to students at the University of Florida, Buffett stated, I don't want an easy business for competitors. I want a business with a moat around it. I want a very valuable castle in the middle, and then I want the duke, who is in charge of that castle, to be very honest and hard-working and able. Then I want a moat around that castle. The moat can be various things. The moat around our auto insurance business, Geico, is low cost. Warren Buffett The late Rose Blumkin, better known as Mrs. B., founder of the Nebraska Furniture Mart, NFM, is one such duchess. Even today, after so many decades, being the low-cost operator is fundamental to NFM's enduring success and growth. Mrs. B. did not hail from Gujarat, but she's Papa Patel's twin sister. 5. Bet heavily when the odds are overwhelmingly in your favor. There was a chance that Papa Patel's motel could have failed. However, on two serial bets made over five years, the odds that both outcomes go against Papa Patel are slight. Even when he loses both bets, since he did not have much to start with, his losses are pretty minimal. Societal safety nets help him get back on his feet. But when he wins, and the odds are over 99% that he wins at least once, he gets over 20 times his money back. It's classic, heads I win, tails I don't lose much. Warren Buffett's business partner and vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, Charlie Munger, uses horse racing's paramutual betting system as one of his mental models when approaching investing in the stock market. Unlike a casino, in horse racing you are betting against other bettors. The house takes a flat 17% of the total amount wagered. Frictional costs, relative to the stock market, are very high. According to Munger, to us, Investing is the equivalent of going out and betting against the paramutual system. We look for the horse with one chance in two of winning, which pays you three to one. You're looking for a mispriced gamble. That's what investing is. And you have to know enough to know whether the gamble is mispriced. That's value investing. Charlie Munger To be a consistent winner at the racetrack, a person has to overcome the staggering 17% frictional cost of placing a bet. According to Munger, there are actually a few people who are able to make a living by betting at the racetrack after paying the full 17%. These folks watch all the horses and races, yet place no bets. Then, when they encounter widely misplaced odds in their favor on a horse about which they know a great deal, they bet heavily on that one horse in that one race. After that, they go back to watching the horses and races indefinitely with no bets placed until another good opportunity shows up. It is not too different from all five of our Dundo entrepreneurs. They've all concentrated their capital and their bets. Most of the time, they either do nothing or place minuscule bets. Branson
Every once in a while they encounter overwhelming odds in their favor. At such times, they act decisively and place a large bet. 6. Focus on Arbitrage Arbitrage is classically defined as an attempt to profit by exploiting price differences in identical or similar financial instruments. For example, if gold is trading in London at $550 per ounce and in New York at $560 per ounce, assuming low frictional costs, an arbitrageur can buy gold in London and immediately sell it in New York, pocketing the difference. Of course, as he or she and others do these trades, the price spread collapses, and the arbitrage opportunity eventually vanishes. While arbitrage spreads are small and sometimes only available for fleeting moments, they are virtually risk-free, and it is free money while it lasts. As Warren Buffett said, speaking at Columbia Law School, Because my mother isn't here tonight, I'll even confess to you that I've been an arbitrageur. Warren Buffett Anytime you're playing an arbitrage game, you end up getting something for nothing. It's always very good, in various forms, to play the arbitrage game, because whenever a clear-cut arbitrage spread is available, you just can't lose. Papa Patel is playing an arbitrage game as well. His arbitrage endeavors aren't risk-free, but they sure are ultra-low risk and have many of the same characteristics of classic arbitrage. Imagine that there are two towns. Town A has a population of 40,000, and Town B has a population of 30,000. There is a barber who works at a hair salon in Town B, and he's an employee at the salon. Once in a while, he notices that he gets new customers who say that they live in the middle of nowhere in Town C, which is 17 miles away. It looks like a new township is emerging, and these people have to drive to either Town A or Town B for a haircut, because Town C is a brand new city, and there are no barbers in the city. Our barber starts thinking that it takes an hour to drive back and forth, $4 to $5 of gas, wear and tear on one's car, and so on. He thinks that, maybe, if there were a barber in Town C, people would go there. He has no money, so he goes to Town C and finds a run-down, dilapidated storefront. He subleases it month to month from the current tenant, paying way below market, and puts in the rudimentary things that you'd find at a barber shop. It has just a single barber chair. He hangs up a homemade sign outside and goes to work. He calculates that the invested capital is so low that if it doesn't work, he can go back full-time to his old job with little financial loss. He further reduces downside by working part-time at his old job and part-time at the new business until he has a steady clientele. If it works, he has a shot at being his own boss and having his own little business. Humans are creatures of habit. We shave the same side of the face first every day, we comb our hair the same way, and we also don't change our barber every month. Once he's set up in Town C, he starts getting repeat clients and revenues. He could even be slightly inferior or charge a bit more relative to the barbers in the other town, but you might still go to him as a critical time saver. Gradually, this dilapidated single-chair barbershop gets packed with customers. He improves the infrastructure and ambiance, puts in another chair, hires another barber, and begins to scale the business. He gets so busy after the first few weeks that he resigns from his old job in less than two months. Our resourceful barber may not realize it, but what he's doing is, in effect, playing the arbitrage game.
The arbitrage he has is that there is a 17-mile spread between him and his closest competitor. As long as that spread remains in place and Town C continues to grow, he sees a steady increase in revenues, even if he charges higher prices or delivers slightly inferior service. Over time, like all arbitrage spreads, this spread narrows and then disappears. More barbers open shops like his, and eventually Town C has the same number of barbers per capita as Town A or Town B. However, it could easily take several years before the spread disappears. In the meanwhile, our barber has raked in supernormal profits and built a loyal following. He may have to drop his prices to market price, and competition will force him to up the ante to market-level service. However, he has now built brand and has a satisfied client base that is unlikely to take the low bid with their monthly haircut. They are likely to keep returning to him. Even though the arbitrage spread is gone and supernormal profits are gone, the brand and loyal following gives him sustaining profits for many, many years ahead. His business now looks just like his former employer's business in Town B. The barber's return on his original invested capital is off the charts, not too different from our five Dundo entrepreneurs. And he, too, placed a near-risk-free arbitrage-type bet. Papa Patel's and Money Lal's arbitrage game is simple. The moment they take over a motel, operating costs drop. With the low-cost structure, they offer a very competitive average nightly rate that leads to higher occupancy. That lower-cost, higher occupancy gives them an arbitrage spread over all their competitors, until another fellow Patel shows up to compete with them. It might take 15 to 20 years before a fellow Patel shows up. The stereotypical Patel is not a stupid guy. He's going to see this motel as under Patel ownership, and he'll decide quickly not to go into direct competition with a fellow Patel. So that arbitrage will last for some time. Nonetheless, eventually, that spread is going to disappear. In the meanwhile, and that can be several decades, Papa Patel and Manilal milk that arbitrage spread for all they can. Branson's arbitrage is his innovative offerings in the industries he plunges into. Eventually, many of his innovations get copied by competitors, the moat shrinks, and the arbitrage spread collapses. But again, that spread can last for well over a decade or two. When Mittal picks up assets for pennies on the dollar and then streamlines operations, he has an unassailable low-cost producer advantage. Over the years, he has developed a second enduring advantage, global arbitrage on labor, raw materials, energy costs, and the best-selling price. With plants in a wide range of geographies, he optimizes the type and quantity of steel produced by geography to maximize this advantage. And now, his tremendous scale and brand get him a third enduring advantage. His volumes and capacity allow him to negotiate better prices than his competitors with both buyers and suppliers, driving his costs even lower. 7. Buy businesses at big discounts to their underlying intrinsic value. It is unlikely that Papa Patel ever read The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham or even heard of Graham's margin of safety edict. Nonetheless, Papa Patel intrinsically understands the concept of minimizing downside risk before ever looking at upside potential. If you buy an asset at a steep discount to its underlying value, even if the future unfolds worse than expected, the odds of a permanent loss of capital are low. 
That's exactly what Papa Patel did. He had a huge margin of safety when he bought the motel. According to Benjamin Graham, the function of the margin of safety is, in essence, that of rendering unnecessary an accurate estimate of the future. Benjamin Graham 8. Look for low-risk, high-uncertainty businesses Papa Patel's motel purchase did not have much risk associated with it. However, the outcome had significant uncertainty associated with it. What if gas prices continued to stay high, or the recession continued on? Even in that scenario, Papa Patel would still be the low-cost provider. He'd still be able to charge less and end up with higher occupancy. Even in the gloom and doom scenario, he comes out looking pretty good. If the economy booms and the gas prices moderate, he makes a killing. He has very low risk and relatively high uncertainty with the motel investment. Low risk and high uncertainty is a wonderful combination. It leads to severely depressed prices for businesses, especially in the paramutual system-based stock market. Dundo entrepreneurs first focus on minimizing downside risk. Low-risk situations, by definition, have low downsides. The high uncertainty can be dealt with by conservatively handicapping the range of possible outcomes. You end with the classic Dundo tagline, Heads I win, tails I don't lose much. 9. It's better to be a copycat than an innovator. The first few Patels paved the way for the thousands that followed. Papa Patel had seen a few of the earlier Patels latch on to buying small motels. In conversations with these pioneers, the no-brainer business model became painfully clear to him. He did not set out to innovate. He simply followed the path laid out by his peers. The thousands of subsequent Patels who followed did not innovate either. Neither did Moneylove. I, too got the seed of the idea for Transtech from my previous employer, Tellabs. They weren't interested in pursuing it, and I saw tremendous potential, so I left Tellabs and lifted and scaled the idea. Innovation is a crapshoot, but lifting and scaling carries far lower risk and decent to great rewards. And that's the Dundo framework. To summarize, invest in existing businesses. Invest in simple businesses. Invest in distressed businesses and distressed industries. Invest in businesses with durable moats. Few bets, big bets, and infrequent bets. Fixate on arbitrage. Margin of safety, always. Invest in low-risk, high-uncertainty businesses. Invest in the copycats rather than the innovators. Chapter 6 Dundo 101 Invest in existing businesses. There are a plethora of asset classes you could choose to invest in. CDs, U.S. Treasuries, bonds, stocks, real estate, private businesses, gold, silver, platinum, oil futures. The list is endless. If you examine returns from the broad stock market indexes over the past 100 years, it is pretty clear that stocks do better than virtually all other easily accessible asset classes. The evidence overwhelmingly suggests that, over the long haul, the best place to invest assets is in common stocks. Let's investigate this peculiar creation of mankind called the stock market. Humans have walked this earth for some 50,000 years, 
and the buying and selling of assets between humans has flourished for thousands of years. The first stock market was formed in just 1790 in Philadelphia, followed by the New York Stock Exchange in 1792. A stock is seen by many as a cryptic piece of paper whose price wiggles around continuously. That's one way to look at stocks. A far better way, suggested by Benjamin Graham, is to think of them as an ownership stake in an existing business. Papa Patel's motel is not publicly traded on any stock exchange. If it were, and you bought some of it, now you and Papa Patel are partners. As the motel throws off gobs of cash, you'd benefit, just as he does. There are six big advantages that the stock market offers versus the buying and selling of entire businesses. 1. When you buy an entire business, like Papa Patel did, there is some serious heavy lifting required. You either need to run it or find someone competent who can. This is no small task. Papa Patel did well, but it required tremendous energy and dedication from his whole family for several years to make it work. 2. When you buy a stock, you now have an ownership stake in the underlying business with one huge advantage. The business is already staffed and running. You can share in all the rewards of business ownership without much of the effort. The stock market enables you to own fractions of a few businesses of your choosing, over a period of your choosing, with full liquidity to buy or sell that stake any time with a few clicks on your computer. Humanity has given you a marvelous asset compounding machine that's vastly superior to virtually all other alternatives and made it all amazingly cheap and easy to use. Papa Patel does not have these advantages, and we have a huge leg up on him with the stock market at our disposal. The key is to only participate in the stock market using the powerful Dundo Investing Framework. 3. When humans buy or sell whole businesses, both sides have a good sense of what the asset is worth, and a rational price is usually arrived at. Sometimes in these transactions, if the business or industry is distressed, buyers might get a bargain like Papa Patel did. But those are anomalies. Sellers usually get to time these sales to their benefit. As a result, you typically end up with fair to exuberant pricing. The stock market operates like the paramutual system in horse racing. Prices are determined by an auction process. Like in horse racing, the auction process occasionally leads to a wide divergence between the value of a business and its quoted market price in a few stocks. We can do very well by only placing an occasional bet when the odds are heavily in our favor. According to Charlie Munger, If you stop to think about it, a perimutual system is a market. Everybody goes there and bets, and the odds change based on what's bet. That's what happens in the stock market. Charlie Munger 4. Buying an entire business, even a small neighborhood gas station or laundromat, requires some serious capital. In the stock market, you can hitch your wagon to the future prospects of any business with what you have in your wallet right now. The ability to get started with a tiny pool of capital and add to that pool over the years is a huge advantage. 5. There are thousands of publicly traded businesses in the United States and you can buy a stake in any of them with a few mouse clicks. You can buy stocks in a plethora of other countries with ease as well. I'd estimate that the average individual investor could easily buy a stake in well over 100,000 businesses around the planet with a couple of brokerage accounts.
In contrast, think about how many private businesses are on sale within 25 miles of your home at any given time. There is just no comparison. 6. At the racetrack, the track owner takes 17% of every dollar bet. The frictional costs are very high. Even when you buy a tiny private business, transaction costs between the buyer and seller are usually between 5% to 10% of the purchase price, which doesn't include the considerable time and effort expended. You can buy or sell a stake in a publicly traded company for under $10. With a $100,000 portfolio, and even at a hyperactive 50 trades a year, frictional costs are 0.5%, and they keep getting lower, as a percent, as the value of the portfolio rises over time. Ultra-low frictional costs are a huge advantage. Having an ownership stake in a few businesses is the best path to building wealth. And with no heavy lifting required, bargain-buying opportunities, ultra-low capital requirements, ultra-large selection, and ultra-low frictional costs, buying stakes in a few publicly traded existing businesses is the no-brainer, dundo way to go. Chapter 7 Dundo 102 Invest in Simple Businesses The advantages of buying a fraction of an existing business are pretty clear. But before we buy, we must know its intrinsic value. How else would we know if it's a good deal at a given price? What is the intrinsic value of a business? Is there a general formula? How do we figure it out? Every business has an intrinsic value, and it is determined by the same simple formula. John Burr Williams was the first to define it in his The Theory of Investment Value, published in 1938. Per Williams, the intrinsic value of any business is determined by the cash inflows and outflows, discounted at an appropriate interest rate, that can be expected to occur during the remaining life of the business. The definition is painfully simple. To illustrate, let's imagine that toward the end of 2006, a neighborhood gas station is put up for sale, and the owner offers it for $500,000. Further, let's assume that the gas station can be sold for $400,000 after 10 years. Free cash flow, money that can be pulled out of the business, is expected to be $100,000 a year for the next 10 years. Let's say that we have an alternative low-risk investment that would give us a 10% annualized return on the money. Are we better off buying the gas station? or taking our virtually assured 10% return. I used a Texas Instruments BA35 calculator to do these discounted cash flow, DCF, calculations. Alternately, you could use Excel. The gas station has an intrinsic value of about $775,000. We would be buying it for $500,000, so we'd be buying it for roughly two-thirds of its intrinsic value. Not surprisingly, the $500,000 invested in our low-risk alternative has a present value of exactly that, $500,000. Investing in the gas station is a better deal than putting the cash in a 10% yielding bond, assuming that the expected cash flows and sale price are all but assured. The stock market gives us the price at which thousands of businesses can be purchased. We also have the formula to figure out what these businesses are worth. It is simple. When we see a huge gap between the price and intrinsic value of a given business and that gap is in our favor, we can act and buy that business. Let's take the example of a well-known retail business, 
Bed Bath & Beyond, BBBY or Triple BY. I have to admit that I have never analyzed Triple BY before. I have been to its stores a few times over the years, and it has been a pleasant experience. As I write this, Triple BY has a quoted stock price of $36 per share and a market cap of $10.7 billion. We know Triple BY is being offered on sale for $10.7 billion. What is Triple BY's intrinsic value? Let's take a look at a few Triple BY statistics on Yahoo Finance. Triple BY had $505 million in net income for the year ended February 28, 2005. Capital expenditures for the year were $191 million and depreciation was $99 million. The back of the envelope net free cash flow was about $413 million. It looks like Triple BY is growing revenues 15% to 20% and net income by 25% to 30% a year. It also looks like it stepped up capital expenditure, CapEx, spending in 2005. Let's assume that free cash flow grows by 30% a year for the next three years, then grows 15% a year for the following three years, and then 10% a year thereafter. Further, let's assume that the business is sold at the end of that year for 10 to 15 times free cash flow plus any excess capital in the business. Triple BY has about $850 million in cash in the business presently. So, the intrinsic value of Triple BY is about $19 billion, and it can be bought at $10.7 billion. I'd say that's a pretty good deal, but look at my assumptions. They appear to be pretty aggressive. I'm assuming no hiccups in its execution, no change in consumer behavior, and the ability to grow revenues and cash flows pretty dramatically over the years. What if we made some more conservative assumptions? We can run the numbers with any assumptions. The company has not yet released numbers for the year ended February 28, 2006, but we do have nine months of data, through November 2005. We can compare November 2005 data to November 2004 data. Nine-month revenues increased from $3.7 billion to $4.1 billion from November 2004 to November 2005, and earnings increased from $324 million to $375 million. It looks like the top line is growing at only 10% annually and the bottom line by only 15% to 16%. If we assume that the bottom line growth rate declines by 1% a year, going from 15% to 5%, and its final sale price is 10 times 2015 free cash flow, the Triple BY's intrinsic value looks a bit different. Now we end up with an intrinsic value of $9.6 billion. Triple BY's current market cap is $10.7 billion. If we made the investment, we would end up with an annualized return of a little under 10%. If we have good low-risk alternatives where we can earn 10%, then Triple BY does not look like a good investment at all. So what is Triple BY's real intrinsic value? My best guess is that it lies somewhere between 8 to $18 billion. And in these calculations, I've assumed no dilution of stock via option grants, which might reduce intrinsic value further. With a present price tag of around $11 billion and an intrinsic value range of 8 to $18 billion, I'd not be especially enthused about this investment. There isn't that much upside and a fairly decent chance of delivering under 10% a year. For me, it's an easy pass. 
We're getting off track. The objective of this exercise is not to figure out whether to invest in triple BY stock. It is simply to demonstrate that while John Burr Williams' definition of intrinsic value is painfully simple, calculating it for a given business may not be so simple. I think of triple BY as a fairly straightforward, low-tech, and simple business to understand. Even with its simplicity, we end up with a pretty wide range on its intrinsic value. If we were to look at a business like Google, it starts getting very complicated. Google has undergone spectacular growth in revenues and cash flow over the past few years. If we extrapolate that into the future, the business appears to be trading at a big discount to its underlying intrinsic value. If we assume that not only is its growth rate likely to taper off, but that its core search business monopoly may be successfully challenged by Microsoft, Yahoo, or some upstart, the picture is quite different. In that scenario, the current valuation of Google might well be many times its underlying intrinsic value. The done-though way to deal with the dilemma is painfully simple. Only invest in businesses that are simple, ones where conservative assumptions about future cash flows are easy to figure out. What businesses are simple? Well, simplicity lies in the eye of the beholder. Papa Patel bought a business that's very easy to understand. The motel had long histories of revenues, cash flows, and profitability available for analysis. From that data, it is not too hard to get a ballpark range of estimated cash flow that the model is likely to generate in the future. Papa Patel also had a good handle on potential repairs and capital expenses that were likely to be required in the future based on the historical data and the condition of the property. Simplicity is a very powerful construct. Henry Thoreau recognized this when he said, Our life is frittered away by detail. Simplify, simplify. Einstein also recognized the power of simplicity, and it was the key to his breakthroughs in physics. He noted that the five ascending levels of intellect were smart, intelligent, brilliant, genius, simple. For Einstein, simplicity was simply the highest level of intellect. Everything about Warren Buffett's investment style is simple. It is the thinkers like Einstein and Buffett who fixate on simplicity, who triumph. The genius behind E equals MC squared is its simplicity and elegance. Everything about Dundo is simple, and therein lies its power. As we see in Chapter 15, the psychological warfare with our brains really gets heated after we buy a stock. The most potent weapon in your arsenal to fight these powerful forces is to buy painfully simple businesses with painfully simple theses for why you're likely to make a great deal of money and unlikely to lose much. I always write the thesis down. If it takes more than a short paragraph, there is a fundamental problem. If it requires me to fire up Excel, it is a big red flag that strongly suggests that I ought to take a pass. Chapter 8 Dundo 201 Invest in Distressed Businesses in Distressed Industries Efficient market theorists, EMTs, tell us that all known information about a given publicly traded business is reflected in its stock price. Thus, they proclaim that there isn't much to be gained by being a securities analyst and trying to figure out the intrinsic value of a given business. And with frictional costs thrown in, the EMTs believe stock picking is not just a zero-sum game, but rather a negative-sum game. 
Here are Mr. Buffett's replies to them. I'd be a bum on the street with a tin cup if the markets were always efficient. Investing in a market where people believe in efficiency is like playing bridge with someone who has been told it doesn't do any good to look at the cards. It has been helpful to me to have tens of thousands of students turned out of business schools taught that it didn't do any good to think. Current finance classes can help you do average. Warren Buffett Mr. Buffett has been cherry-picking stocks for 56 years and, from a standing start, has a fortune valued at over $40 billion today. Nonetheless, I mostly agree with the EMTs. Stock prices, in most instances, do reflect the underlying fundamentals. Trying to figure out the variance between prices and underlying intrinsic value, for most businesses, is usually a waste of time. The market is mostly efficient. However, there is a huge difference between mostly and fully efficient. It is this critical gap that is responsible for Mr. Buffett not being a street-corner bum. Buffett's 1988 letter to shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway has a wonderful section on EMTs. I strongly recommend reading it. All the shareholders' letters are archived on Berkshire Hathaway's website, and they are a treasure trove of wisdom. About EMTs, Buffett commented, Observing correctly that the markets were frequently efficient, academics and Wall Street pros went on to conclude incorrectly that it was always efficient. The difference between these propositions is night and day. Warren Buffett Markets aren't fully efficient because humans control its auction-driven pricing mechanism. Humans are subject to vacillating between extreme fear and extreme greed. When humans, as a group, are extremely fearful, the pricing of the underlying assets are likely to fall below intrinsic value. Extreme greed is likely to lead to exuberant pricing. If a business owner is extremely pessimistic and fearful about the future of his business and decides to sell it, it is likely to take him several months to get a sale consummated. In the meanwhile, the circumstances causing the fear may have abated, or, more likely, rational thinking is likely to have prevailed over time. In the case of the stock market, an individual investor in the same doom-and-gloom mindset would likely have unloaded his entire position in a few minutes. Hence, stock prices move around quite a bit more than the movement in underlying intrinsic value. Human psychology affects the buying and selling of fractions of businesses on the stock market much more than the buying and selling of entire businesses. Mr. Market, a creation of Benjamin Graham, lives in the stock market and is a very hyperactive and moody character. He's buying and selling tiny fractions of several thousand businesses every few seconds. The price at which Mr. Market buys or sells is not based on the intrinsic value of the underlying businesses. It is determined by his mood. Changes in his mood immediately result in price changes. Mr. Market's paramutual approach to setting prices could not be more different from the way prices are determined for the sale of entire businesses. With the rapid-fire trading of thousands of securities, every once in a while a few stocks might have a great deal of bad news come out. This sometimes leads to extreme fear and the wholesale unloading of these stocks. But when you sell a stock, there has to be a buyer at the other end, the buyers looking at the same bad news as you are. The only way such a sale gets consummated is at a deeply distressed price. Papa Patel, Manilal, and Mittal all made their fortunes by fixating on buying distressed businesses. Most of the time, 
They did it when the entire industry was severely wounded. The motel industry right after 9-11, or the bankruptcy-ridden steel industry in the 1980s and 1990s. The advantage we have over them is that our playing field is much larger. There are thousands of stocks whose prices wiggle around all day long. All we need to do is to first narrow the universe of candidate businesses down to ones that are understood well and are in a distressed state. How do we get a list of distressed businesses or industries? There are many sources, but here are six to begin with. 1. If you read the business headlines on a daily basis, you'll find plenty of stories about publicly traded businesses. Many of these news clips reflect negative news about a certain business or industry. For example, Tyco's stock collapsed when the Dennis Kozlowski scandal was front and center. Martha Stewart's prison sentence clobbered that stock. More recently, Mr. Spitzer's adventures with H&R Block have led to significant declines in its stock price. These are all headline stories. 2. Value Line publishes a weekly summary of the stocks that have lost the most value in the preceding 13 weeks. It is another terrific indicator of distress. This list of 40 stocks routinely shows price drops of 20% to 70% over that period. The ones with the largest drops are likely the most distressed. It also has a summary every week of the stocks with the lowest price-to-earnings ratios, PDEs, widest discount to book value, highest dividend yield, and so on. Not all these businesses are distressed, but if a business is trading at a PDE of 3, it is worth a closer look. 3. There is a publication called Portfolio Reports www.portfoliorreports.com that is published monthly. It lists the 10 most recent stock purchases by 80 of the top value managers. It gleans this information from the various filings that institutional investors are required by law to make. Portfolio Reports lists the buying patterns of such luminaries as Seth Klarman of Baupost, Lou Simpson of Geico, Marty Whitman of Third Avenue, Peter Kundal of the Kundal Group, Bruce Sherman of Private Capital Management, and Warren Buffett. These managers aren't 100% focused on distressed situations, but they are focused on value. Distressed situations are a subset of value investing, so some of their investments fall into the distressed category. 4. If you'd like to avoid the subscription price tag for portfolio reports, then much of that data can be gleaned by looking directly at the public filings, for example, SEC Form 13-F, that institutional investors have to make. These can be accessed on the Edgar system, http colon forward slash forward slash access.edgar-online.com. Alternatively, www.nasdaq.com provides much of the data in condensed form. To get to the data, on the nasdaq.com main page, Enter any one ticker symbol of a holding you think one of the value-investing stars holds. I know Marty Whitman of 3rd Avenue has owned Tahone Ranch, TRC, for many years. So enter TRC and click on Info Quotes, then click on Holdings slash Insiders, then click on Total Number of Holders. Now click on 3rd Avenue Management, and you get a listing of virtually everything 3rd Avenue owns in U.S. stocks. You can do a Google search to get the name of the one ticker you need. For example, if I enter Longleaf 13F into the Google search field, I get links to many of its holdings. 
I can use any one ticker on Nasdaq.com to get to virtually all its U.S. holdings. 5. Take a look at Value Investors Club, VIC, www.valueinvestorsclub.com. It is a wonderful website started and managed by Joel Greenblatt of Gotham Capital. Greenblatt has perhaps the best audited record of any unleveraged investor on the planet over the past 20 years, a compounded annualized return of 40%. We delve more into Greenblatt and his Dundo approach later in the book. Value Investors Club has about 250 members, each of whom had to get approved for membership by presenting a good investment idea. These members are required to post at least two ideas a year. The quality of these ideas is decent as they are peer-rated. If a member presents shoddy ideas, he or she is likely to lose membership privileges. Every week the best idea, judged by VIC management, gets $5,000. The primary benefit of membership is the ability to access ideas in real time. However, as a guest, you can access the same content with a two-month delay. It is very much worth looking through VIC for distressed situations. Start with the highest-rated ideas and work downward from there. 6. Last, but certainly not least, please read The Little Book That Beats the Market by Joel Greenblatt. After reading the book, visit www.magicformulainvesting.com. Like Portfolio Reports or VIC, not all the stocks on the Magic Formula website are distressed, but a meaningful number are. We delve further into the magic formula later. Between these sources, there are now a plethora of candidate distressed businesses to examine. How can we ever get our arms around all of them? Well, we don't. We begin by eliminating all businesses that are either not simple businesses or fall squarely outside our circle of competence. What's left is a very small handful of simple, well-understood businesses under distress. We are now ready to apply the rest of the Dundo framework to this select group. Chapter 9 Dundo 202 Invest in Businesses with Durable Moats As we saw in the barbershop arbitrage example, our barber is initially the only game in town. He is thus able to charge significantly more than the barbers in the neighboring towns and make supernormal profits. Capitalism is greed-driven, and as barbers in the other towns get word of the spectacular opportunities in Town C, they rush to open up barbershops. Over time, the price to get a trim in Town C is no different from Town A or Town B. Capitalists strive hard to capitalize on any opportunity to make outsized profits. The irony is that, in that pursuit, they usually destroy all outsized profits. But, every once in a while, a business with a secret sauce for enduring outsized profits emerges. Take, for example, one of my favorite restaurants, Chipotle. Whenever I go there, there is usually a line all the way to the door. In spite of the fact that there is this long line and I live in Southern California with a plethora of choices for Mexican food, I remain loyal to Chipotle. Why? Well, partly it's the fresh, high-quality ingredients, partly it's the tasty food, partly the ambiance, and partly the ability to precisely decide which ingredients I want and in what quantity. All the other Mexican and fast-food restaurant owners in town are fully aware of the Chipotle phenomenon. They hate it and want to do something about it, but they can't, 
not easily anyway. It would be a significant uphill battle to replicate Chipotle. I'm sure many will try and eventually a few might succeed, but in the meanwhile, Chipotle is likely to continue to thrive for years on end. When more players enter the market, they are likely to take customers away from other restaurants rather than Chipotle. From a standing start just 13 years ago, Chipotle recently opened its 500th restaurant. It could easily grow 10 times or more from its present footprint, not to mention its enormous prospects overseas. Chipotle has a durable moat. This durable moat causes customers like me to continue to go there, regardless of the weight. This moat allows Chipotle to have the ability to earn supernormal profits. Best I can tell, those profits are here to stay, at least for the next decade or longer. There are businesses with deep moats all around us. American Express, Coca-Cola, H&R Block, Citigroup, BMW, Harley-Davidson, WD-40, Nabisco's Oreo Cookies, the list is endless. There are businesses with shallow or non-existent moats all around us as well. Delta Airlines, General Motors, Cooper Tires, Encyclopedia Britannica, Gateway Computers, and so on. Sometimes the moat is hidden. Take a look at Tesoro Corporation. It is in the oil refining business, which is a commodity. Tesoro has no control over the price of its principal raw material, crude oil. It has no control over the principal finished good, gasoline. Nonetheless, it has a fine moat. Tesoro's refineries are primarily on the West Coast and Hawaii. Refining on the West Coast is a great business with a good moat. There hasn't been a refinery built in the United States for the past 20 years. Over that period, the number of refineries has gone down from 220 to 150, while oil demand has gone up about 2% a year. The average U.S. refinery is operating at well over 90% of capacity. Anytime you have a surge in demand, refining margins escalate because there is just not enough capacity. West Coast refiners also have a good moat because state EPA regulations in California and Hawaii are very stringent and require unique formulations. Refining on the West Coast and Hawaii carries much higher margins than the rest of the country. A refiner in Texas cannot easily serve the California market. The California refiner is the one that usually serves the California market, which means that when Tesoro has a refinery in California, it has a very large captive market. In the overwhelming majority of businesses, the various moats are mostly hidden or only in partial view. It takes some digging to get to the moat. How do we know when a business has a hidden moat and what that moat is? The answer is usually visible from looking at its financial statements. Good businesses with good moats, like our barber, generate high returns on invested capital. The balance sheet tells us the amount of capital deployed in the business. The income and cash flow statements tell us how much they are earning off that capital. So, if a Chipotle store costs $700,000 to open and it generates $250,000 a year in free cash flow, it's a damn good business. Every three years, it can take that cash flow and open another Chipotle. When it starts franchising, the return on invested capital is exponentially higher. Throughout history, kings have sought to build heavily fortified castles with ever-widening and deeper moats. At the same time, the marauding invaders continued to attack unabated and have endlessly improved the tools, 
techniques and armies at their disposal to capture these prize castles. It is virtually a law of nature that no matter how well fortified and defended a castle is, no matter how wide or deep its moat is, no matter how many sharks or piranha are in that moat, eventually it is going to fall to the marauding invaders. Throughout history, every great civilization and kingdom has eventually declined. The businesses mentioned earlier as having narrow or non-existent moats, Delta, Gateway, General Motors, all had pretty formidable moats at one time. They have all eroded over time, just like the most well-defended castle eventually falls into the enemy's hand. Here is Charlie Munger's take on it. Of the 50 most important stocks on the New York Stock Exchange in 1911, today only one, General Electric, remains in business. That's how powerful the forces of competitive destruction are. Over the very long term, history shows that the chances of any business surviving in a manner agreeable to a company's owners are slim at best. Charlie Munger There is no such thing as a permanent moat. Even such invincible businesses today like eBay, Google, Microsoft, Toyota, and American Express will all eventually decline and disappear. Some moats are more durable than others. Wells Fargo and American Express were founded over 150 years ago, and amazingly, both their moats are as robust as ever today. Amazingly, as an aside, both American Express and Wells Fargo were founded by the same person, Henry Wells. But here is the dilemma. If you were picking stocks a century ago, it would have been virtually impossible to pick these two out of the large available universe. The odds are very high that, even if the ones you picked were the bluest of the blue chips, they would eventually wither away. In 1997, Ari de Gush wrote a fascinating book called The Living Company. Gush studied the life expectancy of companies of all sizes and was very surprised to find that the average Fortune 500 company had a life expectancy of just 40 to 50 years. It takes about 25 to 30 years from formation for a highly successful company to earn a spot in the Fortune 500. Gush found that it typically takes many blue chips less than 20 years after they get on the list to cease to exist. The average Fortune 500 business is already past its prime by the time it gets on the list. Even businesses with durable moats don't last forever. Thus, when using John Burr Williams's intrinsic value formula, we ought to limit the number of years we expect the business to thrive. We are best off never calculating a discounted cash flow stream for longer than 10 years or expecting a sale in year 10 to be anything greater than 15 times cash flows at that time, plus any excess capital in the business. Chapter 10 Dundo 301 Few Bets Big bets, infrequent bets. Let's assume you were offered the following odds on a $1 bet. 80% chance of winning $21. 10% chance of winning $7.50. 10% chance of losing it all. Let's further assume that you had $10,000 to your name, and you were allowed to bet as much of that bankroll as you wanted. How much of that $10,000 would you be willing to put at stake to play this game once? The answer is clearly not $10,000, as there is a solid 10% chance of being in the poorhouse. 
Betting one dollar seems too conservative. It isn't going to move the needle. The good news is that exactly fifty years ago, a researcher at Bell Labs in New Jersey, Mr. John Larry Kelly Jr., pondered this question and published his findings. Kelly came up with what is now known as the Kelly formula. Kelly calculated that the optimal fraction of your bankroll to bet on a favorable bet is edge divided by odds equals fraction of your bankroll you should bet each time. There is a wonderful book written by William Poundstone entitled Fortune's Formula that is well worth reading. Poundstone describes the Kelly formula beautifully. Michael Mobison of Leg Mason recently wrote a paper on the Kelly formula where he used the following illustration. Assume you're offered a coin toss where heads means you get $2 and tails costs you $1. How much of your bankroll should you bet if you're offered these odds? According to the Kelly formula, the edge is 50 cents. 0 0.5 times $2 plus 0 0.5 times negative $1. The odds are what you win, if you win, or $2. So the Kelly formula suggests you bet 25%. 50 cents divided by $2 each time. The first example involves more than two outcomes. For a detailed treatise on how to calculate the Kelly bet size for such bets, go to www.cisiova.com forward slash betsize.asp. This website not only gives the general case Kelly formula, but the author has generously programmed the formula for use by anyone at no charge. The interested reader may also wish to read Edward Thorpe's paper, The Kelly Criterion in Blackjack, Sports Betting, and the Stock Market. For the first example, the answer is 89.4% of your $10,000 bankroll, or $8,940. Papa Patel had likely never heard of the Kelly formula. In Chapter 1, we noted that when Papa Patel invested $5,000 in his first motel, he pretty much bet it all on this investment. The odds in the aforementioned example are roughly the odds Papa Patel was offered, an 80% chance of having a 21-bagger, a 10% chance of a 7.5-bagger, and a 10% chance of going broke. In reality, Papa Patel was more conservative in his bet than the Kelly formula suggested. He bet 50% of his bankroll. He did have $5,000 to his name and bet it all, but... He had that ace in the hole, the ability to go back, take a job, save $5,000, and try again in a few years. He likely would not do this endlessly, because each time he gets older and gets dissuaded from the endless bitter experiences. Because Dundo is so deeply rooted in his psyche, he's got at least two bets in him. He puts 50% of his bankroll at risk on the first bet. If it works, he does not place a second bet. If it fails, he places a second bet. Winning the first bet changes the world around him. His family no longer lives in the motel. They have hired help and can buy a bigger motel. When he now buys another motel, and hence places his second bet, it's with a smaller percentage of his bankroll because the odds are no longer as good. Even if the odds were simply a 50% probability of a 200% return and a 50% probability of a total loss, the Kelly formula suggests that he ought to bet 25% of his bankroll. Historically, the motel business odds have been vastly superior than the aforementioned. 
The probability of a loss has likely been well under 25%, and the probability of a 100% loss is well under 5%. The Patels have not been shy about putting up large portions of their bankroll on these mouth-watering odds when they place their second, third, and nth bet. They hadn't heard of Kelly or his formula, but it made perfect dundo sense to them. The result is that Patels, as a group, today own over $40 billion in motel assets, pay over $725 million a year in taxes, and employ nearly a million people. In a speech at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business, Charlie Munger said, The wise ones bet heavily when the world offers them that opportunity. They bet big when they have the odds, and the rest of the time, they don't. It's just that simple. Charlie Munger Papa Patel, Manilal, Mittal, and yours truly have always fixated on making very few bets, and each bet is pretty large. All have tried to place bets when the odds were heavily in our favor. This betting lingo is deliberate. To be a good capital allocator, you have to think probabilistically. The most obvious business model entirely based on overt probabilities is a casino. Connoisseurs of blackjack know that the odds change with every card that is dealt. They are always fixating on trying to figure out when the odds are with them and raising their bets accordingly. As blackjack is played today in casinos, the overall odds are soundly with the house, and playing blackjack at a casino is a losing proposition. I have to admit that this hasn't stopped me yet. But it wasn't always a losing proposition. In the 1960s, the MIT math professor, Ed Thorpe, used MIT's computers to run a variety of calculations and came up with optimized blackjack play. Thorpe named the optimal play of cards Basic Strategy. He wrote the best-selling book, Beat the Dealer. It is, even today, regarded as a classic work and blackjack players the world over rely on basic strategy to optimize their card play. In the 1960s, casinos offered single-deck blackjack and dealt the entire deck. Thorpe calculated that the players who counted cards and scaled their bets based on the residual cards left in the deck had an edge over the casinos. He used the Kelly formula to figure out how much of your bankroll you ought to bet each time based on how favorable the odds were. For example, if the deck had an overrepresentation of tens and aces, that was good for the player. If the odds were 52 to 48 in favor of the player, the Kelly formula suggested that the player bet 4% of his bankroll. That's what Thorpe would endeavor to do with every hand. For Thorpe, this wasn't an academic exercise. He started frequenting the Nevada casinos and cleaned up. The casinos didn't understand why he was consistently winning, but, with the mob running the casinos, they didn't wait to understand. They simply showed him the door and made it very clear that if he ever returned, the reception wouldn't be so civil. When Thorpe published Beat the Dealer, players the world over started cleaning up. Casino owners also read Thorpe's book and began to make changes to the game. Over the past four decades, the game has gone through numerous changes. Each time the casinos made a change, some smart gambler would figure out a way to beat the system. Then the casinos would figure it out and make another change. Today, most casinos deal from a shoe of six to eight decks. They don't play the last couple of decks, and pit bosses watch the action like hawks. In some casinos, 
Auto shufflers recycle the used cards back in real time, ensuring that the card pool never has an over- or under-representation of any specific cards. Thorpe reflected on this changing reality, along with the onerous threats, and decided that he'd be far better off if he applied his talents to a casino where there were no table limits, the offered odds were vastly better, the house was civil about taking large losses, the mob wasn't running the casino. He found that such a casino existed, and it was the New York Stock Exchange, NYSE, and the fledgling options market. Rumor has it that Thorpe figured out something along the lines of the Black-Scholes formula years before Black and Scholes did. He decided not to publish his findings. The Black-Scholes formula is, effectively, basic strategy for the options market. It dictates what a specific option ought to be priced at. Because he was one of the only players armed with this knowledge, Thorpe could buy underpriced options and sell overpriced ones, making a killing in the process. Thorpe set up a hedge fund, Princeton Newport Partners. Over a 20-year span, the professor delivered 20% annualized returns to his investors with ultra-low volatility. One of his potential investors was actor Paul Newman. Newman once asked Thorpe how much he could make playing blackjack full-time. Thorpe could still beat the casinos with his skilled card counting and replied that it would be about $300,000 a year. Newman then asked him why he wasn't pursuing it. Thorpe looked at him and said that the NYSE and options market casinos made him over $6 million a year with minuscule risk. Why pursue $300,000 and take on added risk to life and limb? In investing, there is no such thing as a sure bet. Even the most blue-chip business on the planet has a probability of not being in business tomorrow. Investing is all about the odds, just like blackjack. Thorpe is the most vivid example of a human who has mastered these concepts fully. He has repeatedly played the odds on the Strip and Wall Street over the decades and won handsomely on both fronts, creating a huge fortune for himself and his investors. When an investor approaches the equity markets, it has to be with the same mindset that Thorpe had when he played blackjack. If the odds are overwhelmingly in your favor, bet heavily. Let's assume that you have adopted the Dundo framework and have found an existing publicly traded company with a simple business model. Further, it happens to be a business under temporary distress, and this has led to a collapse in its stock price. The best part, it's a good business with a durable moat. The business is squarely within your circle of competence and you figured out its intrinsic value today and two to three years out. You found that the current stock price is less than half of the expected intrinsic value in two to three years. What would cause your stock to reach its intrinsic value in a few years at most? Senator William Fulbright fixated on this question and asked Benjamin Graham about it during one of the more interesting exchanges in a U.S. Senate Banking and Commerce Committee hearing on March 11, in 1955. Fulbright. One other question, and I will desist. When you find a special situation, and you decide, just for illustration, that you can buy for $10, and it's worth $30, and you take a position, and then you cannot realize it until a lot of other people decide it is worth $30, how is that process brought about? By advertising? Or what happens? What causes a cheap stock to find its value? Graham. That is one of the mysteries of our business. 
and it is a mystery to me as well as to everybody else. But we know from experience that eventually the market catches up with value. Whenever there is a dislocating event like 9-11 or Pearl Harbor, stock prices can be severely impacted in the short term, but they tend to bounce back over time. Nine events all led to double-digit declines in the Dow in a few days or weeks. However, a few months later, the Dow had recovered most, if not all, of the decline. Business-specific micro-events for businesses, like the Tylenol scare, the Exxon Valdez oil spill, or the American Express salad oil crisis in the 1960s, have similar traits. They all led to big instantaneous drops as panic and fear set in. Over time, as rationality prevailed, prices did recover to more rational levels. Similarly, if you invest in any under- or overpriced business, it will eventually trade around its intrinsic value, leading to an appropriate profit or loss. We can pretty much treat this as a law of investing and hang our hat on it. Thus, if we can determine the intrinsic value of a given business two to three years out and can acquire a stake in that business at a deep discount to its value, profits are all but assured. In determining the amount to bet, the Kelly formula is a useful guide. The American Express Salad Oil Crisis Betting heavily when the odds are overwhelmingly in your favor is something to which Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have always subscribed. In November 1963, Mr. Buffett invested 40% of the Buffett Partnership's assets into a single business, American Express, Amex, where he had no control or say. Because virtually his entire liquid net worth was in the Buffett Partnership, he had effectively put 40% of his personal liquid net worth into Amex. At the time, the Buffett Partnership had about $17.5 million under management. Thus, about $7 million was invested in buying the stock of American Express, which had seen its stock price cut in half just before Buffett's large purchase. American Express had been hit hard by the salad oil crisis, the company had lent $60 million against collateral that consisted of a warehouse full of vats of salad oil. It later found that the vats contained mostly seawater, and its shady borrower was bankrupt. American Express announced the $60 million loss, and its stock price was instantly cut in half. At the time, with a total market capitalization of about $150 million, the $60 million was a huge hit to Amex's fledgling balance sheet. Mr. Buffett analyzed the situation carefully and concluded that, as long as the trust associated with American Express Traveler's Checks and Charge Cards was unaffected, the company's intrinsic value was significantly higher than the current price at which it was being offered. Seeing virtually no downside and a massive upside, he placed the largest bet he's ever placed. He effectively bet 40% of his net worth on a scandal-ridden business making negative headlines daily. What were the odds that this bet offered? If we knew the odds, we could apply the Kelly formula and see if the bet made sense. I don't believe that question has ever been answered directly by Mr. Buffett, but there are some clues in his letters to partners from 1964 to 1967. We might invest up to 40% of our net worth in a single security under conditions coupling an extremely high probability that our facts and reasoning are correct, 
with a very low probability that anything could change the underlying value of the investment. We are obviously only going to go to 40% in very rare situations. This rarity, of course, is what makes it necessary that we concentrate so heavily when we see such an opportunity. We probably have had only five or six situations in the nine-year history of the partnerships where we have exceeded 25%. Any such situations are going to have to promise very significant superior performance. They are also going to have to possess such superior qualitative and or quantitative factors that the chance of serious permanent loss is minimal. In selecting the limit to which I will go in any one investment, I attempt to reduce to a tiny figure the probability that the single investment can produce a result for our portfolio that would be more than 10 percentage points poorer than the Dow. Warren Buffett Note the language that Mr. Buffett uses. He is not talking about sure bets. Every investment has a probability of a loss. He fixated on the odds and did not hesitate in placing large bets when the odds were overwhelmingly in his favor. Mr. Buffett generated a three- or four-bagger return on his American Express investment over three years. Based on the available facts, let's assume the conservative odds of this bet are as follows. Odds of a 200% or greater return in three years, 90%. Odds of a break-even return in three years, 5%. Odds of a loss of up to 10% in three years, 4%. Odds of a total loss on the investment, 1%. Based on these odds, the Kelly formula would suggest betting 98.3% of the partnership's assets of the fund. Mr. Buffett stayed well within the maximum suggested and placed a few other highly favorable bets with the rest of the assets. In the light of these logical facts, it is indeed amazing that the average mutual fund has 77 positions. More important, their top 10 holdings represent just 25% of assets. Over one-third of mutual funds have greater than 100 positions each. It is no wonder that 80-plus percent of mutual funds consistently lag the S&P 500 index. It is also no wonder that fewer than 1 in 200 mutual funds delivers long-term annualized performance that beats the S&P 500 by 3% or more. Dundo is all about placing few bets, big bets, infrequent bets, and the Kelly formula supports this hypothesis. This approach works exceedingly well in making passive investments in the stock market. Finally, as Charlie Munger frequently says, invert, always invert. As we examine the investment record of those who place many bets, small bets, and frequent bets, the results are predictably pathetic. Here are some salient observations about the Kelly formula. Because the formula suggests the maximum bet we ought to make, it optimizes the time it takes a better to reach our wealth goals. No other approach can get you there faster without increasing the odds of a total wipeout. If you overbet what Kelly suggests, it is all but assured that with enough repeated bets, you will end up with nothing. Using the Kelly formula may lead to relatively high volatility. The formula optimizes just one variable, the maximization of wealth in the least amount of time. It is agnostic on volatility. Volatility can be tamed by underbetting the Kelly formula maximum, but this comes at a price of suboptimal capital allocation.
In the real world of portfolio management, an investment manager may have eight non-correlated favorable bets available simultaneously. Let's say the Kelly formula suggested betting a certain percentage of your bankroll on each bet. Since the manager can only invest 100% of an unlevered portfolio, the allocations he or she might make are a bit different. This looks pretty similar to the allocations Munger and Buffett likely have done historically when they were running their partnerships. It is also similar to the allocations Joel Greenblatt and Eddie Lampert do today. For Greenblatt, typically 80% of his assets have always been invested in five of his best ideas. The top five bets make up 77% of the portfolio. Allocations go a long way toward handling the volatility problem. These bets are significantly below the Kelly maximum. Because they are heavily non-correlated, the underlying volatility is likely to be significantly tempered, especially if we look at it year over year. The Buffett partnership has never had a down year, in spite of placing large Kelly-type bets. As far as I know, neither has Greenblatt or Lampert. All three have always placed few, big, and infrequent bets, and one big without high volatility. Another point worth noting is that we can be off on the probabilities. Anytime we are trying to compute odds for the way the future of a given business is likely to unfold, it is, at best, an approximation. We try to adjust for this by ascribing conservative odds. It might well be that our eight bets all have very favorable odds, but that bet six actually has better odds than bet three. Since all odds are based on our circle of competence, and our view of how the world works, it is error-prone. In my own portfolios at Pabrai Funds, I adjust for this by simply placing bets at 10% of assets for each bet. It is suboptimal, but it takes care of the bet 6 being superior to bet 2 problem. Many times, the bottom 3 to 4 bets outperform the ones I felt the best about. In aggregate, among the 10 positions, the results have been quite satisfactory. Even though it's not as good as having 80% of assets in 5 stocks, it's still heavily concentrated. And 7 to 10 ideas do make up 80 plus percent of the portfolio. Investing is just like gambling. It's all about the odds. Looking out for mispriced betting opportunities and betting heavily when the odds are overwhelmingly in your favor is the ticket to wealth. It's all about letting the Kelly formula dictate the upper bounds of these large bets. Further, because of multiple favorable betting opportunities available in the equity markets, the volatility surrounding the Kelly formula can be naturally tamed while still running a very concentrated portfolio. Chapter 11 Dundo 302 Fixate on Arbitrage Arbitrage is a powerful construct and a fundamental tool in the arsenal of any value investor. With arbitrage, we get decent returns with virtually no risk. The elimination of downside risk, even if upside is limited, is awesome. And that's exactly what arbitrage gives us. With arbitrage, the appeal is, heads I win, tails I break even or win. Although many different forms of arbitrage exist, compare these four. 1. Traditional Commodity Arbitrage if gold is trading in London at $600 per ounce and is changing hands at $610 per ounce in New York City, an arbitrageur can buy in London and immediately sell in New York 
capturing the spread. Over time, these trades will lead to the spread being dramatically narrowed or eliminated. 2. Correlated Stock Arbitrage Berkshire Hathaway has two classes of stock, BRKA and BRKB, which trade on the New York Stock Exchange, NYSE. BRKB is economically worth one-thirtieth of BRKA. One BRKB share has one two-hundredth the voting rights of a BRKA share, so it is slightly inferior as it has less than one-sixth of the voting power for the same dollars invested. Other than that, these two stocks are virtually identical. Also, since Mr. Buffett and his close friends have large enough BRKA holdings to control the company, these voting right differences are mostly irrelevant. BRKA shares can be converted into BRKB shares at the discretion of the holder at any time. However, the holder cannot do the reverse. Based on these facts, these two stocks should trade in lockstep with each other, or perhaps BRKB ought to trade at a very slight discount due to its inferior voting rights and one-way conversion features. However, reality is different. During a recent three-month period, BRKB traded mostly at a discount to BRKA for a few weeks and then traded at a premium for a few weeks. On some days, the two stocks differed by up to 1%. Assuming minimal frictional costs, an arbitrageur could endeavor to capture that spread. This type of arbitrage exists in a variety of stocks. Sometimes holding company stocks trade at a discount to a sum of the parts even if the parts are individually publicly traded. Sometimes the same stock on different exchanges can have price differences. Closed-end funds from time to time trade at significant discounts to their underlying assets. All are candidates for arbitrage plays. 3. Merger Arbitrage Public Company A announces it is to buy Public Company B for $15 a share. Prior to the announcement, B was trading at $10 a share. Immediately after the announcement, B goes to $14 a share. If an investor buys B at $14 and holds the stock until the deal closes, then the $1 spread can be captured for a tidy profit in a few months. However, there is always some risk that the deal does not close. In that case, B's stock price might head back down to $10 or lower. Unlike other forms of arbitrage discussed earlier, this is not risk-free. It is sometimes called risk arbitrage. There are well-documented statistics on percentages of announced mergers that never close, don't get government approval, don't get shareholder approval, or the like. If you understand the business in these dynamics, you can handicap the odds of the deal closing and decide to place a bet or not accordingly. 4. Dundo Arbitrage Virtually all startups engage in Dundo Arbitrage. An example of this is presented in Chapter 5. Our barber set up shop in Town C and had a 17-mile arbitrage between him and the next barber. Over time, this 17-mile distance likely was reduced to a few blocks and the arbitrage mostly disappeared. However, while it lasted, he had super-normal profits. He got these profits by taking very little risk. It was low risk and high uncertainty that got him his bounty. The barber is a classic dundo arbitrageur. Heads he wins, tails he doesn't lose much. The overwhelming majority of entrepreneurs are not risk-takers. They are dundo arbitrage players.
One of the most vivid examples of these Dundo arbitrage entrepreneurial journeys is the story of CompuLink, documented by Amar Bide in his wonderful book, The Origin and Evolution of New Businesses. In 1984, CompuLink was founded by two 20-year-olds, Steve Shevlin and Robert Wilkin. Shevlin was the main driver of the business. A college dropout, Shevlin, entered the army where he trained and worked as an electronics technician. He didn't care too much for the military's uptight attitude. After a brief stint, he left the army. Shevlin was unemployed and without much money. He lived in a tiny studio apartment in Florida. It was the very early days of the personal computer, PC, business, and Shevlin, being a hacker type, had a computer and a printer in his studio. The ideal setup required the printer to be placed away from the PC, and he needed a 20-foot cable to connect them. He went to a shop that sold printer cables and computer accessories and asked if they had the long cable he needed. At that time, when PCs were very new, the interfaces for all these cables were not universal or standard as they are today. There was a hodgepodge of different cabling and socket standards. The retailer said he had the cable, but it was only seven feet long. He suggested daisy-chaining three cables and adding some special connectors to make it all work. Shevlin was not happy with the total price or nature of the proposed solution. He went back to his studio and thought about the situation. He came back to the retailer and said that he had been a tech in the army and knew how to make PC cables. He offered to make and sell cables in a variety of lengths to the retailer. The retailer said that he was used to getting all sorts of requests for cables of different lengths that he did not have an ability to procure or provide. Nonetheless, the retailer was hesitant about taking inventory risk on unbranded cables as some of the inventory might become obsolete quickly. Shevlin offered to give it to him on consignment. The retailer said that on a consignment basis, he'd stock anything. So Shevlin was in business, with the first customer lined up. Shevlin and Wilkin carefully noted all the missing cable lengths and connectors that people might want. They bought 300 feet of cable and all the hardware to make the various connectors and went to work. They made various odd-length cables and delivered them to the retailer who was elated. These cables cost about two to three dollars a piece to make. They gave them to the retailer at about sixteen dollars a piece, which was very competitive with the other shorter lengths. The retailer put them for sale at over thirty dollars. Everyone was happy with the healthy margins. They started to get more retailers to carry their cables, and sales grew significantly over the next few months. Then sales started falling. The retailer said that they no longer needed the CompuLink cables, as their primary vendor had come up with those lengths, and the incumbent had a better brand and packaging. Shevlin was very disappointed and spent some time thinking. He realized that PC and printer manufacturers are continuously coming up with new models of printers and new models of computers and other devices that need to be connected. Every few months, CompuLink changed large portions of its product line as competitors entered the fray. Shevlin was always running about three to six months ahead of his big competitors in introducing cables because he was nimble and focused. The competitors were slower because they were larger companies, and it took time to roll out new products. Shevlin would get the new cables into distribution channels, scoop in all the supernormal profits as a monopolist, milk it for three to six months, and then be told that he was either being replaced by the mainstream vendor or had to drop prices. They did exceptionally well with their lowly Dundo arbitrage, 
and became an Inc. 500 company in 1989, one of the fastest-growing businesses in the United States. They literally were the ultimate business arbitrage model, one where super-normal profits were totally free but lasted just a few months. They were good at dealing with uncertainty. Low risk, high uncertainty, and arbitrage are the core fundamentals of how good entrepreneurs operate. As computer interfaces began to get standardized, CompuLink's original arbitrage spread all but vanished. It continued to evolve and morph, always looking to exploit an offering gap. It did find such a gap in complex cable installations. Today, CompuLink has 600 employees doing mostly cable installation services. This spread, too, has narrowed, but in the meanwhile, it has built brand and reputation. It's likely CompuLink will continue to thrive, at least for several more years before this gap closes, due to technology changes or more intense competition. For Geico Insurance, the arbitrage spread is its focus on selling auto insurance policies without agents or a branch office network. Unlike Allstate or State Farm, it does not have a captive branch and agent network. State Farm and Allstate have thousands of neighborhood agents all over the United States. Each of these offices is typically independently owned by a commissioned agent. This distribution overhead costs at least 15% of the premium. Nothing, Harry lied. They stopped to buy parchment and quills. Harry cheered up a bit when he found a bottle of ink that changed colour as you wrote. When they had left the shop, he said, Hagrid, what's Quidditch? Blimey, Harry, I keep forgetting how little you know. Not knowing about Quidditch. Don't make me feel worse, said Harry. He told Hagrid about the pale boy and Madame Malkins. And he said people from muggle families shouldn't even be allowed in. You're not from a muggle family. If he'd known who ye were, he's grown up knowing your name if his parents are wizarding folk. You saw him in the leaky cauldron? Anyway, what does he know about it? Some of the best I ever saw were the only ones with magic in them in a long line of muggles. Look at your mum. Look what she had for a sister. So what is Quidditch? That's a sport. Wizard sport. It's like, like football in the muggle world. Everyone follows Quidditch, played up in the air on broomsticks, and there's four balls. Sort of hard to explain the rules. And what are Slytherin and Hufflepuff? Schoolhouses. There's four. Everyone says Hufflepuff for a lot of duffers, but... I bet I'm in Hufflepuff, said Harry gloomily. Better Hufflepuff than Slytherin, said Hagrid darkly. There's not a single witch or wizard who went bad who wasn't in Slytherin. You-know-who was one. Vol, uh, sorry, you-know-who was at Hogwarts? Years and years ago, said Hagrid. They bought Harry's schoolbooks in a shop called Flourish and Blots, where the shelves were stacked to the ceiling with books as large as paving stones bound in leather, books the size of postage stamps in covers of silk, books full of peculiar symbols, and a few books with nothing in them at all. Even Dudley, who never read anything, would have been wild to get his hands on some of these. Hagrid almost had to drag Harry away from curses and counter-curses, bewitch your friends and befuddle your enemies with the latest revenges, hair loss, jelly legs, tongue-tying, and much, much more, by Professor Vindictus Viridian. I was trying to find out how to curse Dudley. 
I'm not saying that's not a good idea, but you're not to use magic in a muggle world except in very special circumstances, said Hagrid. And anyway, you couldn't work any of them curses yet. You'll need a lot more study before you get to that level. Hagrid wouldn't let Harry buy a solid gold cauldron either. It says pewter on your list. But they got a nice set of scales for weighing potion ingredients and a collapsible brass telescope. Then they visited the apothecary, which was fascinating enough to make up for its horrible smell, a mixture of bad eggs and rotted cabbages. Barrels of slimy stuff stood on the floor. Jars of herbs, dried roots and bright powders lined the walls. Bundles of feathers, strings of fangs and snarled claws hung from the ceiling. While Hagrid asked the man behind the counter for a supply of some basic potion ingredients for Harry, Harry himself examined silver unicorn horns at twenty-one galleons each and minuscule glittery black beetle eyes, five knuts a scoop. Outside the apothecary, Hagrid checked Harry's list again. Just your wand left? Oh, yeah, and I still haven't got your birthday present. Harry felt himself go red. You, you don't have to. I know I don't have to. Tell you what, I'll get your animal. Not a toad. Toads went out of fashion years ago. You'd be laughed at. And I don't like cats. They make me sneeze. I'll get you an owl. All the kids want owls. They're dead useful. Carry your post and everything. Twenty minutes later, they left Ilop's Owl Emporium, which had been dark and full of rustling and flickering jewel-bright eyes. Harry now carried a large cage, which held a beautiful snowy owl, fast asleep with her head under her wing. He couldn't stop stammering his thanks, sounding just like Professor Quirrell. Oh, don't mention it, said Hagrid gruffly. Don't expect you've had a lot of presents from them Dursleys. Just Ollivander's left now. Only place for wands, Ollivander's, and you've got to have the best wand. A magic wand. This was what Harry had been really looking forward to. The last shop was narrow and shabby. Peeling gold letters over the door read, Ollivanders, makers of fine wands since 382 B.C. A single wand lay on a faded purple cushion in the dusty window. A tinkling bell rang somewhere in the depths of the shop as they stepped inside. It was a tiny place, empty except for a single spindly chair, which Hagrid sat on to wait. Harry felt strangely as though he had entered a very strict library. He swallowed a lot of new questions which had just occurred to him, and looked instead at the thousands of narrow boxes piled neatly right up to the ceiling. For some reason, the back of his neck prickled. The very dust and silence in here seemed to tingle with some secret magic. "'Good afternoon,' said a soft voice. Harry jumped. Hagrid must have jumped too, because there was a loud crunching noise, and he got quickly off the spindly chair. An old man was standing before them, his wide, pale eyes shining like moons through the gloom of the shop. Hello, said Harry, awkwardly. Ah, yes, said the man. Yes, yes. I thought I'd be seeing you soon. Harry Potter. It wasn't a question. You have your mother's eyes. It seems only yesterday she was in her herself buying her first wand. Ten and a quarter inches long, swishy, made of willow. Nice wand for charm work. 
Mr. Ollivander moved closer to Harry. Harry wished he would blink. Those silvery eyes were a bit creepy. Your father, on the other hand, favoured a mahogany wand. Eleven inches, pliable, little more power, and excellent for transfiguration. Well, I say your father favoured it. It's really the wand that chooses the wizard, of course. Mr. Ollivander had come so close that he and Harry were almost nose to nose. Harry could see himself reflected in those misty eyes. And that's where... Mr. Ollivander touched the lightning scar on Harry's forehead with a long white finger. I'm sorry to say I sold the wand that did it, he said softly. Thirteen and a half inches, you... Powerful one, very powerful. And in the wrong hands? <laughs> well, if I'd known what that wand was going out in the world to do. <laughs> he shook his head and then, to Harry's relief, spotted Hagrid. Rubius! Rubius Hagrid! How nice to see you again! Um, uh, oak, sixteen inches, rather bendy, wasn't it? It, it? it was, sir, yes, said Hagrid. Good one, that one. "'But I suppose they snapped it in half when you got expelled,' said Mr. Ollivander, suddenly stern. Er, uh, yes, they did, yes,' said Hagrid, shuffling his feet. "'I've still got the pieces, though,' he added brightly. "'But you don't use them,' said Mr. Ollivander, sharply. "'Oh, no, sir,' said Hagrid quickly. Harry noticed he gripped his pink umbrella very tightly as he spoke. "'Hmm,' said Mr. Ollivander, giving Hagrid a piercing look. "'Well, now, Mr. Potter, let me see.' He pulled the long tape measure with silver markings out of his pocket. Uh, "'Which is your wand arm?' Um, "'Well, I'm right-handed,' said Harry. "'Hold out your arm. That's it.' He measured Harry from shoulder to finger, then wrist to elbow, shoulder to floor, knee to armpit, and round his head. As he measured, he said, Every Ollivander wand has a core of a powerful magical substance, Mr. Potter. We use unicorn hairs, phoenix tail feathers, and the heartstrings of dragons. No two Ollivander wands are the same, just as no two unicorns, dragons, or phoenixes are quite the same. And, of course, you will never get such good results with another wizard's wand. Harry suddenly realized that the tape measure, which was measuring between his nostrils, was doing this on its own. Mr. Ollivander was flitting around the shelves, taking down boxes. "'That will do,' he said, and the tape measure crumpled into a heap on the floor. "'Right then, Mr. Potter, try this one. Beechwood and dragon heartstring. Nine inches. Nice and flexible. Just take it and give it a wave.' Harry took the wand and, feeling foolish, waved it around a bit but Mr. Ollivander snatched it out of his hand almost at once. Maple and phoenix feather, seven inches, quite whippy, try... Harry tried, but he had hardly raised the wand when it, too, was snatched back by Mr. Ollivander. No, no, here, ebony and unicorn hair, eight and a half inches, springy. Go on, go on, try it out. Harry tried. And tried. He had no idea what Mr. Ollivander was waiting for. The pile of tried wands was mounting higher and higher on the spindly chair, but the more wands Mr. Ollivander pulled from the shelves, the happier he seemed to become. 
tricky customer, eh? <laughs> Not to worry, we'll find the perfect match here somewhere. I wonder now, yes. Why not? Unusual combination. Holly and phoenix feather. Eleven inches, nice and supple. Harry took the wand. He felt a sudden warmth in his fingers. He raised the wand above his head, brought it swishing down through the dusty air, and a stream of red and gold sparks shot from the end like a firework, throwing dancing spots of light onto the walls. Hagrid whooped and clapped, and Mr. Ollivander cried, Oh, bravo! Oh, yes, oh, indeed! Oh, very good! Well, well, well! How curious! How very curious! He put Harry's wand back into its box and wrapped it in brown paper, still muttering, Curious! Curious! Sorry, said Harry, but what's curious? Mr. Ollivander fixed Harry with his pale stare. I remember every wand I've ever sold, Mr. Potter. Every single wand. It so happens that the phoenix whose tail feather is in your wand gave another feather, just one other. It is very curious indeed that you should be destined for this wand when its brother... Why, its brother gave you that scar. Harry swallowed. Yes, thirteen and a half inches, you. Curious, indeed, how these things happen. The wand chooses the wizard, remember? I think we must expect great things from you, Mr. Potter. After all, he who must not be named did great things. Terrible, yes, but great. Harry shivered. He wasn't sure he liked Mr. Ollivander too much. He paid seven gold galleons for his wand, and Mr. Ollivander bowed them from his shop. The late afternoon sun hung low in the sky as Harry and Hagrid made their way back down Diagon Alley, back through the wall, back through the leaky cauldron now empty. Harry didn't speak at all as they walked down the road. He didn't even notice how much people were gawping at them on the underground, laden as they were with all their funny-shaped packages, with the sleeping snowy owl on Harry's lap. Up another escalator, out into Paddington Station. Harry only realised where they were when Hagrid tapped him on the shoulder. "'Got time for a bite to eat before your train leaves?' he said. He bought Harry a hamburger, and they sat down on plastic seats to eat them. Harry kept looking around. Everything looked so strange somehow. "'You're right, Harry. You're very quiet,' said Hagrid. Harry wasn't sure he could explain. He'd just had the best birthday of his life. And yet he chewed his hamburger, trying to find the words. Everyone thinks I'm special, he said at last. All those people in the leaky cauldron, Professor Quirrell, Mr. Ollivander, but I don't know anything about magic at all. How can they expect great things? I'm famous, and I can't even remember what I'm famous for. I don't know what happened when Vol... Sorry, I mean, the night my parents died. Hagrid leant across the table. Behind the wild beard and eyebrows, he wore a very kind smile. Don't you worry, Harry. You'll learn fast enough. Everyone starts at the beginning at Hogwarts. You'll be just fine. Just be yourself. I know it's hard. You've been singled out, and that's always hard. But you'll have a great time at Hogwarts. I did. Still do, as a matter of fact. 
Hagrid helped Harry on to the train that would take him back to the Dursleys, then handed him an envelope. Your ticket for Hogwarts, he said. First of September, King's Cross. It's all on your ticket. Any problems with the Dursleys, send me a letter with your owl. She'll know where to find me. See you soon, Harry. The train pulled out of the station. Harry wanted to watch Hagrid until he was out of sight. He rose in his seat and pressed his nose against the window. But he blinked, and Hagrid had gone. Chapter 6 The Journey from Platform Nine and Three Quarters Harry's last month with the Dursleys wasn't fun. True, Dudley was now so scared of Harry he wouldn't stay in the same room, while Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon didn't shut Harry in his cupboard, force him to do anything or shout at him. In fact, they didn't speak to him at all. Half terrified, half furious, they acted as though any chair with Harry in it was empty. Although this was an improvement in many ways, it did become a bit depressing after a while. Harry kept to his room, with his new owl for company. He had decided to call her Hedwig, a name he had found in A History of Magic. His school books were very interesting. He lay on his bed, reading late into the night, Hedwig swooping in and out of the open window as she pleased. It was lucky that Aunt Petunia didn't come in to Hoover any more, because Hedwig kept bringing back dead mice. Every night before he went to sleep, Harry ticked off another day on the piece of paper he had pinned to the wall, counting down to September the 1st. On the last day of August, he thought he'd better speak to his aunt and uncle about getting to King's Cross Station next day. So he went down to the living room where they were watching a quiz show on television. He cleared his throat to let them know he was there, and Dudley screamed and ran from the room. Um, Uncle Vernon... Uncle Vernon grunted to show he was listening. Um, I need to be at King's Cross tomorrow to, to go to Hogwarts. Uncle Vernon grunted again. Would it be all right if you gave me a lift? Grunt. Harry supposed that meant yes. Thank you. He was about to go back upstairs when Uncle Vernon actually spoke. Funny way to get to a wizard school, the train. Magic carpets all got... Punctures, have they? <laughs> Harry didn't say anything. Where is this school, anyway? I don't know, said Harry, realising this for the first time. He pulled the ticket Hagrid had given him out of his pocket. I just take the train from platform nine and three quarters at eleven o'clock, he read. His aunt and uncle stared. Platform what? Nine and three quarters. Don't talk rubbish, said Uncle Vernon. There is no platform nine and three quarters. It's on my ticket. Barking, said Uncle Vernon, howling mad, the lot of them. You'll see. You just wait. All right, we'll take you to King's Cross. We're going up to London tomorrow anyway, or I wouldn't bother. Why are you going to London? Harry asked, trying to keep things friendly. Taking Dudley to hospital, growled Uncle Vernon. Got to have that ruddy tail removed before he goes to smeltings. Harry woke at five o'clock the next morning and was too excited and nervous to go back to sleep. He got up and pulled on his jeans because he didn't want to walk into the station in his wizard's robes. He'd change on the train. He checked his Hogwarts list yet again to make sure he had everything he needed 
saw that Hedwig was shut safely in her cage, and then paced the room, waiting for the Dursleys to get up. Two hours later, Harry's huge, heavy trunk had been loaded into the Dursleys' car, Aunt Petunia had talked Dudley into sitting next to Harry, and they had set off. They reached King's Cross at half-past ten. Uncle Vernon dumped Harry's trunk onto a trolley and wheeled it onto the station for him. Harry thought this was strangely kind until Uncle Vernon stopped dead, facing the platforms with a nasty grin on his face. Well, <laughs> there you are, boy. Platform nine, platform ten. Your platform should be somewhere in the middle, but uh, they don't seem to have built it yet, do they? He was quite right, of course. There was a big plastic number nine over one platform and a big plastic number ten over the one next to it. And in the middle, nothing at all. Have a good term, said Uncle Vernon with an even nastier smile. He left without another word. Harry turned and saw the Dursleys drive away. All three of them were laughing. Harry's mouth went rather dry. What on earth was he going to do? He was starting to attract a lot of funny looks because of Hedwig. He'd have to ask someone. He stopped a passing guard, but didn't dare mention platform nine and three quarters. The guard had never heard of Hogwarts, and when Harry couldn't even tell him what part of the country it was in, he started to get annoyed as though Harry was being stupid on purpose. Getting desperate, Harry asked for the train that left at eleven o'clock, but the guard said there wasn't one. In the end, the guard strode away, muttering about time-wasters. Harry was now trying hard not to panic. According to the large clock over the arrivals board, he had ten minutes left to get on the train to Hogwarts, and he had no idea how to do it. He was stranded in the middle of a station with a trunk he could hardly lift, a pocket full of wizard money, and a large owl. Hagrid must have forgotten to tell him something you had to do, like tapping the third brick on the left to get into Diagon Alley. He wondered if he should get out his wand and start tapping the ticket box between platforms nine and ten. At that moment, a group of people passed just behind him, and he caught a few words of what they were saying, packed with muggles, of course. Harry swung round. The speaker was a plump woman who was talking to four boys, all with flaming red hair. Each of them was pushing a trunk like Harry's in front of him, and they had an owl. Heart hammering, Harry pushed his trolley after them. They stopped, and so did he, just near enough to hear what they were saying. Now, what's the platform number? said the boy's mother. Nine and three quarters. Piped a small girl, also red-headed, who was holding her hand. Mum, can't I go? You're not old enough, Ginny. Now be quiet. All right, Percy, you go first. What looked like the oldest boy marched towards platforms nine and ten. Harry watched, careful not to blink in case he missed it. But just as the boy reached the divide between the two platforms, a large crowd of tourists came swarming in front of him. And by the time the last rucksack had cleared away. The boy had vanished. Fred, you next," the plump woman said. "I'm not Fred. I'm George," said the boy. "Honestly, woman, call yourself our mother. Can't you tell I'm George?" "Sorry, George dear. Only joking. I am Fred," said the boy, and off he went. His twin called after him to hurry up, and he must have done because a second later he had gone. 
but how had he done it? Now the third brother was walking briskly towards the ticket barrier. He was almost there, and then, quite suddenly, he wasn't anywhere. There was nothing else for it. Excuse me, Harry said to the plump woman. Hello, dear, she said. First time at Hogwarts. Ron's new, too. She pointed at the last and youngest of her sons. He was tall, thin and gangling, with freckles, big hands and feet, and a long nose. Yes, said Harry. The thing is, the thing is, I don't know how to, how to get onto the platform, she said kindly, and Harry nodded. Not to worry, she said. All you have to do is walk straight at the barrier between platforms nine and ten. Don't stop and don't be scared you'll crash into it. That's very important. Best do it at a bit of a run if you're nervous. Go on. Go now before Ron. Um,、uh, okay, said Harry. He pushed his trolley round and stared at the barrier. It looked very solid. He started to walk towards it. People jostled him on their way to platforms nine and ten. Harry walked more quickly. He was going to smash right into that ticket box, and then he'd be in trouble. Leaning forward on his trolley, he broke into a heavy run. The barrier was coming nearer and nearer. He wouldn't be able to stop. The trolley was out of control. He was a foot away. He closed his eyes, ready for the crash. It didn't come. He kept on running. He opened his eyes. A scarlet steam engine was waiting next to a platform packed with people. A sign overhead said Hogwarts Express, eleven o'clock. Harry looked behind him and saw a wrought iron archway where the ticket box had been, with the words "Platform Nine and Three Quarters" on it. He had done it. Smoke from the engine drifted over the heads of the chattering crowd, while cats of every colour wound here and there between their legs. Owls hooted to each other in a disgruntled sort of way over the babble and the scraping of heavy trunks. The first few carriages were already packed with students. Some hanging out of the window to talk to their families. Some fighting over seats. Harry pushed his trolley off down the platform in search of an empty seat. He passed a round-faced boy who was saying, "Gran, I've lost my toad again." Oh, Neville! He heard the old woman sigh. A boy with dreadlocks was surrounded by a small crowd. "Give us a look, Lee. Go on." The boy lifted the lid of a box in his arms, and the people around him shrieked and yelled as something inside poked out a long, hairy leg. Harry pressed on through the crowd until he found an empty compartment near the end of the train. He put Hedwig inside first, and then started to shove and heave his trunk towards the train door. He tried to lift it up the steps, but could hardly raise one end, and twice he dropped it painfully on his foot. Want a hand? It was one of the red-haired twins he had followed through the ticket box. Yes, please, Harry panted. Oi, Fred, come here and help. With the twins' help. Harry's trunk was at last tucked away in a corner of the compartment. Thanks," said Harry, pushing his sweaty hair out of his eyes. "What's that?" said one of the twins suddenly, pointing at Harry's lightning scar. "Blimey," said the other twin. "Are you?" "He is," said the first twin. "Aren't you?" he added to Harry. "What?" said Harry. "Harry Potter," chorused the twins. Oh him," said Harry. "I mean, yes, I am." 
The two boys gawped at him, and Harry felt himself going red. Then, to his relief, a voice came floating in through the train's open door. Fred, George, are you there? Coming, ma'am. With a last look at Harry, the twins hopped off the train. Harry sat down next to the window, where, half hidden, he could watch the red-haired family on the platform and hear what they were saying. Their mother had just taken out her handkerchief. Ron, you've got something on your nose. The youngest boy tried to jerk out of the way, but she grabbed him and began rubbing the end of his nose. Mum, get off! He wriggled free. Ah,、oh, has Ickle Ronnie got something on his nosey? Said one of the twins. Shut up! Said Ron. Where's Percy? Said their mother. He's coming now. The oldest boy came striding into sight. He had already changed into his billowing black Hogwarts robes, and Harry noticed a shiny silver badge on his chest with the letter P on it. Can't stay long, mother," he said. "I'm up front. The prefects have got two compartments to themselves." "Oh, are you a prefect, Percy?" said one of the twins with an air of great surprise. "You should have said something. We had no idea." "Hang on, I think I remember him saying something about it," said the other twin once. Or twice a minute all summer. Oh, shut up," said Percy, the prefect. "How come Percy gets new robes anyway?" said one of the twins. "Because he's a prefect," said their mother fondly. <sighs> "All right, dear. Well, have a good term. Send me an owl when you get there." She kissed Percy on the cheek, and he left. Then she turned to the twins. "Now you two, this year you behave yourselves." If I get one more owl telling me you've you've blown up a toilet or blown up a toilet, we've never blown up a toilet. Great idea, though. Thanks, Mum. It's not funny.、Uh, and look after Ron. Don't worry, Ickle Runnykins is safe with us. Shut up," said Ron again. He was almost as tall as the twins already, and his nose was still pink where his mother had rubbed it. Hey, Mum. Guess what? Guess who we just met on the train. Harry leant back quickly, so they couldn't see him looking. You know that black-haired boy who was near us in the station. Know who he is? Who? Harry Potter. Harry heard the little girl's voice. Oh, Mum, can I go on the train and see him, Mum? Oh, please. You've already seen him, Ginny. The poor boy isn't something you goggle at in a zoo. Is he really, Fred? How do you know? Asked him. Saw his scar. It's really there, like lightning. Poor dear. No wonder he was alone. I wondered. He was ever so polite when he asked how to get onto the platform. Never mind that. Do you think he remembers what you know who looks like? Their mother suddenly became very stern. I forbid you to ask him, Fred. No, don't you dare. As though he needs reminding of that on his first day at school. All right, keep your hair on. A whistle sounded. Hurry up! Their mother said, and the three boys clambered onto the train. They leant out of the window for her to kiss them goodbye, and their younger sister began to cry. Don't, Ginny. We'll send you loads of owls. We'll send you a Hogwarts toilet seat. George, only joking, Mum. The train began to move. Harry saw the boys' mother waving, and their sister half laughing, half crying, running to keep up with the train until it gathered too much speed. Then she fell back and waved. Harry watched the girl and her mother disappear as the train rounded the corner. 
Houses flashed past the window. Harry felt a great leap of excitement. He didn't know what he was going to, but it had to be better than what he was leaving behind. The door of the compartment slid open, and the youngest red-headed boy came in. Anyone sitting there? he asked, pointing at the seat opposite Harry. Everywhere else is full. Harry shook his head, and the boy sat down. He glanced at Harry and then looked quickly out of the window, pretending he hadn't looked. Harry saw he still had a black mark on his nose. Hey, Ron! The twins were back. Listen, we're going down the middle of the train. Lee Jordan's got a giant tarantula down there. Right, mumbled Ron. Harry, said the other twin, do we introduce ourselves? Fred and George Weasley, and this is Ron, our brother. See you later, then. Bye, said Harry and Ron. The twins slid the compartment door shut behind them. Are you really Harry Potter? Ron blurted out. Harry nodded. Oh, well, I thought it might be one of Fred and George's jokes, said Ron. And have you really got, you know, he pointed at Harry's forehead. Harry pulled back his fringe to show the lightning scar. Ron stared. So that's where you know who? Yes said Harry, but I can't remember it. Nothing, said Ron eagerly. Well, um, I remember a lot of green light, but nothing else. Wow, said Ron. He sat and stared at Harry for a few moments. Then, as though he had suddenly realised what he was doing, he looked quickly out of the window again. Are all your family wizards? asked Harry, who found Ron just as interesting as Ron found him. Uh, yes, I think so, said Ron. I think Mum's got a second cousin who's an accountant, but we never talk about him. So you must know loads of magic already. The Weasleys were clearly one of those old wizarding families the pale boy in Diagon Alley had talked about. I heard you went to live with muggles, said Ron. What are they like? Horrible. Well, not all of them. My aunt and uncle and cousin are, though. Wish I'd had three wizard brothers. Five, said Ron. For some reason he was looking gloomy. I'm the sixth in our family to go to Hogwarts. You could say I've got a lot to live up to. Bill and Charlie have already left. Bill was head boy, and Charlie was captain of Quidditch. Now Percy's a prefect. Fred and George mess around a lot, but they still get really good marks, and everyone thinks they're really funny. Everyone expects me to do as well as the others, but if I do, it's no big deal, because they did it first. You never get anything new, either, with five brothers. I've got Bill's old robes, Charlie's old wand, and Percy's old rat. Ron reached inside his jacket and pulled out a fat grey rat, which was asleep. His name's Scabbers, and he's useless. He hardly ever wakes up. Percy got an owl from my dad for being made a prefect. But they couldn't have... I mean, I got Scabbers instead. Ron's ears went pink. He seemed to think he'd said too much, because he went back to staring out of the window. Harry didn't think there was anything wrong with not being able to afford an owl. After all, he'd never had any money in his life until a month ago, and he told Ron so, all about having to wear Dudley's old clothes and never getting proper birthday presents. This seemed to cheer Ron up. And until Hagrid told me, I didn't know anything about being a wizard or about my parents or Voldemort. Ron gasped. What? said Harry. You said you know whose name? said Ron, sounding both shocked and impressed. I'd have thought you, of all people. I'm not trying to be brave or anything, saying the name, 
said Harry. "'I just never knew you shouldn't. See what I mean? I've got loads to learn. I bet,' he added, voicing for the first time something that had been worrying him a lot lately. "'I bet I'm the worst in the class.' "'You won't be. There's loads of people who come from muggle families, and they learn quick enough.' While they had been talking, the train had carried them out of London. Now they were speeding past fields full of cows and sheep. They were quiet for a time, watching the fields and lanes flick past. Around half-past twelve, there was a great clattering outside in the corridor, and a smiling, dimpled woman slid back their door and said, "'Anything off the trolley, dears?' Harry, who hadn't had any breakfast, leapt to his feet, but Ron's ears went pink again, and he muttered that he'd brought sandwiches. Harry went out into the corridor. He had never had any money for sweets with the Dursleys, and now that he had pockets rattling with gold and silver, he was ready to buy as many Mars bars as he could carry. But the woman didn't have Mars bars. What she did have were Bertie Bott's Every Flavour Beans, Drubal's Best Blowing Gum, chocolate frogs, pumpkin pasties, cauldron cakes, licorice wands, and a number of other strange things Harry had never seen in his life. Not wanting to miss anything, he got some of everything, and paid the woman eleven silver sickles and seven bronze knuts. Ron stared as Harry brought it all back into the compartment and tipped it onto an empty seat. "'Hungry, are you?' "'Starving.' said Harry, taking a large bite out of a pumpkin pasty. Ron had taken out a lumpy package and unwrapped it. There were four sandwiches in there. He pulled one of them apart and said, "'She always forgets I don't like corned beef.' "'Swap you for one of these,' said Harry, holding up a pasty. "'Go on.' "'You don't want this. It's all dry,' said Ron. "'She hasn't got much time,' he added quickly. "'You know, with five of us.' "'Go on, have a pasty,' said Harry, who had never had anything to share before, or indeed any one to share it with. It was a nice feeling, sitting there with Ron, eating their way through all Harry's pasties and cakes. The sandwiches lay forgotten. "'What are these?' Harry asked Ron, holding up a pack of chocolate frogs. "'They're not really frogs, are they?' He was starting to feel that nothing would surprise him. "'No,' said Ron, "'but see what the card is. I'm missing a gripper.' What? Oh, of course, you wouldn't know. Chocolate frogs have cards inside them, you know, to collect. Famous witches and wizards. I've got about five hundred, but I haven't got Agrippa or Ptolemy. Harry unwrapped his chocolate frog and picked up the card. It showed a man's face. He wore half-moon glasses, had a long, crooked nose and flowing silver hair, beard and moustache. Underneath the picture was the name Albus Dumbledore. "'So this is Dumbledore,' said Harry. "'Don't tell me you've never heard of Dumbledore,' said Ron. "'Could I have a frog? I might get a gripper. Thanks.' Harry turned over his card and read, "'Albus Dumbledore, currently headmaster of Hogwarts. "'Considered by many the greatest wizard of modern times, "'Dumbledore is particularly famous for his defeat "'of the dark wizard Grindelwald in 1945, for the discovery of the twelve uses of dragon's blood, and his work on alchemy with his partner, Nicholas Flamel. Professor Dumbledore enjoys chamber music and ten-pin bowling. Harry turned the card back over and saw, to his astonishment, that Dumbledore's face had disappeared. He's gone! 
"'Well, you can't expect him to hang around all day,' said Ron. "'He'll be back.' "'No, I've got Morgana again. I've got about six of her. "'Do you want it? You can start collecting.' "'Ron's eyes strayed to the pile of chocolate frogs waiting to be unwrapped. "'Help yourself,' said Harry. "'But in, you know, the muggle world, people just stay put in photos.' "'Do they? <laughs> what, they don't move at all?' "'Ron sounded amazed. "'Weird!' Harry stared as Dumbledore sidled back into the picture on his card and gave him a small smile. Ron was more interested in eating the frogs than looking at the famous witches and wizards' cards, but Harry couldn't keep his eyes off them. Soon he had not only Dumbledore and Morgana, but Hengist of Woodcroft, Alberic Grunion, Circe, Paracelsus, and Merlin. He finally tore his eyes away from the druidess Cleodna, who was scratching her nose, to open a bag of Bertie Bott's Every Flavour Beans. "'You want to be careful with those,' Ron warned Harry. "'When they say every flavour, they mean every flavour. "'You know, you get all the ordinary ones, like chocolate and peppermint and marmalade, "'but then you can get spinach and liver and tripe. "'George reckons he had a bogey-flavoured one once.' "'Ron picked up a green bean, looked at it carefully, and bit into a corner. Yeah, good. See? Sprouts!' They had a good time eating the every-flavour beans. Harry got toast, coconut, baked bean, strawberry, curry, grass, coffee, sardine, and was even brave enough to nibble the end off a funny grey one Ron wouldn't touch, which turned out to be pepper. The countryside, now flying past the window, was becoming wilder. The neat fields had gone. Now there were woods, twisting rivers, and dark green hills. There was a knock on the door of their compartment, and the round-faced boy Harry had passed on platform nine and three-quarters came in. He looked tearful. "'Sorry,' he said, "'but have you seen a toad at all?' When they shook their heads, he wailed. "'I've lost him! <laughs> he keeps getting away from me!' Oh, "'He'll turn up,' said Harry. "'Yes,' said the boy miserably. "'Well, if you see him—' He left. "'Don't know why he's so bothered,' said Ron. "'If I'd brought a toad, I'd lose it as quick as I could. "'Mind you, I brought scabbers, so I can't talk.' The rat was still snoozing on Ron's lap. "'He might have died, and he wouldn't know the difference,' said Ron in disgust. "'I tried to turn him yellow yesterday to make him more interesting, but the spell didn't work. "'I'll show you. Look.' He rummaged around in his trunk and pulled out a very battered-looking wand. It was chipped in places, and something white was glinting at the end. Unicorn hairs nearly poking out. Anyway, he had just raised his wand when the compartment door slid open again. The toadless boy was back, but this time he had a girl with him. She was already wearing her new Hogwarts robes. "'Has anyone seen a toad? Neville's lost one,' she said. She had a bossy sort of voice, lots of bushy brown hair and rather large front teeth. "'We've already told him we haven't seen it,' said Ron, but the girl wasn't listening. She was looking at the wand in his hand. "'Oh, are you doing magic? Let's see it, then.' She sat down. Ron looked taken aback. "'Um, all right,' he cleared his throat. "'Sunshine, daisies, butter, mellow, turn this stupid fat rat yellow.' He waved his wand, but nothing happened. Scabbers stayed grey and fast asleep. 
Are you sure that's a real spell? said the girl. Well, it's not very good, is it? I've tried a few simple spells just for practice, and it's all worked for me. Nobody in my family's magic at all. It was ever such a surprise when I got my letter, but I was ever so pleased, of course. I mean, it's the very best school of witchcraft there is, I've heard. I've learned all our set books off by heart, of course. I just hope it'll be enough. I'm Hermione Granger, by the way. Who are you? She said all this very fast. Harry looked at Ron and was relieved to see by his stunned face that he hadn't learnt all the set books off by heart either. I'm Ron Weasley, Ron muttered. Harry Potter, said Harry. I really, said Hermione. I know all about you, of course. I got a few extra books of background reading, and you're in Modern Magical History and The Rise and Fall of the Dark Arts and Great Wizarding Events of the Twentieth Century. Am I? said Harry, feeling dazed. Goodness, didn't you know? I'd have found out everything I could if it was me, said Hermione. Do either of you know what house you'll be in? I've been asking around, and I hope I'm in Gryffindor. It sounds by far the best. I hear Dumbledore himself was one, but I suppose Ravenclaw wouldn't be too bad. Anyway, we'd better go and look for Neville's toad. You two had better change, you know. I expect we'll be there soon. And she left, taking the toadless boy with her. Whatever house I'm in, I hope she's not in it, said Ron. He threw his wand back into his trunk. Stupid spell. George gave it to me. Betty knew it was a dud. What house are your brothers in? asked Harry. Gryffindor, said Ron. Gloom seemed to be settling on him again. Mum and Dad were in it too. I don't know what they'll say if I'm not. I don't suppose Ravenclaw would be too bad, but imagine if they put me in Slytherin. That's the house vault. I mean, you know who was in. Yeah said Ron. He flopped back into his seat, looking depressed. "'You know, I think the ends of Scabber's whiskers are a bit lighter,' said Harry, trying to take Ron's mind off houses. "'So what do your oldest brothers do now they've left, anyway?' Harry was wondering what a wizard did once he'd finished school. "'Charlie's in Romania studying dragons, and Bill's in Africa doing something for Gringotts,' said Ron. Did you hear about Gringotts? It's been all over the Daily Prophet, but I don't suppose you get that with the muggles. Someone tried to rob a high-security vault. Harry stared. Really? What happened to them? Nothing. That's why it's such big news. They haven't been caught. My dad says it must have been a powerful dark wizard to get round Gringotts. But they don't think they took anything. That's what's odd. Of course, everyone gets scared when something like this happens in case you know who's behind it. Harry turned this news over in his mind. He was starting to get a prickle of fear every time you-know-who was mentioned. He supposed this was all part of entering the magical world, but it had been a lot more comfortable saying Voldemort without worrying. "'What's your Quidditch team?' Ron asked. "'Uh, I don't know any,' Harry confessed. "'What?' Ron looked dumbfounded. "'Oh, you wait, it's the best game in the world!' And he was off, explaining all about the four balls and the positions of the seven players, describing famous games he'd been to with his brothers and the broomstick he'd like to get if he had the money. He was just taking Harry through the finer points of the game when the compartment door slid open yet again. But it wasn't Neville the toadless boy or Hermione Granger this time. Three boys entered, and Harry recognised the middle one at once. It was the pale boy from Madame Malkin's robe shop. He was looking at Harry with a lot more interest than he'd shown back in Diagon Alley. "'Is it true?' he said. "'They're saying all down the train that Harry Potter's in this compartment, so it's you, is it?' "'Yes,' said Harry. He was looking at the other boys. Both of them were thick-set and looked extremely mean. 
Standing either side of the pale boy, they looked like bodyguards. Oh, this is、uh, Crab and this is Goyle, said the pale boy carelessly, noticing where Harry was looking. And my name's Malfoy, Draco Malfoy. Ron gave a slight cough, which might have been hiding a snigger. Draco Malfoy looked at him. Think my name's funny, do you? No need to ask who you are. My father told me all the Weasleys have red hair, freckles, and more children than they can afford. He turned back to Harry. You'll soon find out some wizarding families are much better than others, Potter. You don't want to go making friends with the wrong sort. I can help you there. He held out his hand to shake Harry's, but Harry didn't take it. I think I can tell who the wrong sort are for myself, thanks," he said coolly. Draco Malfoy didn't go red, but a pink tinge appeared in his pale cheeks. "I'd be careful if I were you, Potter," he said slowly. "Unless you're a bit politer, you'll go the same way as your parents. They didn't know what was good for them either." You hang around with riffraff like the Weasleys and that Hagrid, and it'll rub off on you. Both Harry and Ron stood up. Ron's face was as red as his hair. Say that again, he said. <laughs> You're going to fight us, are you? Malfoy sneered. Unless you get out now, said Harry more bravely than he felt, because Crab and Goyle were a lot bigger than him or Ron. But we don't feel like leaving, do we, boys? We've eaten all our food, and you still seem to have some. Goyle reached towards the chocolate frogs next to Ron. Ron leapt forward, but before he'd so much as touched Goyle, Goyle let out a horrible yell. Scabbers the rat was hanging off his finger. Sharp little teeth sunk deep into Goyle's knuckle. Crab and Malfoy backed away as Goyle swung Scabbers round and round, howling. And when Scabbers finally flew off and hit the window, all three of them disappeared at once. Perhaps they thought there were more rats lurking among the sweets, or perhaps they'd heard footsteps because a second later Hermione Granger had come in. What has been going on? She said, looking at the sweets all over the floor, and Ron picking up Scabbers by his tail. I think he's been knocked out. Ron said to Harry. He looked closer at Scabbers. No,、oh, I don't believe it. He's gone back to sleep, and so he had. You've met Malfoy before, Harry explained about their meeting in Diagon Alley. I've heard of his family, said Ron darkly. They were some of the first to come back to our side after, you know who disappeared. Said they'd been bewitched. My dad doesn't believe it. He says Malfoy's father didn't need an excuse to go over to the dark side. He turned to Hermione. Can we help you with something? You'd better hurry up and put your robes on. I've just been up the front to ask the driver, and he says we're nearly there. You haven't been fighting, have you? You'll be in trouble before we even get there. Scabbers has been fighting, not us," said Ron, scowling at her. "Would you mind leaving while we change?" "All right. I only came in here because people outside are behaving very childishly, racing up and down the corridors," said Hermione in a sniffy voice. "And you've got dirt in your nose, by the way. Did you know?" Ron glared at her as she left. Harry peered out of the window. It was getting dark. He could see mountains and forests under a deep purple sky. The train did seem to be slowing down. He and Ron took off their jackets and pulled on their long black robes. Ron's were a bit short for him. You could see his trainers underneath them. A voice echoed through the train. "We will be reaching Hogwarts in five minutes' time. Please leave your luggage on the train. It will be taken to the school separately." 
Harry's stomach lurched with nerves, and Ron, he saw, looked pale under his freckles. They crammed their pockets with the last of the sweets and joined the crowd thronging the corridor. The train slowed right down and finally stopped. People pushed their way towards the door and out onto a tiny dark platform. Harry shivered in the cold night air. Then a lamp came bobbing over the heads of the students, and Harry heard a familiar voice. First years, first years over here. All right there, Harry. Hagrid's big, hairy face beamed over the sea of heads. Come on, follow me. Any more first years? Mind your step now. First years, follow me. Slipping and stumbling, they followed Hagrid down what seemed to be a steep, narrow path. It was so dark either side of them that Harry thought there must be thick trees there. Nobody spoke much. Neville, the boy who kept losing his toad, sniffed once or twice. You'll get your first sight of Hogwarts in a sec, Hagrid called over his shoulder, just round this bend here. There was a loud, oh! The narrow path had opened suddenly onto the edge of a great black lake. Perched atop a high mountain on the other side, its windows sparkling in the starry sky, was a vast castle with many turrets and towers. No more than four to a boat! Hagrid called, pointing to a fleet of little boats sitting in the water by the shore. Harry and Ron were followed into their boat by Neville and Hermione. Everyone in! shouted Hagrid, who had a boat to himself. Right then, forward! And the fleet of little boats moved off all at once, gliding across the lake which was as smooth as glass. Everyone was silent, staring up at the great castle overhead. It towered over them as they sailed nearer and nearer to the cliff on which it stood. Heads down! yelled Hagrid as the first boats reached the cliff. They all bent their heads, and the little boats carried them through a curtain of ivy which hid a wide opening in the cliff face. They were carried along a dark tunnel which seemed to be taking them right underneath the castle until they reached a kind of underground harbour where they clambered out onto rocks and pebbles. Oi, you there, is this your toad? said Hagrid, who was checking the boats as people climbed out of them. Trevor! cried Neville, blissfully holding out his hands. Then they clambered up a passageway in the rock after Hagrid's lamp, coming out at last onto smooth, damp grass right in the shadow of the castle. They walked up a flight of stone steps and crowded around the huge oak front door. Everyone here? You there? Still got your toad? Hagrid raised a gigantic fist and knocked three times on the castle door. Chapter 7 The Sorting Hat The door swung open at once. A tall, black-haired witch in emerald green robes stood there. She had a very stern face, and Harry's first thought was that this was not someone to cross. The first years, Professor McGonagall, said Hagrid. Thank you, Hagrid. I will take them from here. She pulled the door wide. The entrance hall was so big you could have fitted the whole of the Dursley's house in it. The stone walls were lit with flaming torches, like the ones at Gringotts. The ceiling was too high to make out, and a magnificent marble staircase facing them led to the upper floors. They followed Professor McGonagall across the flagged stone floor. Harry could hear the drone of hundreds of voices from a doorway to the right. 
the rest of the school must already be here. But Professor McGonagall showed the first years into a small empty chamber off the hall. They crowded in, standing rather closer together than they would usually have done, peering about nervously. Welcome to Hogwarts, said Professor McGonagall. The start of term banquet will begin shortly. But before you take your seats in the Great Hall, you will be sorted into your houses. The sorting is a very important ceremony, because while you are here, your house will be something like your family within Hogwarts. You will have classes with the rest of your house, sleep in your house dormitory, and spend free time in your house common room. The four houses are called Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, and Slytherin. Each house has its own noble history, and each has produced outstanding witches and wizards. While you are at Hogwarts, your triumphs will earn your house points, while any rule-breaking will lose house points. At the end of the year, the house with the most points is awarded the House Cup. A great honour. I hope each of you will be a credit to whichever house becomes yours. The sorting ceremony will take place in a few minutes in front of the rest of the school. I suggest you all smarten yourselves up as much as you can while you are waiting. Her eyes lingered for a moment on Neville's cloak, which was fastened under his left ear, and on Ron's smudged nose. Harry nervously tried to flatten his hair. I shall return when we are ready for you, said Professor McGonagall. Please wait quietly. She left the chamber. Harry swallowed. How exactly do they sort us into houses? he asked Ron. Some sort of test, I think. Fred said it hurts a lot, but I think he was joking. Harry's heart gave a horrible jolt. A test? In front of the whole school? But he didn't know any magic yet. What on earth would he have to do? He hadn't expected something like this the moment they arrived. He looked around anxiously, and saw that everyone else looked terrified, too. No one was talking much, except Hermione Granger, who was whispering very fast about all the spells she'd learnt, and wondering which one she'd need. Harry tried hard not to listen to her. He had never been more nervous. Never. Not even when he'd had to take a school report home to the Dursleys, saying that he'd somehow turned his teacher's wig blue. He kept his eyes fixed on the door. Any second now, Professor McGonagall would come back and lead him to his doom. Then something happened which made him jump about a foot in the air. Several people behind him screamed. What the? He gasped. So did the people around him. About twenty ghosts had just streamed through the back wall. Pearly white and slightly transparent, they glided across the room, talking to each other and hardly glancing at the first years. They seemed to be arguing. What looked like a fat little monk was saying, Forgive and forget, I say. We ought to give him a second chance. My dear friar, haven't we given Peeves all the chances he deserves? He gives us all a bad name, and, you know, he's not really even a ghost. I say, what are you all doing here? A ghost wearing a ruff and tights had suddenly noticed the first years. Nobody answered. New students, said the fat friar, smiling around at them. About to be sorted, I suppose. A few people nodded mutely. Hope to see you in Hufflepuff, said the friar. My old house, you know. 
Move along now, said a sharp voice. The sorting ceremony's about to start. Professor McGonagall had returned. One by one, the ghosts floated away through the opposite wall. Now, form a line, Professor McGonagall told the first years, and follow me. Feeling oddly as though his legs had turned to lead, Harry got into line behind a boy with sandy hair, with Ron behind him, and they walked out of the chamber, back across the hall, and through a pair of double doors into the great hall. Harry had never even imagined such a strange and splendid place. It was lit by thousands and thousands of candles, which were floating in mid-air over four long tables where the rest of the students were sitting. These tables were laid with glittering golden plates and goblets. At the top of the hall was another long table where the teachers were sitting. Professor McGonagall led the first years up here so that they came to a halt in a line facing the other students, with the teachers behind them. The hundreds of faces staring at them looked like pale lanterns in the flickering candlelight. Dotted here and there among the students, the ghosts shone misty silver. Mainly to avoid all the staring eyes, Harry looked upwards and saw a velvety black ceiling dotted with stars. He heard Hermione whisper, It's bewitched to look like the sky outside. I read about it in Hogwarts, a history. It was hard to believe there was a ceiling there at all, and that the great hall didn't simply open onto the heavens. Harry quickly looked down again as Professor McGonagall silently placed a four-legged stool in front of the first years. On top of the stool, she put a pointed wizard's hat. This hat was patched and frayed and extremely dirty, Aunt Petunia wouldn't have let it in the house. Maybe they had to try and get a rabbit out of it, Harry thought wildly. That seemed the sort of thing. Noticing that everyone in the hall was now staring at the hat, he stared at it too. For a few seconds, there was complete silence. Then the hat twitched. A rip near the brim opened wide like a mouth, and the hat began to sing. Oh, you may not think I'm pretty. But don't judge on what you see. I'll eat myself if you can find a smarter hat than me. You can keep your bowlers black, your top hats sleek and tall, for I'm the Hogwarts sorting hat, and I can cap them all. There's nothing hidden in your head the sorting hat can't see, so try me on and I will tell you where you ought to be. You might belong in Gryffindor, where dwell the brave at heart. Their daring nerve and chivalry set Gryffindors apart. You might belong in Hufflepuff, where they are just and loyal. Those patient Hufflepuffs are true and unafraid of toil. Or yet in wise old Ravenclaw, if you've a ready mind, where those of wit and learning will always find their kind. Or perhaps in Slytherin you'll make your real friends. Those cunning folk use any means to achieve their ends. So put me on, don't be afraid, and don't get in a flap. You're in safe hands, though I have none, for I'm a thinking cap. The whole hall burst into applause as the hat finished its song. It bowed to each of the four tables and then became quite still again. So we've just got to try on the hat, Ron whispered to Harry. I'll kill Fred. He was going on about wrestling a troll. Harry smiled weakly. 
Yes, trying on the hat was a lot better than having to do a spell, but he did wish they could have tried it on without everyone watching. The hat seemed to be asking rather a lot. Harry didn't feel brave or quick-witted or any of it at the moment. If only the hat had mentioned a house for people who felt a bit queasy, that would have been the one for him. Professor McGonagall now stepped forward, holding a long roll of parchment. When I call your name, you will put on the hat and sit on the stool to be sorted, she said. Abbot Hannah. A pink-faced girl with blonde pigtails stumbled out of line, put on the hat, which fell right down over her eyes, and sat down. A moment's pause. Hufflepuff, shouted the hat. The table on the right cheered and clapped as Hannah went to sit down at the Hufflepuff table. Harry saw the ghost of the fat friar waving merrily at her. Bones, Susan. Hufflepuff, shouted the hat again, and Susan scuttled off to sit next to Hannah. Boot, Terry. Ravenclaw. The table second from the left clapped this time. Several Ravenclaws stood up to shake hands with Terry as he joined them. Brocklehurst Mandy went to Ravenclaw too, but Brown Lavender became the first new Gryffindor, and the table on the far left exploded with cheers. Harry could see Ron's twin brothers catcalling. Bullstrode Millicent then became a Slytherin. Perhaps it was Harry's imagination after all he'd heard about Slytherin, but he thought they looked an unpleasant lot. He was starting to feel definitely sick now. He remembered being picked for teams during sports lessons at his old school. He had always been last to be chosen, not because he was no good, but because no one wanted Dudley to think they liked him. Finch Fletchley, Justin, Hufflepuff. Sometimes, Harry noticed, the hat shouted out the house at once, but at others it took a little while to decide. Finnegan Seamus, the sandy-haired boy next to Harry in the line, sat on the stool for almost a whole minute before the hat declared him a Gryffindor. Granger Hermione. Hermione almost ran to the stool and jammed the hat eagerly on her head. Gryffindor shouted the hat. Ron groaned. A horrible thought struck Harry, as horrible thoughts always do when you're very nervous. What if he wasn't chosen at all? What if he just sat there with the hat over his eyes for ages until Professor McGonagall jerked it off his head and said there had obviously been a mistake and he'd better get back on the train? When Neville Longbottom, the boy who kept losing his toad, was called, he fell over on his way to the stool. The hat took a long time to decide with Neville. When it finally shouted, Gryffindor. Neville ran off, still wearing it, and had to jog back amid gales of laughter to give it to MacDougall Morag. Malfoy swaggered forward when his name was called and got his wish at once. The hat had barely touched his head when it screamed, "Slytherin!" Malfoy went to join his friends, Crab and Goyle, looking pleased with himself. There weren't many people left now. Moon. Not Parkinson, then a pair of twin girls, Patil and Patil, then Perks, Sally Ann, and then, at last, Potter, Harry. As Harry stepped forward, whispers suddenly broke out like little hissing fires all over the hall. Potter, 
did she say? The Harry Potter? The last thing Harry saw before the hat dropped over his eyes was the hall full of people craning to get a good look at him. Next second he was looking at the black inside of the hat. He waited. Hmm, said a small voice in his ear. Difficult, very difficult. Plenty of courage, I see. Not a bad mind, either. There's talent, oh my goodness, yes, and a nice thirst to prove yourself. Now, that's interesting, so where shall I put you? Harry gripped the edges of the stool and thought, Not Slytherin, not Slytherin. Not Slytherin, eh? said the small voice. Are you sure? You could be great, you know. It's all here in your head, and Slytherin will help you on the way to greatness, no doubt about that. No? Well, if you're sure, better be... Gryffindor! Harry heard the hat shout the last word to the whole hall. He took off the hat and walked shakily towards the Gryffindor table. He was so relieved to have been chosen and not put in Slytherin, he hardly noticed that he was getting the loudest cheer yet. Percy the prefect got up and shook his hand vigorously, while the Weasley twins yelled, We got Potter! We got Potter! Harry sat down opposite the ghost in the rough he'd seen earlier. The ghost patted his arm, giving Harry the sudden horrible feeling he'd just plunged it into a bucket of ice-cold water. He could see the high table properly now. At the end nearest him sat Hagrid, who caught his eye and gave him the thumbs up. Harry grinned back. And there, in the centre of the high table, in a large gold chair, sat Albus Dumbledore. Harry recognised him at once from the card he'd got out of the chocolate frog on the train. Dumbledore's silver hair was the only thing in the whole hall that shone as brightly as the ghosts. Harry spotted Professor Quirrell, too, the nervous young man from the leaky cauldron. He was looking very peculiar in a large purple turban. And now there were only three people left to be sorted. Turpin, Lisa, became a Ravenclaw, and then it was Ron's turn. He was pale green by now. Harry crossed his fingers under the table, and a second later the hat had shouted, Gryffindor! Harry clapped loudly with the rest as Ron collapsed into the chair next to him. Well done, Ron. Excellent, said Percy Weasley pompously across Harry, as Zabini Blaze was made a Slytherin. Professor McGonagall rolled up her scroll and took the sorting hat away. Harry looked down at his empty gold plate. He had only just realised how hungry he was. The pumpkin pasties seemed ages ago. Albus Dumbledore had got to his feet. He was beaming at the students. His arms opened wide, as if nothing could have pleased him more than to see them all there. "'Welcome,' he said. "'Welcome to a new year at Hogwarts. "'Before we begin our banquet,' I would like to say a few words. Here they are. Nitwit, blubber, oddment, tweak. Thank you. He sat back down. Everybody clapped and cheered. Harry didn't know whether to laugh or not. Uh, is he a bit mad? He asked Percy uncertainly. Mad, said Percy airily. He's a genius, best wizard in the world. But he is a bit mad, yes. Potatoes, Harry. Harry's mouth fell open. 
The dishes in front of him were now piled with food. He had never seen so many things he liked to eat on one table. Roast beef, roast chicken, pork chops and lamb chops, sausages, bacon and steak, boiled potatoes, roast potatoes, chips, Yorkshire pudding, peas, carrots, gravy, ketchup, and for some strange reason, mint humbugs. The Dursleys had never exactly starved Harry, but he'd never been allowed to eat as much as he liked. Dudley had always taken anything that Harry really wanted, even if it made him sick. Harry piled his plate with a bit of everything, except the humbugs, and began to eat. It was all delicious. That does look good, said the ghost in the rough, sadly, watching Harry cut up his steak. Can't you... I haven't eaten for nearly four hundred years, said the ghost. I don't need to, of course, but one does miss it. I don't think I've introduced myself. Sir Nicholas de Mimsey Porpington at your service, resident ghost of Gryffindor Tower. I know who you are, said Ron suddenly. My brother's told me about you. You're nearly headless Nick. I would prefer you to call me Sir Nicholas de Mimsey, the ghost began stiffly, but sandy-haired Seamus Finnegan interrupted. Nearly headless? How can you be nearly headless? Sir Nicholas looked extremely miffed, as if their little chat wasn't going at all the way he wanted. Like this, he said irritably. He seized his left ear and pulled. His whole head swung off his neck and fell onto his shoulder as if it was on a hinge. Someone had obviously tried to behead him, but not done it properly. Looking pleased at the stunned looks on their faces, nearly headless Nick flipped his head back onto his neck, coughed, and said, So, new Gryffindors, I hope you're going to help us win the house championship this year. Gryffindor have never gone so long without winning. Slytherin have got the cup six years in a row. The bloody Baron's becoming almost unbearable. He's the Slytherin ghost. Harry looked over at the Slytherin table and saw a horrible ghost sitting there with blank, staring eyes, a gaunt face and robes stained with silver blood. He was right next to Malfoy, who, Harry was pleased to see, didn't look too pleased with the seating arrangements. "'How did he get covered in blood?' asked Seamus with great interest. "'I've never asked,' said nearly headless Nick delicately. When everyone had eaten as much as they could, the remains of the food faded from the plates, leaving them sparkling clean as before. A moment later, the puddings appeared. Blocks of ice cream in every flavour you could think of. Apple pies, treacle tarts, chocolate eclairs and jam donuts, trifles, strawberries, jelly, rice pudding. As Harry helped himself to a treacle tart, the talk turned to their families. I'm half and half, said Seamus. My dad's a muggle. Mam didn't tell him she was a witch till after they were married. Bit of a nasty shock for him. The others laughed. What about you, Neville? said Ron. Well, my gran brought me up and she's a witch, said Neville. But the family thought I was all muggle for ages. My great-uncle Algie kept trying to catch me off my guard and force some magic out of me. He pushed me off the end of Blackpool Pier once. I nearly drowned. "'But nothing happened until I was eight. "'Great-uncle Algy came round for tea, "'and he was hanging me out of an upstairs window by the ankles "'when my great-auntie Enid offered him a meringue, "'and he accidentally let go. "'But I bounced all the way down the garden and into the road, 
They were all really pleased. Graham was crying she was so happy. And you should have seen their faces when I got in here. <laughs> they thought I might not be magic enough to come, you see. Great Uncle Algy was so pleased he bought me my toad. On Harry's other side, Percy Weasley and Hermione were talking about lessons. I do hope they start straight away. There's so much to learn. I'm particularly interested in transfiguration, you know, turning something into something else. Of course, it's supposed to be very difficult. You'll be starting small, just matches into needles and that sort of thing. Harry, who was starting to feel warm and sleepy, looked up at the high table again. Hagrid was drinking deeply from his goblet. Professor McGonagall was talking to Professor Dumbledore. Professor Quirrell, in his absurd turban, was talking to a teacher with greasy black hair, a hooked nose and sallow skin. It happened very suddenly. The hooked-nosed teacher looked past Quirrell's turban straight into Harry's eyes, and a sharp, hot pain shot across the scar on Harry's forehead. Ouch! Harry clapped a hand to his head. What is it? asked Percy. N nothing. The pain had gone as quickly as it had come. Harder to shake off was the feeling Harry had got from the teacher's look, a feeling that he didn't like Harry at all. "'Who's that teacher talking to Professor Quirrell?' he asked Percy. "'Oh, you know Quirrell already, do you? "'No wonder he's looking so nervous. "'That's Professor Snape. "'He teaches potions, but he doesn't want to. "'Everyone knows he's after Quirrell's job. "'Knows an awful lot about the dark arts, Snape.' "'Harry watched Snape for a while, "'but Snape didn't look at him again. "'At last the puddings, too, disappeared, "'and Professor Dumbledore got to his feet again.' The hall fell silent. Oh, just a few more words now we are all fed and watered. I have a few start-of-term notices to give you. First years should note that the forest in the grounds is forbidden to all pupils, and a few of our older students would do well to remember that as well. Dumbledore's twinkling eyes flashed in the direction of the Weasley twins. I have also been asked by Mr. Filch, the caretaker, to remind you all that no magic should be used between classes in the corridors. Quidditch trials will be held in the second week of term. Anyone interested in playing for their house teams should contact Madam Hooch. And finally, I must tell you that this year, the third-floor corridor on the right-hand side is out of bounds to everyone who does not wish to die a very painful death. Harry laughed, but he was one of the few who did. He's not serious, he muttered to Percy. Must be, said Percy, frowning at Dumbledore. It's odd, because he usually gives us a reason why we're not allowed to go somewhere. The forest's full of dangerous beasts, everyone knows that. I do think he might have told us prefects, at least. And now, before we go to bed, let us sing the school song, cried Dumbledore. Harry noticed that the other teacher's smiles had become rather fixed. Dumbledore gave his wand a little flick, as if he was trying to get a fly off the end, and a long golden ribbon flew out of it, which rose high above the tables and twisted itself snake-like into words. Everyone pick their favourite tune, said Dumbledore, and off we go. And the school bellowed. Hogwarts, Hogwarts, Hoggy, Warty, Hogwarts, teach us something, please. 
Whether we be old and bald or young with scabby knees, our heads could do with filling with some interesting stuff. For now they're bare and full of air, dead flies and bits of fluff. So teach us things worth knowing. Bring back what we've forgot. Just do your best. We'll do the rest and learn until our brains all rot. Everybody finished the song at different times. At last, only the Weasley twins were left singing along to a very slow funeral march. Dumbledore conducted their last few lines with his wand, and when they had finished, he was one of those who clapped loudest. Ah, music! He said, wiping his eyes. A magic beyond all we do here. And now bedtime. Off you trot. The Gryffindor first years followed Percy through the chattering crowds out of the great hall and up the marble staircase. Harry's legs were like lead again, but only because he was so tired and full of food. He was too sleepy even to be surprised that the people in the portraits along the corridors whispered and pointed as they passed, or that twice Percy led them through doorways hidden behind sliding panels and hanging tapestries. They climbed more staircases, yawning and dragging their feet, and Harry was just wondering how much further they had to go when they came to a sudden halt. A bundle of walking sticks was floating in mid-air ahead of them, and as Percy took a step towards them, they started throwing themselves at him. Peeves, Percy whispered to the first years, a poltergeist. He raised his voice. Peeves, show yourself. A loud, rude sound, like the air being let out of a balloon, answered. Do you want me to go to the bloody Baron? There was a pop. And a little man with wicked dark eyes and a wide mouth appeared, floating cross-legged in the air, clutching the walking sticks. <laughs> he said with an evil cackle. Ickle first is what fun! He swooped suddenly at them. They all ducked. Go away, Peeves, or the Baron will hear about this. I mean it! Barked Percy. Peeves stuck out his tongue and vanished, dropping the walking sticks on Neville's head. They heard him zooming away, rattling coats of armor as he passed. "You want to watch out for Peeves," said Percy as they set off again. "The bloody Baron's the only one who can control him. He won't even listen to us prefects." Here we are. At the very end of the corridor hung a portrait of a very fat woman in a pink silk dress. "Password," she said. "Caput Draconis." Said Percy, and the portrait swung forward to reveal a round hole in the wall. They all scrambled through it. Neville needed a leg up, and found themselves in the Gryffindor common room, a cosy round room full of squashy armchairs. Percy directed the girls through one door to their dormitory, and the boys through another. At the top of a spiral staircase, they were obviously in one of the towers. They found their beds at last. Five four-posters hung with deep red velvet curtains. Their trunks had already been brought up. Too tired to talk much, they pulled on their pajamas and fell into bed. Great food, isn't it? Ron muttered to Harry through the hangings. Get off, Scabbers! He's chewing my sheets. Harry was going to ask Ron if he'd had any of the treacle tart, but he fell asleep almost at once. Perhaps Harry had eaten a bit too much, 
because he had a very strange dream. He was wearing Professor Quirrell's turban, which kept talking to him, telling him he must transfer to Slytherin at once, because it was his destiny. Harry told the turban he didn't want to be in Slytherin. It got heavier and heavier. He tried to pull it off, but it tightened painfully. And there was Malfoy laughing at him as he struggled with it. Then Malfoy turned into the hook-nosed teacher, Snape, whose laugh became high and cold. There was a burst of green light, and Harry woke, sweating and shaking. He rolled over and fell asleep again. And when he woke next day, he didn't remember the dream at all. Chapter 8 The Potions Master There, look. Where? Next to the tall kid with the red hair. Wearing the glasses. Did you see his face? Did you see his scar? Whispers followed Harry from the moment he left his dormitory next day. People queuing outside classrooms stood on tiptoe to get a look at him, or doubled back to pass him in the corridors again, staring. Harry wished they wouldn't, because he was trying to concentrate on finding his way to classes. There were a hundred and forty-two staircases at Hogwarts, wide, sweeping ones, narrow, rickety ones, some that led somewhere different on a Friday, some with a vanishing step halfway up that you had to remember to jump. Then there were doors that wouldn't open unless you asked politely or tickled them in exactly the right place, and doors that weren't really doors at all but solid walls just pretending. It was also very hard to remember where anything was because it all seemed to move around a lot. The people in the portraits kept going to visit each other and Harry was sure the coats of armour could walk. The ghosts didn't help either. It was always a nasty shock when one of them glided suddenly through a door you were trying to open. Nearly Headless Nick was always happy to point new Gryffindors in the right direction, but Peeves the Poltergeist was worth two locked doors and a trick staircase if you met him when you were late for class. He would drop waste paper baskets on your head, pull rugs from under your feet, pelt you with bits of chalk, or sneak up behind you, invisible, grab your nose and screech, Got ya, conk! Even worse than Peeves, if that was possible, was the caretaker, Argus Filch. Harry and Ron managed to get on the wrong side of him on their very first morning. Filch found them trying to force their way through a door which, unluckily, turned out to be the entrance to the out-of-bounds corridor on the third floor. He wouldn't believe they were lost, was sure they were trying to break into it on purpose, and was threatening to lock them in the dungeons when they were rescued by Professor Quirrell, who was passing. Filch owned a cat called Mrs. Norris, a scrawny, dust-coloured creature with bulging, lamp-like eyes, just like Filch's. She patrolled the corridors alone. Break a rule in front of her, put just one toe out of line, and she'd whisk off for Filch, who'd appear wheezing two seconds later. Filch knew the secret passageways of the school better than anyone, except perhaps the Weasley twins, and could pop up as suddenly as any of the ghosts. The students all hated him, and it was the dearest ambition of many to give Mrs. Norris a good kick. And then, once you had managed to find them, there were the lessons themselves. There was a lot more to magic, as Harry quickly found out, than waving your wand and saying a few funny words. 
they had to study the night skies through their telescopes every Wednesday at midnight and learn the names of different stars and the movements of the planets. Three times a week they went out to the greenhouses behind the castle to study herbology with a dumpy little witch called Professor Sprout, where they learnt how to take care of all the strange plants and fungi and found out what they were used for. Easily the most boring lesson was history of magic, which was the only class taught by a ghost. Professor Binns had been very old indeed when he had fallen asleep in front of the staff room fire and got up next morning to teach, leaving his body behind him. Binns droned on and on while they scribbled down names and dates and got Emmerich the Evil and Uric the Oddball mixed up. Professor Flitwick, the charms teacher, was a tiny little wizard who had to stand on a pile of books to see over his desk. At the start of their first lesson, he took the register, and when he reached Harry's name, he gave an excited squeak and toppled out of sight. Professor McGonagall was again different. Harry had been quite right to think she wasn't a teacher to cross. Strict and clever, she gave them a talking to the moment they had sat down in her first class. Transfiguration is some of the most complex and dangerous magic you will learn at Hogwarts, she said. Anyone messing around in my class will leave and not come back. You have been warned. Then she changed her desk into a pig and back again. They were all very impressed and couldn't wait to get started, but soon realized they weren't going to be changing the furniture into animals for a long time. After making a lot of complicated notes, they were each given a match and started trying to turn it into a needle. By the end of the lesson, only Hermione Granger had made any difference to her match. Professor McGonagall showed the class how it had gone all silver and pointy and gave Hermione a rare smile. The class everyone had really been looking forward to was Defence Against the Dark Arts, but Quirrell's lessons turned out to be a bit of a joke. His classroom smelled strongly of garlic, which everyone said was to ward off a vampire he'd met in Romania and was afraid would be coming back to get him one of these days. His turban, he told them, had been given to him by an African prince as a thank you for getting rid of a troublesome zombie, but they weren't sure they believed this story. For one thing, when Seamus Finnegan asked eagerly to hear how Quirrell had fought off the zombie, Quirrell went pink and started talking about the weather. For another, they had noticed that a funny smell hung around the turban, and the Weasley twins insisted that it was stuffed full of garlic as well, so that Quirrell was protected wherever he went. Harry was very relieved to find out that he wasn't miles behind everyone else. Lots of people had come from muggle families, and, like him, hadn't had any idea that they were witches and wizards. There was so much to learn that even people like Ron didn't have much of a head start. Friday was an important day for Harry and Ron. They finally managed to find their way down to the Great Hall for breakfast without getting lost once. "'What have we got today?' Harry asked Ron as he poured sugar on his porridge. "'Double potions with the Slytherins,' said Ron. "'Snape's head of Slytherin House. They say he always favours them. We'll be able to see if it's true.' "'Wish McGonagall favoured us,' said Harry. "'Professor McGonagall was head of Gryffindor House, "'but it hadn't stopped her giving them a huge pile of homework the day before.' "'Just then the post arrived. 
Harry had got used to this by now, but it had given him a bit of a shock on the first morning when about a hundred owls had suddenly streamed into the great hall during breakfast, circling the tables until they saw their owners and dropping letters and packages onto their laps. Hedwig hadn't brought Harry anything so far. She sometimes flew in to nibble his ear and have a bit of toast before going off to sleep in the owlery with the other school owls. This morning, however, she fluttered down between the marmalade and the sugar bowl and dropped a note onto Harry's plate. Harry tore it open at once. Dear Harry, it said in a very untidy scrawl, I know you get Friday afternoons off, so would you like to come and have a cup of tea with me around three? I want to hear all about your first week. Send us an answer back with Hedwig. Hagrid. Harry borrowed Ron's quill, scribbled, Yes, please, see you later on the back of the note, and sent Hedwig off again. It was lucky that Harry had tea with Hagrid to look forward to, because the potions lesson turned out to be the worst thing that had happened to him so far. At the start of term banquet, Harry had got the idea that Professor Snape disliked him. By the end of the first potions lesson, he knew he'd been wrong. Snape didn't dislike Harry. He hated him. Potions lessons took place down in one of the dungeons. It was colder here than up in the main castle, and would have been quite creepy enough without the pickled animals floating in glass jars all around the walls. Snape, like Flitwick, started the class by taking the register, and like Flitwick, he paused at Harry's name. Ah, yes, he said softly. Harry Potter, our new celebrity. Draco Malfoy and his friends Crabbe and Goyle sniggered behind their hands. Snape finished calling the names and looked up at the class. His eyes were black, like Hagrid's, but they had none of Hagrid's warmth. They were cold and empty, and made you think of dark tunnels. You are here to learn the subtle science and exact art of potion-making, he began. He spoke in barely more than a whisper, but they caught every word. Like Professor McGonagall, Snape had the gift of keeping a class silent without effort. As there is little foolish wand-waving here, many of you will hardly believe this is magic. I don't expect you will really understand the beauty of the softly simmering cauldron with its shimmering fumes, the delicate power of liquids that creep through human veins, bewitching the mind, ensnaring the senses. I can teach you how to bottle fame, brew glory, even stop a death if you aren't as big a bunch of dunderheads as I usually have to teach. More silence followed this little speech. Harry and Ron exchanged looks with raised eyebrows. Hermione Granger was on the edge of her seat and looked desperate to start proving that she wasn't a dunderhead. Potter, said Snape suddenly, what would I get if I added powdered root of asphodel to an infusion of wormwood? Powdered root of what to an infusion of what? Harry glanced at Ron, who looked as stumped as he was. Hermione's hand had shot into the air. I don't know, sir, said Harry. Snape's lips curled into a sneer. Tut, tut, fame clearly isn't everything. He ignored Hermione's hand. Let's try again. Potter, where would you look if I told you to find me a bezoar? Hermione stretched her hand as high into the air as it would go without her leaving her seat. But Harry didn't have the faintest idea what a bezoar was. 
He tried not to look at Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle, who were shaking with laughter. I don't know, sir. Thought he wouldn't open a book before coming, eh, Potter? Harry forced himself to keep looking straight into those cold eyes. He had looked through his books at the Dursleys, but did Snape expect him to remember everything in one thousand magical herbs and fungi? Snape was still ignoring Hermione's quivering hand. What is the difference, Potter, between monkshood and wolfsbane? At this, Hermione stood up, her hand stretching towards the dungeon ceiling. I don't know, said Harry quietly. I think Hermione does, though. Why don't you try her? A few people laughed. Harry caught Seamus's eye, and Seamus winked. Snape, however, was not pleased. Sit down, he snapped at Hermione. For your information, Potter, Asphodel and Wormwood make a sleeping potion so powerful it is known as the draught of living death. A bezoar is a stone taken from the stomach of a goat, and it will save you from most poisons. As for monkshood and wolfsbane, they are the same plant, which also goes by the name of aconite. Well, why aren't you all copying that down? There was a sudden rummaging for quills and parchment. Over the noise, Snape said, And a point will be taken from Gryffindor House for your cheek, Potter. Things didn't improve for the Gryffindors as the potions lesson continued. Snape put them all into pairs and set them to mixing up a simple potion to cure boils. He swept around in his long black cloak, watching them weigh dried nettles and crush snake fangs, criticizing almost everyone except Malfoy, whom he seemed to like. He was just telling everyone to look at the perfect way Malfoy had stewed his horned slugs when clouds of acid green smoke and a loud hissing filled the dungeon. Neville had somehow managed to melt Seamus's cauldron into a twisted blob, and their potion was seeping across the stone floor, burning holes in people's shoes. Within seconds, the whole class were standing on their stools, while Neville, who had been drenched in the potion when the cauldron collapsed, moaned in pain as angry red boils sprang up all over his arms and legs. Idiot boy, snarled Snape, clearing the spilled potion away with one wave of his wand. I suppose you added the porcupine quills before taking the cauldron off the fire. Neville whimpered as boils started to pop up all over his nose. Take him up to the hospital wing, Snape spat at Seamus. Then he rounded on Harry and Ron, who had been working next to Neville. You, Potter, why didn't you tell him not to add the quills? Thought it'd make you look good if he got it wrong, did you? That's another point you've lost for Gryffindor. This was so unfair that Harry opened his mouth to argue, but Ron kicked him behind their cauldron. Don't push it, he muttered. I've heard Snape can turn very nasty. As they climbed the steps out of the dungeon an hour later, Harry's mind was racing and his spirits were low. He'd lost two points for Gryffindor in his very first week. Why did Snape hate him so much? Cheer up, said Ron. Snape's always taking points off Fred and George. Uh, can I come and meet Hagrid with you? At five to three, they left the castle and made their way across the grounds. Hagrid lived in a small wooden house on the edge of the Forbidden Forest. A crossbow and a pair of galoshes were outside the front door. When Harry knocked, they heard a frantic scrabbling from inside and several booming barks. Then Hagrid's voice rang out, saying, 
Back, Fang, back! Hagrid's big, hairy face appeared in the crack as he pulled the door open. Hang on, he said. Back, Fang! He let them in, struggling to keep a hold on the collar of an enormous black boar hound. There was only one room inside. Hams and pheasants were hanging from the ceiling. A copper kettle was boiling on the open fire, and in the corner stood a massive bed with a patchwork quilt over it. Make yourselves at home, said Hagrid, letting go of Fang, who bounded straight at Ron and started licking his ears. Like Hagrid, Fang was clearly not as fierce as he looked. This is Ron, Harry told Hagrid, who was pouring boiling water into a large teapot and putting rock cakes onto a plate. Another Weasley, eh? said Hagrid, glancing at Ron's freckles. I spent half my life chasing your twin brothers away from the forest. The rock cakes almost broke their teeth, but Harry and Ron pretended to be enjoying them as they told Hagrid all about their first lessons. Fang rested his head on Harry's knee and drooled all over his robes. Harry and Ron were delighted to hear Hagrid call Filch that old git. And as for that cat, Mrs. Norris, I'd like to introduce her to Fang sometime. Do you know, every time I go up to the school, she follows me everywhere. Can't get rid of her. Filch puts her up to it. Harry told Hagrid about Snape's lesson. Hagrid, like Ron, told Harry not to worry about it, that Snape liked hardly any of the students. But he seemed to really hate me. Rubbish, said Hagrid. Why should he? Yet Harry couldn't help thinking that Hagrid didn't quite meet his eyes when he said that. Uh, how's your brother Charlie? Hagrid asked Ron. I liked him a lot. Great with animals. Harry wondered if Hagrid had changed the subject on purpose. While Ron told Hagrid all about Charlie's work with dragons, Harry picked up a piece of paper that was lying on the table under the tea cosy. It was a cutting from the Daily Prophet. Gringotts break in latest. Investigations continue into the break-in at Gringotts on the 31st of July, widely believed to be the work of dark wizards or witches unknown. Gringotts goblins today insisted that nothing had been taken. The vault that was searched had in fact been emptied the same day. But we're not telling you what was in there, so keep your noses out if you know what's good for you, said a Gringotts spokesgoblin this afternoon. Harry remembered Ron telling him on the train that someone had tried to rob Gringotts, but Ron hadn't mentioned the date. Hagrid, said Harry, that Gringotts break-in happened on my birthday. It might have been happening while we were there. There was no doubt about it. Hagrid definitely didn't meet Harry's eyes this time. He grunted and offered him another rock cake. Harry read the story again. The vault that was searched had in fact been emptied earlier that same day. Hagrid had emptied Vault 713, if you could call it emptying, taking out that grubby little package. Had that been what the thieves were looking for? As Harry and Ron walked back to the castle for dinner, their pockets weighed down with rock cakes they'd been too polite to refuse, Harry thought that none of the lessons he'd had so far had given him as much to think about as tea with Hagrid. Had Hagrid collected that package just in time? Where was it now? And did Hagrid know something about Snape that he didn't want to tell Harry? Chapter 9 The Midnight Duel
Harry had never believed he would meet a boy he hated more than Dudley. But that was before he met Draco Malfoy. Still, first-year Gryffindors only had potions with the Slytherins, so they didn't have to put up with Malfoy much. Or at least, they didn't until they spotted a notice pinned up in the Gryffindor common room, which made them all groan. Flying lessons would be starting on Thursday, and Gryffindor and Slytherin would be learning together. Typical, said Harry darkly. Just what I always wanted, to make a fool of myself on a broomstick in front of Malfoy. He had been looking forward to learning to fly more than anything else. You don't know you'll make a fool of yourself, said Ron, reasonably. Anyway, I know Malfoy's always going on about how good he is at Quidditch, but I bet that's all talk. Malfoy certainly did talk about flying a lot. He complained loudly about first years never getting on the house Quidditch teams and told long, boastful stories which always seemed to end with him narrowly escaping muggles in helicopters. He wasn't the only one, though. The way Seamus Finnegan told it, he had spent most of his childhood zooming around the countryside on his broomstick. Even Ron would tell anyone who'd listen about the time he'd almost hit a hang glider on Charlie's old broom. Everyone from wizarding families talked about Quidditch constantly. Ron had already had a big argument with Dean Thomas, who shared their dormitory, about football. Ron couldn't see what was exciting about a game with only one ball, where no one was allowed to fly. Harry had caught Ron prodding Dean's poster of West Ham football team, trying to make the players move. Neville had never been on a broomstick in his life, because his grandmother had never let him near one. Privately, Harry felt she'd had good reason, because Neville managed to have an extraordinary number of accidents, even with both feet on the ground. Hermione Granger was almost as nervous about flying as Neville was. This was something you couldn't learn by heart out of a book, not that she hadn't tried. At breakfast on Thursday, she bored them all stupid with flying tips she'd got out of a library book called Quidditch Through the Ages. Neville was hanging on to her every word, desperate for anything that might help him hang on to his broomstick later. But everybody else was very pleased when Hermione's lecture was interrupted by the arrival of the post. Harry hadn't had a single letter since Hagrid's note, something that Malfoy had been quick to notice, of course. Malfoy's eagle owl was always bringing him packages of sweets from home, which he opened gloatingly at the Slytherin table. A barn owl brought Neville a small package from his grandmother. He opened it excitedly and showed them a glass ball the size of a large marble, which seemed to be full of white smoke. "'It's a remembrall,' he explained. "'Gran knows I forget things. This tells you if there's something you've forgotten to do. Uh, look, you hold it tight like this, and if it turns red—' Oh, his face fell, because the remembrall had suddenly glowed scarlet. "'You've forgotten something.' Neville was trying to remember what he'd forgotten when Draco Malfoy, who was passing the Gryffindor table, snatched the remembrall out of his hand. Harry and Ron jumped to their feet. They were half hoping for a reason to fight Malfoy, but Professor McGonagall, who could spot trouble quicker than any teacher in the school, was there in a flash. "'What's going on?' "'Malfoy's got my remembrall, Professor.' Scowling, Malfoy quickly dropped the remembrall back on the table. "'Just looking,' he said, and he sloped away with Crab and Goyle behind him. 
At 3.30 that afternoon, Harry, Ron and the other Gryffindors hurried down the front steps into the grounds for their first flying lesson. It was a clear, breezy day, and the grass rippled under their feet as they marched down the sloping lawns towards a smooth lawn on the opposite side of the grounds to the Forbidden Forest, whose trees were swaying darkly in the distance. The Slytherins were already there, and so were twenty broomsticks lying in neat lines on the ground. Harry had heard Fred and George Weasley complain about the school brooms, saying that some of them started to vibrate if you flew too high, or always flew slightly to the left. Their teacher, Madame Hooch, arrived. She had short grey hair and yellow eyes like a hawk. Well, what are you all waiting for? she barked. Everyone stand by a broomstick. Come on, hurry up. Harry glanced down at his broom. It was old and some of the twigs stuck out at odd angles. Stick out your right hand over your broom, called Madame Hooch at the front, and say, up. Up, everyone shouted. Harry's broom jumped into his hand at once, but it was one of the few that did. Hermione Granger's had simply rolled over on the ground, and Neville's hadn't moved at all. Perhaps brooms, like horses, could tell when you were afraid, thought Harry. There was a quaver in Neville's voice that said only too clearly that he wanted to keep his feet on the ground. Madame Hooch then showed them how to mount their brooms without sliding off the end, and walked up and down the rows correcting their grips. Harry and Ron were delighted when she told Malfoy he had been doing it wrong for years. Now, when I blow my whistle, you kick off from the ground hard, said Madame Hooch. Keep your broom steady, rise a few feet, and then come straight back down by leaning forward slightly. On my whistle, three, two... But Neville, nervous and jumpy and frightened of being left on the ground, pushed off hard before the whistle had touched Madame Hooch's lips. Come back, boy, she shouted, but Neville was rising straight up like a cork shot out of a bottle. Twelve feet, twenty feet. Harry saw his scared white face look down at the ground, falling away, saw him gasp, slip sideways off the broom, and wham! A thud and a nasty crack, and Neville lay face down on the grass in a heap. His broomstick was still rising higher and higher, and started to drift lazily towards the forbidden forest and out of sight. Madame Hooch was bending over Neville, her face as white as his. Broken wrist, Harry heard her mutter. Come on, boy, it's all right. Up you get. She turned to the rest of the class. None of you is to move while I take this boy to the hospital wing. You leave those brooms where they are, or you'll be out of Hogwarts before you can say Quidditch. Come on, dear. Neville, his face tear-streaked, clutching his wrist, hobbled off with Madame Hooch, who had her arm around him. No sooner were they out of earshot than Malfoy burst into laughter. Did you see his face, the great lump? The other Slytherins joined in. Shut up, Malfoy, snapped Parvati Patil. Ooh, sticking up for Longbottom, said Pansy Parkinson, a hard-faced Slytherin girl. Never thought you'd like fat little crybabies, Parvati. Look, said Malfoy, darting forward and snatching something out of the grass. It's that stupid thing Longbottom's gran sent him. The remember-all glittered in the sun as he held it up. Give that here, Malfoy, said Harry, quietly. Everyone stopped talking to watch. Malfoy smiled nastily. 
I think I'll leave it somewhere for Longbottom to collect. How about up a tree? Give it here! Harry yelled, but Malfoy had leapt onto his broomstick and taken off. He hadn't been lying. He could fly well, hovering level with the topmost branches of an oak he called, Come and get it, Potter! Harry grabbed his broom. No! shouted Hermione Granger. Madam Hooch told us not to move. He'll get us all into trouble. Harry ignored her. Blood was pounding in his ears. He mounted the broom and kicked hard against the ground, and up, up he soared. Air rushed through his hair, and his robes whipped out behind him, and in a rush of fierce joy, he realized he'd found something he could do without being taught. This was easy. This was wonderful. He pulled his broomstick up a little to take it even higher and heard screams and gasps of girls back on the ground and an admiring whoop from Ron. He turned his broomstick sharply to face Malfoy in midair. Malfoy looked stunned. Give it here, Harry called, or I'll knock you off that broom. Oh, yeah, said Malfoy, trying to sneer but looking worried. Harry knew somehow what to do. He leant forward and grasped the broom tightly in both hands, and it shot towards Malfoy like a javelin. Malfoy only just got out of the way in time. Harry made a sharp about turn and held the broom steady. A few people below were clapping. No crab and goyle up here to save your neck, Malfoy, Harry called. The same thought seemed to have struck Malfoy. Catch it if you can, then, he shouted, and he threw the glass ball high into the air and streaked back towards the ground. Harry saw, as though in slow motion, the ball rise up in the air and then start to fall. He leant forward and pointed his broom handle down. Next second, he was gathering speed in a steep dive, racing the ball. Wind whistled in his ears, mingled with the screams of people watching. He stretched out his hand, a foot from the ground. He caught it, just in time to pull his broom straight, and he toppled gently onto the grass with the rememberall clutched safely in his fist. Harry Potter! His heart sank faster than he'd just dived. Professor McGonagall was running towards them. He got to his feet, trembling. Never in all my time at Hogwarts. Professor McGonagall was almost speechless with shock, and her glasses flashed furiously. How dare you! Might have broken your neck. It wasn't his fault, Professor. Be quiet, Miss Patil. But Malfoy, that's enough, Mr. Weasley. Potter, follow me now. Harry caught sight of Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle's triumphant faces as he left, walking numbly in Professor McGonagall's wake as she strode towards the castle. He was going to be expelled. He just knew it. He wanted to say something to defend himself, but there seemed to be something wrong with his voice. Professor McGonagall was sweeping along without even looking at him. He had to jog to keep up. Now he had done it. He hadn't even lasted two weeks. He'd be packing his bags in ten minutes. What would the Dursleys say when he turned up on the doorstep? Up the front steps, up the marble staircase inside, and still Professor McGonagall didn't say a word to him. She wrenched open doors and marched along corridors, with Harry trotting miserably behind her. Maybe she was taking him to Dumbledore. He thought of Hagrid, expelled but allowed to stay on as gamekeeper. Perhaps he could be Hagrid's assistant. 
his stomach twisted as he imagined it, watching Ron and the others becoming wizards while he stumped around the grounds carrying Hagrid's bag. Professor McGonagall stopped outside a classroom. She opened the door and poked her head inside. Excuse me, Professor Flitwick, could I borrow wood for a moment? Wood? thought Harry, bewildered. Was wood a cane she was going to use on him? But wood turned out to be a person, a burly fifth-year boy who came out of Flitwick's class looking confused. Follow me, you two, said Professor McGonagall, and they marched on up the corridor, Wood looking curiously at Harry. In here! Professor McGonagall pointed them into a classroom which was empty except for Peeves, who was busy writing rude words on the blackboard. Out, Peeves! she barked. Peeves threw the chalk into a bin which clanged loudly, and he swooped out, cursing. Professor McGonagall slammed the door behind him and turned to face the two boys. Potter, this is Oliver Wood. Wood, I've found you a seeker. Wood's expression changed from puzzlement to delight. Are you serious, Professor? Absolutely, said Professor McGonagall crisply. The boys are natural. I've never seen anything like it. Was that your first time on a broomstick, Potter? Harry nodded silently. He didn't have a clue what was going on, but he didn't seem to be being expelled, and some of the feelings started coming back to his legs. He caught that thing in his hand after a fifty-foot dive, Professor McGonagall told Wood. Didn't even scratch himself. Charlie Weasley couldn't have done it. Wood was now looking as though all his dreams had come true at once. Ever seen a game of Quidditch, Potter? he asked excitedly. Wood's captain of the Gryffindor team, Professor McGonagall explained. He's just the build for a seeker, too, said Wood, now walking around Harry and staring at him. Light, speedy. We'll have to get him a decent broom, Professor, a Nimbus 2000 or a clean sweep 7, I'd say. I shall speak to Professor Dumbledore and see if we can't bend the first-year rule. Heaven knows we need a better team than last year, flattened in that last match by Slytherin. I couldn't look Severus Snape in the face for weeks. Professor McGonagall peered sternly over her glasses at Harry. I want to hear your training hard, Potter, or I may change my mind about punishing you. Then she suddenly smiled. Your father would have been proud, she said. He was an excellent Quidditch player himself. You're joking! It was dinner time. Harry had just finished telling Ron what had happened when he'd left the grounds with Professor McGonagall. Ron had a piece of steak and kidney pie halfway to his mouth, but he'd forgotten all about it. Seeker, he said, but first years, never. Oh, you must be the youngest house player in about a century, said Harry, shoveling pie into his mouth. He felt particularly hungry after the excitement of the afternoon. Wood told me. Ron was so amazed, so impressed, he just sat and gaped at Harry. I start training next week, said Harry. Only don't tell anyone. Wood wants to keep it a secret. Fred and George Weasley now came into the hall, spotted Harry, and hurried over. Well done, said George in a low voice. Wood told us. We're on the team too. Beaters. I tell you, we're going to win that Quidditch Cup for sure this year, said Fred. We haven't won since Charlie left, but this year's team is going to be brilliant. You must be good, Harry. Wood was almost skipping when he told us. Anyway, we've got to go. Lee Jordan reckons he's found a new secret passageway out of the school. 
Bet it's that one behind the statue of Gregory the Smarmy that we found in our first week. See you. Fred and George had hardly disappeared when someone far less welcome turned up. Malfoy, flanked by Crabbe and Goyle. Having a last meal, Potter? When are you getting the train back to the Muggles? You're a lot braver now you're back on the ground and you've got your little friends with you, said Harry coolly. There was, of course, nothing at all little about Crabbe and Goyle, but as the high table was full of teachers, neither of them could do more than crack their knuckles and scowl. I'd take you on any time on my own, said Malfoy. Tonight, if you want. Wizard's duel, wands only, no contact. Well, what's the matter? Never heard of a wizard's duel before, I suppose. Of course he has, said Ron, wheeling round. I'm his second. Who's yours? Malfoy looked at Crabbe and Goyle, sizing them up. Crabbe, he said. Midnight, all right. We'll meet you in the trophy room. That's always unlocked. When Malfoy had gone, Ron and Harry looked at each other. What is a wizard's duel? said Harry. And what do you mean you're my second? Well, a second's there to take over if you die, said Ron, casually, getting started at last on his cold pie. Catching the look on Harry's face, he added quickly, uh, But people only die in proper duels, you know, with real wizards. The most you and Malfoy will be able to do is send sparks at each other. Neither of you knows enough magic to do any real damage. I bet he expected you to refuse anyway. And what if I wave my wand and nothing happens? Throw it away and punch him on the nose, Ron suggested. Excuse me? They both looked up. It was Hermione Granger. "'Can't a person eat in peace in this place?' said Ron. Hermione ignored him and spoke to Harry. "'I couldn't help overhearing what you and Malfoy were saying.' "'Bet you could,' Ron muttered. "'And you mustn't go wandering around the school at night. "'Think of the points you'll lose Gryffindor if you're caught, and you're bound to be. "'It's really very selfish of you.' "'And it's really none of your business,' said Harry. "'Good-bye,' said Ron. All the same, it wasn't what you'd call the perfect end to the day, Harry thought, as he lay awake much later, listening to Dean and Seamus falling asleep. Neville wasn't back from the hospital wing. Ron had spent all evening giving him advice, such as, If he tries to curse you, you'd better dodge it, because I can't remember how to block them. There was a very good chance they were going to get caught by Filch or Mrs Norris, and Harry felt he was pushing his luck, breaking another school rule today. On the other hand, Malfoy's sneering face kept looming up out of the darkness. This was his big chance to beat Malfoy face to face. He couldn't miss it. Half past eleven, Ron muttered at last. We'd better go. They pulled on their dressing gowns, picked up their wands and crept across the tower room, down the spiral staircase and into the Gryffindor common room. A few embers were still glowing in the fireplace, turning all the armchairs into hunched black shadows. They had almost reached the portrait hole when a voice spoke from the chair nearest them. "'I can't believe you're going to do this, Harry.' A lamp flickered on. It was Hermione Granger, wearing a pink dressing gown and a frown. "'You!' said Ron furiously. "'Go back to bed!' "'I almost told your brother,' Hermione snapped. Percy, he's a prefect. He had put a stop to this. Harry couldn't believe anyone could be so interfering. Come on, he said to Ron. He pushed open the portrait of the fat lady and climbed through the hole. Hermione wasn't going to give up that easily. She followed Ron through the portrait hole, hissing at them like an angry goose. 
Don't you care about Gryffindor? Do you only care about yourselves? I don't want Slytherin to win the House Cup, and you'll lose all the points I got from Professor McGonagall for knowing about switching spells. Go away. All right, but I warned you. You just remember what I said when you're on the train home tomorrow. You're so... But what they were, they didn't find out. Hermione had turned to the portrait of the fat lady to get back inside and found herself facing an empty painting. The fat lady had gone on a nighttime visit, and Hermione was locked out of Gryffindor Tower. Now what am I going to do? she asked shrilly. That's your problem, said Ron. We've got to go. We're going to be late. They hadn't even reached the end of the corridor when Hermione caught up with them. I'm coming with you, she said. You are not. Do you think I'm going to stand out here and wait for Filch to catch me? If he finds all three of us, I'll tell him the truth, that I was trying to stop you and you can back me up. You've got some nerve, said Ron loudly. Shut up, both of you, said Harry sharply. I heard something. It was a sort of snuffling. Mrs Norris, breathed Ron, squinting through the dark. It wasn't Mrs Norris. It was Neville. He was curled up on the floor, fast asleep, but jerked suddenly awake as they crept nearer. Thank goodness you found me! I've been out here for hours! I couldn't remember the new password to get into bed! Keep your voice down, Neville! The password's pig snout, but it won't help you now. The fat lady's gone off somewhere. How's your arm? said Harry. Fine, said Neville, showing them. Madame Pumphrey mended it in about a minute. Good. Well, look, Neville, we've got to be somewhere. We'll see you later. Don't leave me, said Neville, scrambling to his feet. I don't want to stay here alone. The bloody Baron's been passed twice already. Ron looked at his watch and then glared furiously at Hermione and Neville. If either of you get us caught, I'll never rest until I've learnt that curse of the bogies Quirrell told us about and used it on you. Hermione opened her mouth, perhaps to tell Ron exactly how to use the curse of the bogies, but Harry hissed at her to be quiet and beckoned them all forward. They flitted along corridors striped with bars of moonlight from the high windows. At every turn, Harry expected to run into Filch or Mrs Norris, but they were lucky. They sped up a staircase to the third floor and tiptoed towards the trophy room. Malfoy and Crabbe weren't there yet. The crystal trophy cases glimmered where the moonlight caught them. Cups, shields, plates and statues winked silver and gold in the darkness. They edged along the walls, keeping their eyes on the doors at either end of the room. Harry took out his wand in case Malfoy leapt in and started at once. The minutes crept by. He's late. Maybe he's chickened out, Ron whispered. Then a noise in the next room made them jump. Harry had only just raised his wand when they heard someone speak. And it wasn't Malfoy. Sniff around, my sweet. They might be lurking in a corner. It was Filch speaking to Mrs Norris. Horror-struck, Harry waved madly at the other three to follow him as quickly as possible. They scurried silently towards the door, away from Filch's voice. Neville's robes had barely whipped round the corner when they heard Filch enter the trophy room. They're in here somewhere, they heard him mutter, probably hiding. This way, Harry mouthed to the others, and petrified, they began to creep down a long gallery full of suits of armour. They could hear Filch getting nearer. 
Neville suddenly let out a frightened squeak and broke into a run. He tripped, grabbed Ron around the waist, and the pair of them toppled right into a suit of armour. The clanging and crashing were enough to wake the whole castle. Run! Harry yelled, and the four of them sprinted down the gallery. Not looking back to see where the filch was following, they swung around the doorpost and galloped down one corridor, then another. Harry in the lead, without any idea where they were or where they were going, they ripped through a tapestry and found themselves in a hidden passageway, hurtled along it and came out near their charms classroom, which they knew was miles from the trophy room. I think we've lost him, Harry panted, leaning against the cold wall and wiping his forehead. Neville was bent double, wheezing and spluttering. I told you! Hermione gasped, clutching at the stitch in her chest. I told you! We've got to get back to Gryffindor Tower, said Ron, quickly as possible. Malfoy tricked you, Hermione said to Harry. You realise that, don't you? He was never going to meet you. Filch knew someone was going to be in the trophy room. Malfoy must have tipped him off. Harry thought she was probably right, but he wasn't going to tell her that. Let's go. It wasn't going to be that simple. They hadn't gone more than a dozen paces when a doorknob rattled and something came shooting out of a classroom in front of them. It was Peeves. He caught sight of them and gave a squeal of delight. Shut up, Peeves, please. You'll get us thrown out. Peeves cackled. Wandering around at midnight, Icklefesties. Tut, tut, tut. Naughty, naughty, you'll get caughty. Not if you don't give us away, Peeves, please. Should tell Filch, I should, said Peeves in a saintly voice, but his eyes glittered wickedly. It's for your own good, you know. Get out of the way, snapped Ron, taking a swipe at Peeves. This was a big mistake. Students out of bed, Peeves bellowed. Students out of bed down the charms corridor. Ducking under Peeves, they ran for their lives, right to the end of the corridor where they slammed into a door, and it was locked. This is it, Ron moaned as they pushed helplessly at the door. We're done for. This is the end. They could hear footsteps, Filch, running as fast as he could towards Peeves' shouts. Oh, move over, Hermione snarled. She grabbed Harry's wand, tapped the lock, and whispered, Alohomora. The lock clicked, and the door swung open. They piled through it, shut it quickly, and pressed their ears against it, listening. Which way did they go, Peeves? Filch was saying. Quick, tell me. Say, please. Don't mess me about, Peeves. Now, where did they go? Shan't say nothing if you don't say please, said Peeves in his annoying sing-song voice. All right. Please. Nothing. <laughs> Told you I wouldn't say nothing if you didn't say please. <laughs> and they heard the sound of Peeves whooshing away and Filch cursing in rage. He thinks this door is locked. Harry whispered. I think we'll be okay. Get off, Neville. For Neville had been tugging on the sleeve of Harry's dressing gown for the last minute. What? Harry turned around and saw quite clearly what. For a moment he was sure he'd walked into a nightmare. This was too much on top of everything that had happened so far. They weren't in a room as he had supposed. They were in a corridor. The forbidden corridor on the third floor. And now they knew why it was forbidden.
they were looking straight into the eyes of a monstrous dog, a dog which filled the whole space between ceiling and floor. It had three heads, three pairs of rolling mad eyes, three noses twitching and quivering in their direction, three drooling mouths, saliva hanging in slippery ropes from yellowish fangs. It was standing quite still, all six eyes staring at them, and Harry pool he's choosing from. To summarize, we could buy the S&P 500 index or Russell 2000 index and do better than the vast majority of active money managers. A better approach is to buy these indexes in a dollar-cost averaged manner. An even better approach is to go with the magic formula using Greenblatt's approach with no adaptation or changes. A slight improvement is to only look at the $1 million minimum market cap stocks. Smaller market cap stocks are generally underfollowed on Wall Street, and they are more likely to have their prices deviate significantly from underlying intrinsic value. It is also worth focusing a bit more attention on the ones with the highest earning yields, lowest PDE ratios. The combination of small caps and high earning yields in this group is better than randomly picking off stocks. There are usually about 250 stocks across the entire range of market caps on the magic formula. These 250 stocks comprise our universe of good and cheap stocks. Compared to the Russell 2000 or S&P 500, picking a handful out of this list is like shooting fish in a barrel. Greenblatt's own portfolio approach is to shoot just five of these barrel-trapped fish after the water has run out. It is very hard for him to miss. Fifty Cent Dollars, Hiding in Plain Sight The magic formula is a very good place to go hunting for fifty-cent dollar bills. We could keep it very simple, only analyzing magic formula stocks day in and day out, and become quite wealthy over time. I strongly recommend this approach. It is simple. You're shooting fish in a small barrel, and the results are likely to be vastly superior to the indexes. However, here are nine other pawns where we are likely to find more of these 50-cent dollars. 1. The Value Investors Club, VIC, website is open to the public, and it is loaded with a plethora of 50-cent dollars. Anyone can view these write-ups on individual stocks on www.valueinvestorsclub.com. This website was created by Joel Greenblatt. About 250 good value investors post two to four of their best ideas every year. Greenblatt awards $5,000 to the best idea each week. The website costs him $260,000 plus maintenance costs to operate and seemingly generates no revenue. Greenblatt has described the website as American Idol for hedge fund managers. He uses the website to find promising money managers, seeds them with some money, and puts them into business. The return for him on this activity alone is millions of dollars a year and the site has paid for itself many times over. In addition, he uses the ideas on the website as another feeder for himself. Many magic formula stocks have VIC write-ups that can help your research. If an investor just analyzed stocks that are on the magic formula and have a VIC write-up, they are likely to do quite well. 2. Subscribe to ValueLine or review it at a library. Study their bottom lists every week. They list stocks that have lost the most value in the preceding 13 weeks, ones trading at the widest discounts to book value, 
lowest PDE, highest dividend yield, and so on. It is a wonderful treasure trove to dig in and discover. 3. Look at the 52-week lows on the New York Stock Exchange, NYSE, daily. This is published in many newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal, as well as readily available on the Internet. Barron's publishes a weekly list of stocks that have hit a 52-week low during the week. Most stocks will be ones you've never heard of. Ignore these, fixate on familiar names, and then dig deeper on any that pique your interest. 4. Subscribe to Outstanding Investor Digest, OID, www.oid.com, and Value Investor Insight, www.valueinvestorinsight.com. Both carry detailed interviews and write-ups with some of the best value money managers in the United States. These are likely to deliver another idea or two for you to add to your funnel. 5. Subscribe to Portfolio Reports. It is published by the same people as OID, and it lists the recent buying activity of some of the best money managers in North America. Alternately, you can get close to the same data on Nasdaq.com. If I know that Southeastern Asset Management, Longleaf Partners, owns Fairfax Financial Stock, FFH, I can go to Nasdaq.com, type in FFH, and click on Info Quotes. This brings up a screen for FFH. Click on Holdings slash Insiders, and then Total Number of Holders. Finally, click on Southeastern Asset Management, and you'll see all that they own. 6. Another website that is free and can partly replace portfolio reports is Guru Focus, www.gurufocus.com. This is a free website that tracks the buying and selling activity of the leading value investors in North America. It is another wonderful place to go treasure hunting. 7. A sister publication of Value Investor Insight is Super Investor Insight. It too tracks the 13F filings of the super investors of our time. This is another worthwhile subscription to get. 8. Subscribe to the major business publications Fortune, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and Business Week, at a minimum. A tremendous amount of research and brain power goes into every page of content in these publications. It is presented in an easy to digest format at a super value price. The more you read up on the different companies, people, and industries in these publications, the better you'll get at securities analysis. That's the long-term benefit. The short-term reward is that, once in a while, things jump out at you, eventually leading to an investment. As an example, my interest in Level 3 bonds was piqued by an article in Barron's. 9. Attend the Biannual Value Investing Congress, www.valueinvestingcongress.com. It is held semi-annually in New York City and Hollywood. It is well worth the price of admission. Not only do they teach you to become a better fisherman, but they also provide some fish at half price. If an investor runs a portfolio of 5 to 10 stocks and holds them for 1 to 3 years, he or she needs to come up with an investment idea or two just every few months. The combination of magic formula, BIC, value line, OID, value investor insight, portfolio reports, super investor insight, Guru Focus, and the various business publications are all likely to drop a few 50-cent dollars right into your lap. Chapter 17 Arjun's Focus Investing Lessons from a Great Warrior 
Arjun is one of the heroes of the Mahabharata. You might recall from chapter 15 that he is Abhimanyu's dad. He was a great warrior and the best archer on the planet. Young princes like Arjun were sent off to be educated and groomed by a learned guru deep in the woods. They went as young kids and returned as well-rounded, capable leaders. The typical guru was a seasoned philosopher, a learned scholar, and an accomplished warrior, all rolled into one. Arjun's guru was simply the best of the best, the legendary Dronacharya. Dronacharya was an accomplished warrior himself, and he had trained his royal students well in the art of archery. One day he decided to test their archery skills. Setting up a painted wooden fish on top of a tall pole, he then installed the pole at the center of a shallow pool of water. He told his students that he wanted them to look down at the reflection of the fish in the water and shoot the eye of the fish on the pole. The first student rose and positioned himself. Dronacharya asked him what he saw. He said that he saw the ground, the water, the pole, and the fish. Dronacharya told him he was not ready and asked him to sit down. He then asked the next student to come forward. Once he was positioned, Dronacharya asked him what he saw. The student responded that he saw the water, the pole, and the reflection of the fish. Dronacharya told him he was not ready and asked him to sit down. He asked the princes to come forward one by one, asking them what they saw and then asking them to sit down. Finally, he asked Arjun to come forward. Arjun got positioned. Dronacharya asked him what he saw. Arjun responded that he could only see the center of the eye of the fish. Dronacharya asked him to fire the arrow. Arjun did as instructed, and his arrow hit the fish right in the center of its eye. After congratulating Arjun, Dronacharya told the other students that they failed the pretest and hence were not ready to attempt hitting the target. Archery is all about being singularly focused on the target. If the archer can't fixate on just the target, success is likely to be elusive. That was Dronacharya's lesson for the day for his students. Well, that's an interesting tale, but what does this passage from the Mahabharata have to do with being a Dundo investor? Let us examine the investing landscape for a minute. There are well over a hundred thousand publicly traded companies on dozens of exchanges around the world. In addition, at any given time, there are hundreds of thousands of privately held businesses around the globe that are also available to be bought or sold. Add to this the tens of thousands of fixed income securities, currencies, commodities, real estate, put and call options, mutual funds, hedge funds, treasuries, the list is endless. The range and sheer number of investment targets available to any investor are daunting. The Dundo investor only invests in simple, well-understood businesses. That requirement alone likely eliminates 99% of possible investment alternatives. Now, like Arjun, we must be down to only reading up on simple, well-understood businesses. We must remain squarely in our circle of competence and not even be aware of all the noise outside the circle. Within the circle, read pertinent books, publications, company reports, industry periodicals, and so on. Every once in a while, something about a business will jump out at you. If there appears to be some meat on the bone, and you sense that the business might be underpriced compared to its intrinsic value, it is time to hone in. At that point, 
you need to become ultra-focused like Arjun. All you should see is this one business. Shut everything else out. Nothing else exists on the planet. Drill down and see if it truly is an exceptional investment opportunity. Ask yourself if it fits in as a dando buy. Most times, it won't be as cheap as you'd like, or something will bother you and you'll take a pass. In that case, go back to scanning the radar within your narrow circle. Again, when something jumps out, focus intently on it until it's either rejected as an investment or passes all the dundo filters and you make the investment. Do not make the fatal mistake of looking at five businesses at once. Learn all you can about the business that jumps out for whatever reason and fixate solely on it. Once you're at the finish line with your analysis, only then look at the broader circle of competence. To conclude, I'd like to share a few final thoughts. The best way to learn is to teach, and writing this book has served as a tremendous learning experience for me. I likely wouldn't have written it if the people at John Wiley & Sons hadn't encouraged me. I'm grateful for the opportunity and the experience. This entire book focuses purely on ways to maximize your wealth. My dear father passed away in 1997. He always said that we come to this world naked and we leave the world naked. No one has succeeded in taking even a pin with them. He said that we need to fill in the blanks between birth and death. To that, I like to add that a life focused purely on the maximization of wealth or creature comforts for self and family is a suboptimal approach to living. Abraham George hails from Kerala in India, and I'm proud to call him a friend. He came to the United States a few decades ago and did very well as an entrepreneur, ending up with several million dollars when he sold his business a few years ago. He's chosen to plow most of it back through the George Foundation, www.tgfworld.org, and they have done some remarkable projects in India, helping the very poorest of the poor. Recently, an impoverished person who had been helped by his foundation asked him, Why do you help me? George brushed off the question with a non-answer, saying, I like you, that's why. The man persisted and asked him, Why do you help all of us? George could see that the man wanted a real answer. He gave him a very real answer. He said, Helping you makes me happy. I suspect that the happiness George derives from these endeavors is vastly more satisfying than having a fleet of gulf streams or palatial homes around the planet. I hope you'll seek out the same happiness that Abraham George and countless others have found. Khalil Gibran had some amazing perspectives on life to share in his little book, The Prophet. There are no wasted words or pages in that beautiful book. It is indeed very hard to live up to Gibran's high standards but simply being aware of them is likely to make us into better humans. I was touched by these lines. You give but little when you give of your possessions. It is when you give of yourself that you truly give. For what are your possessions but things you keep and guard for fear you may need them tomorrow? There are those who give little of the much they have, and they give it for recognition and their hidden desire makes their gift unwholesome. And there are those who give and know not pain in giving, nor do they seek joy, nor give with mindfulness of virtue. Through the hands of such as these, 
God speaks, and from behind their eyes He smiles upon the earth. You often say, I would give but only to the deserving. Surely he who is worthy to receive his days and his nights is worthy of all else from you. And he who has deserved to drink from the ocean of life deserves to fill his cup from your little stream. See first that you yourself deserve to be a giver and an instrument of giving. For in truth it is life that gives unto life, while you, who deem yourself a giver, are but a witness. Khalil Gibran I do urge you to leverage Dundo techniques fully to maximize your wealth. But I also hope that, well before your body begins to fade away, you'll use some time and some of that Dundo money to leave this world a little better place than you found it. We cannot change the world, but we can improve this world for one person, ten people, a hundred people, and maybe even a few thousand people. You've been listening to The Dundo Investor by Monish Babrai, narrated by Neil Shah, a member of SAG-AFTRA, copyright 2007 by Mohanish Babrai, published by arrangement with John Wiley & Sons, Incorporated, recording copyright 2019 by Gildan Media, a division of recorded books. If you've enjoyed this audiobook, please visit gildanmedia.com, where you'll find a wide selection of our unabridged titles. Thank you for being a Gildan Audio listener.